Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. All right, well, welcome everyone to Seeds Podcast. This is going to be a very unusual episode because it's the longest by far that I've ever done. And I've asked someone special to come and help me with this introduction, a former guest, Shanna Mo. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hi, everyone. So, Shanna, um, the people listening don't know it, but how old are you? Um, I'm 11. Yeah. So if they want to hear your story, they can go back to one of the first episodes, right? Yeah, I think it's episode five. That's right. And you talked about what it was like to be a kid and what adults can learn from kids. But today I've brought you here to help me introduce this episode. Do you know how long this episode is? No, I don't. How long is it? Well, it's, I mean, I can't even believe it. It's just under 10 hours long. What? So (laughs) I know it's a bit ridiculous, isn't it? So someone's going to have to be going on a very long road trip if they want to listen to the whole thing. Yeah, they are. But see, the key is that what I've done in the show notes is that I've listed where each of the sessions start and end. So if you want to listen to session three or session four, then you can just go to those parts of the episode. That's really good and smart. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you. So the reason it's so long is that it comes from audio from a two-day conference that was held up at Te Papa. Wow. And what we've done is recorded the entire conference. So that's more than 10 sessions. And the topic of the conference was Future Prospects for Charity Law, Accounting, and Regulation. I don't know. Does it sound interesting? Um, kind of like adult interesting, but I don't know about me. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, well, it was actually quite interesting, and there was a lot of amazing speakers. So we had about 40 different speakers from yeah. all over the world. So you get to hear lots of different accents on this because we had people from Australia, people from Ireland, people from America, and, of course, from New Zealand. I'm sure when I'm 23, I'll listen to all of it. Yeah, you think it'll be interesting then? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So the theme of the conference had been given to us the previous year by Dr. Una Breen from the Sutherland School of Law at, at University College Dublin. And this was the quote that she said, Be a magpie. Find the shining examples of the best ideas from different jurisdictions of the world and apply them in New Zealand. Sounds like a good wow. idea, doesn't it? Yeah, it sounds like a confusing poem. But okay. like, like it's a good poem, but like a confusing one. It's one you have to think about, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> I agree. So be a magpie, because magpies like to collect things, don't they? they yeah. They like, like shiny stuff. So the idea is that we can learn from each other. And by listening to this audio, people will be able to learn from others' experiences and actually um, be empowered whether they're running a charity or helping a charity, whether they're an accountant or a lawyer or a regulator or whatever, that they can actually learn from listening to this audio. That's a great idea. Like, like if you get it. Yeah, yeah if you get it. <laughs> if you get it, it's a great idea. Well, now it's been explained. Do you get it? Yeah, it's, it's a good idea. <laughs> awesome. And do you like the cover? 
Oh, yeah, that's cool. It's got a little magpie on it. That's right. It's a curious magpie looking out to、um, take the best bits from around the world in a pie in New Zealand. Oh, the one other thing I have to say is that、uh, two of the sessions are not in here. The one about social enterprise, because I'm making that a separate bonus episode on Seeds Podcast. Oh, I can't wait to listen to it. And the second one that's not in there is with Dr. Carolyn Cordery, where I interviewed her about the history of financial reporting. And that is also a separate Seeds podcast. So if people want to listen to those, they have to, to scroll through and find, find a different one. Oh, that, that's good. And I have to give a special shout out to the Charity Law Association of Australia and New Zealand, the Chartered Accountants of Australia and New Zealand, and Charity Services, who are the main organizations behind putting together this conference. And the organizing committee consisted of Sue Barker, Jamie Cattell, Sarah Doherty, Craig Fisher, Julia Fink, Matthew Harding, Brent Kennerly, Stephen Moe, Sarah O'Hara, Mike O'Leary, Andrew Phillips, and Wayne Tukiri. And it's been great working with them over the last year to pull this conference together and see so many people coming along, as we had almost 200 attending the conference. So,、mm-hmm. um, if people like Seeds and what we're about, which is trying to empower the sector of、um, charity, social enterprise, and really impact,、um, how do you think they could support Seeds podcast? Well, <laughs> you could like and subscribe or leave a rating and review for Seeds because it just gets the word out about Seeds and it helps other people to find out about Seeds.、Um, and also, we have a Facebook page and a Twitter account. So, you can just go on there and keep up to date with things. Exactly. And the Facebook page, I try to post pictures and things. Shh, Isaac. Oh, we've been interrupted by a four year old. <laughs> I might、Isaac. edit this bit out. Okay, we'll come and tidy up in a second, okay? Not yet, Isaac.、We're、and then we'll watch Back to the Future.、Um, so, anyway, I think we need to go tidy up and then watch Back to the Future. And so, without further ado, what we'll do is get into the first session. And this was a fascinating one to start off. It was Do Charities Need to Be Regulated? And you'll be hearing from Sue Barker, Una Breen, Miles McGregor Lowndes, Jerome Vander Hayden. Natasha Waite and Matthew Harding, who's the moderator. So let's turn it over to them. Fakatakate hauki te uru, fakatakate hauki te tonga. Kia ma kina kina ki uta, kia ma taratara ki tai. E hi akiana te atakura, he teo, he huka, he hauhu, ti hei mauriora. Kia rere arorangi ngā mihi ki te mātua nui i te rangi, kia mā turuturu te tō mairangi o tōna atawhai ki runga i a tātou i tēnei rā, a haere nei te wā. E te rangatira Tiati Joe Williams, e te kākākura naumai haremai, nō mātou te honore kua taikoe mai i tēnei rangi. Kia koutou ngā manawa tītī, naumai hoki mai. Ahakoa te ua ua o te kaupapa ka utonu, tēnā rā koutou katoa. He waka eke noa. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Oh no. 
Um, so, uh, as Craig says, our first panel addresses a big question uh, and one that uh, has many dimensions. <laughs> um, and we have uh, a remarkably uh, well-placed group of people here to uh, think about it collectively. Uh, I'm not going to do detailed introductions because the bios of all the speakers are in the program. Um, we have Sue Barker to begin with, uh, who really needs no introduction. Uh, we have uh, Professor Jerome van der Hagen, who's the Chair of Regulatory Studies at Victoria University of Wellington. We have Dr. Professor Una Breen, uh, who is uh, Professor of Law at Sutherland School of Law at University College Dublin. We have Natasha Waite, uh, General Manager of Charity Services uh, here in New Zealand. Uh, and we have Professor Miles McGregor-Lowndes of QUT, uh, who is uh, a very prominent uh, academic uh, in this space in Australia. So my understanding is that the order in which uh, our panellists are going to speak is Sue, then Jerome, then Una, then Natasha, and then Miles. Uh, and um, so I'll invite them each to say something in turn. Then there'll be time for questions and discussion. And um, the format for that is that there are microphones set up at the back of the room. And uh, if you want to ask a question, uh, then uh, you have to proceed to one of those microphones and uh, use that microphone to uh, ask the question. But first we'll hear from our speakers and let's begin then with Sue. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Matthew. Tēnā kōtū katoa. Good morning, everybody. Lovely to see you all here. Thank you for coming. Um, the topic of do charities need to be regulated? Is there a clicker? Oh, do I just use this? Sorry, how do I change the slides? Yeah, that was easy. It's really in that context that this question is arising. 
Uh, those of you who were around in 2004, and I apologise to those of you who've been to the community engagement meetings, there's a slight little bit of overlap with what I'm about to say, but not completely. Um, the original Charities Bill that was introduced into Parliament in 2004 was widely regarded as fundamentally flawed, and it was almost completely rewritten at select committee stage in response to hundreds of submissions. And that rewritten bill was not subject to proper consultation. The Ministry for Economic Development, as it was then, uh, spoke with 35 selected organisations. And then that rewritten bill was rushed through under urgency with all final stages occurring on one day, 12 April 2005. 14 years ago tomorrow. <laughs> and in those 14 years, the Act has also been subject to a series of amendments, which again have generally been rushed through by statutes amendment bill under urgency without proper consultation, often against the strong opposition of the charitable sector. Fast law does not make good law. The net effect is that we have an Act that is full of unintended consequences. And, um, and I have spoken to the Minister about this and he, he knows my views and we agree to disagree, but I, I don't think the Act needs to be modernised. It's only a 2005 Act. The Act needs to be got right in the first place, in my view. It is Labour Party policy to consult with the community and voluntary sector on whether the disestablishment of the Charities Commission in 2012 has resulted in effectiveness and improved services and information for the sector. It is also Labour Party policy to prioritise the long-promised review of the Charities Act, beginning with a first principles review, including examining, updating and widening, rather than narrowing, the definition of charitable purpose. Now those of you who have had a chance to have a look at the terms of reference for this review and the Department of Internal Affairs discussion document will be aware that this review is not that. And the key message that we have been expressing around the country is that the terms of reference are too narrow. They will not allow key uh, issues to be addressed. And the time frame is also too short. Thank you to the Minister for extending the time frame of submissions by one month. That is a very welcome extension. Um, thank you very much for that. But the, the key pressure here is that the Minister wants this whole review completed within this term of government. That will require legislation to be passed before the election next year. We all know how long legislation takes. That in turn will require all policy work to be completed by August this year, a few weeks. The issues in this area of law are complex and their impact is far-reaching and touches every aspect of our society. It, it would be more cost-effective in the long run when all costs are taken into account to take the time needed to do this review properly. We need an independent law commission review as occurred with incorporated societies and trusts. And the law commission needs to be funded to be able to carry out the review properly. And the work that's going on with the consultation meetings around the country can feed into a Law Commission review if we manage to get that. Now, Dave and I and a consortium of charities meet with um, the Minister and, and put that proposition to the Minister. I thought the Minister seemed open to that suggestion. Dave had a different view. But basically, if we're going to get it, it's up to us. And, and there are a diversity of views in the acceptor. I completely acknowledge and respect and celebrate that. 
But I actually think that that might be one issue that we might all be able to get behind. Because there are a number of issues that concern me in the context of this review, and I'd like to touch on two because they feed into the question, do charities need to be regulated? And one is sanctions and the other is funding. And for those of you who've had a chance to have a look at the discussion document, you'll have noticed that there's a section um, by which charity services sets out a number of additional powers that it would like to have. And I'm very concerned about increasing powers of government in this space until we have agreement on what those powers are to be used for. And if you scroll over a little bit further, it's a section about funding. And I'm also very concerned that um, where we might be going with this review is that the charitable sector might be asked to fund this regime. And again, I would be very concerned about asking the charitable sector to fund the regime until we have agreement on what we are trying to achieve with this review. So that feeds into the question of do charities need to be regulated? And actually, when I was thinking about this last night, and I'm sorry we haven't had a chance to discuss this, it's not about regulation. I accept that the term regulation can be very wide, it can cover almost anything. But what I do question is whether the term charities regulator is helpful. I accept that in other jurisdictions the horse has probably bolted, and it's probably um, become set in other jurisdictions. But we have a review of the Charities Act on foot. The Charities Act does not use the term charities regulator. And actually, I think it did so advisedly for all its faults. Um, if you look at other legislation, for example, the Health and Safety at Work Act, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand Act, the Overseas Investment Act, where legislation does want uh, an agency to control, to exercise control, they are called the regulator. But the Charities Act uh, does not do that. Oh, sorry, wrong slide. There you go. <laughs> And one thing that concerns me about asking whether this regime is fit for purpose, how can we answer that question until we have agreement on what that purpose is? This regime is about accountability. It is not about regulation. The regime sets up a registration, reporting and monitoring regime. It allows charities to be on a register so they can make their information publicly available so that people, members of the public and other stakeholders can make informed decisions about which particular charities they want to support. The purpose of the monitoring function is to ensure that charities continue to act in furtherance of their stated charitable purposes. That is the problem the Act is trying to fix. Because if someone stood on a bucket prior to, uh, on a street with a bucket and rattled a bucket prior to 2005 and you gave money, you would not know if that person was actually acting for a charity, if the charity was both Friday, or what would actually happen to the money once you'd given to it. The regime is about information. The theme, the scheme of the legislation is serious wrongdoing. It's about weeding out the bad charities those that engage in fraud, money laundering, tax avoidance, or other, other activities that would affect or, or put at risk the reputation of the entire charitable sector. It's not about exercising power and control over what charities do or say. 
We don't have agreement about that, however. The current purposes of the Act are set out there. The main ones I want to focus on are A and B. To promote public trust and confidence in the charitable sector and to encourage and promote the effective use of charitable resources. These were not purposes of the original legislation. Originally, they were functions of the Charities Commission because the charitable sector thought if there was adverse comment in the media, the, charitable sector might, the Charities Commission might be able to speak up on behalf of the charitable sector in order to not have public trust and confidence undermined. But when the Charities Commission was disestablished in 2012, those functions were bumped up to purposes. No consultation, rushed through under urgency. We've actually never had a proper look at whether these should be the purposes of our legislation. And in that context, I'd like to share with you a quote. I know you're not supposed to do this, so I'd be grateful for your indulgence. It's a review of this book, which is edited by Professor Miles McGregor-Dowles, who I'm honoured to say is, uh, will speak shortly. Um, this book compares the charities law frameworks of five jurisdictions, including New Zealand, and I recommend it to you particularly in the context of the review. But John Tyler from the um, UN Marion Kaufman Foundation said these, which perfectly encapsulates, I think, the concern I'm trying to express. It seems to me that the sector's affirmative purposes and roles and the contributions to their respective societies should precede regulation thereof. And I think that's critical because the importance of the charitable sector, the fact that it's the glue that holds our society together, somehow seems to have got lost. Somehow, the charitable sector seems to have become seen as a fiscal cost, something to be reduced. Stated differently, why increase public trust and confidence? Why pursue effectiveness and accountability? A prerequisite should be ensuring that respectful boundaries protects against harmful regulation and regulates infringing on or interfering with the fundamental roles and purpose of the charitable sector. Without that grounding at the forefront, there are non-tenuous risks that the charitable sector gets perceived and regulated as if a loophole, or as a means for government abdicating its responsibilities or using the sector to address fiscal deficits. It may be that regulatory purposes of ensuring effectiveness and accountability threaten to morph into overreaching exercises of governmental power in the name of enhancing trust and confidence. And that is exactly what I'm seeing in my practice. And it's not just about charities running businesses, it's not just about charities advocating for their charitable purposes, which are two of the issues that are discussed in the discussion document. There has been a purging of sporting organisations throughout New Zealand. Really good sporting organisations, well governed, doing great work in their community. They have done nothing wrong, but they've been deregistered because of changes in jurisprudential interpretations of the definition of charitable purpose, plunging them into Goodness knows what uncertainty and chaos as a result of the deregistration. But it's not even limited to that. It's economic development, it's social enterprises, it's member organisations. There's a whole host of areas where I'm seeing this in my practice, which is why I think it's so important that we address the fundamentals of this regime. And that is um, problematic because that's outside the terms of reference of the current view. At what cost? Maybe important to have is ever-present policy and regulatory question about the sector, especially with regard to intangible non-financial costs to common law, rule of law rather than rule of power, and other contributions of the sector to society. And that point about rule of law is important. I am seeing charities that meet all the legal requirements for registration being declined registration. 
And in my view, if we had proper checks and balances in the framework, that would never be able to happen. Now I'm aware that I'm out of time, so I might just <coughs> skip through some of the other things I wanted to talk about. But um, instead of, uh, I guess my concern is that the term charities regulator is perhaps encouraging overreach. But if you look up the term regulator in the dictionary, it's all about command and control. And I'm wondering, in the framework of trying to get a better balance that we can all live with, if perhaps that term is not helpful, perhaps we could have another term. For example, a monitoring agency. Charity services are there to monitor charities to check that they continue to act in furtherance of their stated charitable purposes. A registrar. Charity services runs a register, like the registrar of incorporated societies. The supervisor, they use that in the anti-money laundering legislation, perhaps that might work, an oversight body, an administrator. Or what about an economist term? Why not just call them charity services? Or if it's the Charities Commission, the Charities Commission. Um, uh, simply asking the question, is the term helpful in New Zealand? Is this a term that we want to adopt here? Um, in conclusion, while I'm here, I wondered if I could just um, uh, uh, raise a couple of issues that might um, be helpful. We are raising these in the community engagement meetings that are on around the country. Um, we have prepared an issues paper uh, and a, a summary paper. Uh, it's kind of a shadow discussion document and we're more than happy to make that available um, uh, if, if anyone's interested. Those are our contact details. We've also created a Facebook page, you may have on Facebook, Charities at View. We have a LinkedIn group. But I think the key message is please, please, please make a submission. That date is now out of date. The Minister's given us another month, which is fantastic. But it's, we have a once-in-a-generation opportunity to create a world-leading framework of charity law for New Zealand, but it will not happen by accident. It's time for the charitable sector to speak up, stand up for yourself, and make your voice heard. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sue. Um, I'll invite Joanna to come and address you now. Kiara, good morning everyone. Um, it's, a, it's an honour to be here today and speak to you um, about quite an um, ambitious theme. Over the next 10 minutes, I'm going to try to talk you through the last 4,000 years of regulatory theory and practice. So um, hold on to your seat. It's going to be a bit of a roller coaster ride. Um, but my intention to do this um, is to help you understand the evolution of regulation as we've seen it over the last 4,000 years with a specific focus on some of the main paradigm shifts that happened over the last 50 years. Um, as I think that is quite important to help us think about uh, the question, should uh, the charity sector be regulated? But more importantly, what is regulation in today's time and age, and what can it be? Um, so let's kick off. Um, the concept of regulation, or at least how we think about regulation as a deliberate act to steer the behavior of individuals and organizations in a way to achieve desired societal ends, that's a uh, quite extensive definition, um, can be traced back till at least uh, 3000 BC. Unfortunately, um, we don't have any written rules and regulations that are that old, but the 
um, the oldest rules, the oldest sort of traditional um, regulations that we know of are uh, dating back to so roughly 1750 BC uh, in the Codex Hammurabi, so this is ancient, uh, ancient Egypt. Um, and this is the first time where we see a type of regulation um, that we now would consider to be uh, prescriptive rules and penalties for non-compliance. So the typical example that people pretty often give when, when talking about Hammurabi's code um, is uh, the following, if a builder builds a house and the house falls down and kills the owner of the house, then the builder shall be killed. It's a very, uh, it's, it's very clear, it's a very clear rule, uh, it's a very clear uh, enforcement um, uh, requirement, it's very obvious um, to monitor this and it's very uh, easy to, uh, to enforce that. Of course, that's not something uh, where we want to go to uh, these days, but it's good to keep that in the background. Then, sort of moving forward, sort of fast forward, uh, during the Greek and Roman uh, ages, um, what we see is further codification of uh, regulation, um, further codification of rules and penalties, but nothing really much happens otherwise than uh, a specific focus on commerce, property, and bodily harm. But still, the idea of a rule is introduced and penalties are in place for non-compliance. During the Middle Ages, still nothing much changes. The only thing that really changes now is that sort of during the Greek and Roman ages, um, this idea of penalizing through bodily uh, interventions was sort of stepped away from and, and we saw more sort of financial penalties. The Middle Ages become truly horrible and what we see is that um, the body is going to become the, the target of punishment. So we see the public hangings, the public floggings, um, and the terrorist becomes a spectacle. And the idea here is that those who violate the rules should fear the consequences of doing so. So deterrence really has to inflict fear on people. And this is, again, something we should keep in the back of our minds. During the Renaissance, Enlightenment, early modernity, um, things begin to, to, to slowly change. Um, and some scholars talk about uh, this is an, an, an era where we see the birth of leniency. We see a move away from sort of the Middle Ages, where the body was being used to, uh, to inflict pain and uh, deter people, and punishment suddenly becomes something that is pushed away sort of into prisons, into um, uh, corrective institutions, and regulation, specifically enforcement of regulation and penalizing, becomes a administrative um, uh, procedure, a, a ritual. Um, but sort of if we, if we would sum up this, uh, this very brief overview of so close to uh, 3,700 years of regulation. For a very long time, regulation meant nothing else but hierarchy, so a sovereign would introduce a rule in a very intrusive way. Um, the, the rule would be deterrence-based, prescriptive, very static, and sort of very much focused on one-size-fits-all solutions. And this is how we still think about regulation mostly when we talk about it, and Sue already dropped the word command and control. Mostly when we talk about regulation, we think command and control. Um, but from the beginning of the 20th century onward, a few changes, or big changes in society, big changes in science, uh, made us realize that this very intrusive, traditional command and control approach to regulation caused too much friction. And basically, it was insights um, that rapid industrialization causes risks and problems that we cannot really address through these. Uh, traditional tools anymore. We were thinking differently and, and, and started to learn about people's psychology and why people uh, uh, comply with regulations. 
and of course uh, the costs of uh, uh, developing regulations, implementing and enforcing regulations um, became too steep, sort of a calls on government to reduce this. So from the roughly the 1950s onwards, so again, so for 4,000 years, hardly anything changed towards the command and control, and suddenly from the 1950s onwards, we see really big changes. So the first paradigm shift um, that I think is interesting to keep in the back of our minds is that from the 1960s onwards, uh, studies on people's psychology made us realize that actually lots of people do not comply with regulations because they fear the consequences of non-compliance, but actually many people feel a moral duty to obey. So why would you introduce very restrictive, very deterrence-based rules if many people would not respond to that? So what we see in the 1970s is the move towards much more compliance-based approaches where positive incentives are replacing the traditional negative ones. In the 1980s, the focus becomes more on what is now known as risk regulation. Um, so we came to understand that growing externalities resulting from industrialization and globalization cannot be regulated in a traditional way anymore. But more importantly, we as a uh, society um, have really stepped away from this notion of fate or determinism. We don't really believe anymore that things that happen happen uh, for no reason otherwise than a deity or natural law punishing us. Um, we really believe in a makeable future, and if you have a makeable future, you should also be able to reduce the risks in going there. Um, and at the same time, it was a call on government to become much more cost-effective, so sort of new public management as it is known in, uh, in the academic literature. So in response, government started to think about how can we allocate our regulatory resources, resources in the smartest way. And they began to map risks and try to regulate the highest risks first and then slowly move on to lower risks. Um, a third paradigm shift, and I, and I, I leave it with five altogether, but a third really important paradigm shift is sort of in the 1990s, scholars and regulators and practitioners started to think about, well, on the one hand, we now have these deterrence-based approaches that we know don't really work. We also have these compliance-based approaches, and we know that they don't really work. So maybe we should start beginning with mixing incentives. And this book, John Braithwaite's uh, uh, Response of Regulation, is one of the highlights from, uh, from that time, where they argue that maybe you should begin as a regulator to facilitate compliance first. And if you then don't get compliance, cause friction. So begin with positive incentives, begin with explaining and learning and, and educating and only after that begin sort of deterring. And in this model, the role of the street level Europe, so those people who are directly engaging with those who are regulated, become really important in achieving regulatory um, compliance. So a big change again. Um, another change that we've seen sort of starting in the 2000s is that suddenly we don't believe that much anymore in the traditional model of rational behavior, rational actors. So the idea that we would all behave um, in our own self-interest, that we have the information needed to make rational decisions and can process this. So insights from behavioral sciences, behavioral economics, psychology, um, make us understand that a lot of our behavior is actually driven by sort of irrational biases and heuristics, um, whereas traditional regulatory tools focus on rational behavior. So what you see happening sort of since the early 2000s is that rather than forbidding choice or limiting choice, or steering people's choice through command and control strict 
uh, prescriptive regulations, we move much more to facilitating choice or helping people to make choices that are in their own best interest. So again, a massive paradigm shift. And then last but not least, starting in the 2010s, all around the world, also here in New Zealand, governments begin to think about, geez, if we look back 50 years now in time, we see all these big paradigm shifts in regulation. We now have a range of tools, we have a range of regulatory actors, but how to bring this together? So calls for systems thinking begin to emerge, so rather than regulating issue by issue or regime by regime, we start thinking about how can we um, ensure uh, horizontal coordination, should we involve those who are regulated in the development and implementation of regulation, um, and should we not um, continue to update and review our regulatory system. So here in New Zealand it is referred to as regulatory stewardship in the uh, UK and the uh, EU they talk about a better uh, regulation initiative. So that then in a nutshell, for 4,000 years we were thinking about regulation as command and control and that memory is still around. Whereas if you look at the last 50 years of regulation, suddenly lots has happened. Less hierarchy, more collaboration, more mixing of incentive and so on and so forth. And why this happened is basically the governments really have responded to move away from causing regulatory friction and provide regulatory um, facilitation. So in the last uh, minute that I uh, like to talk to you, um, I will also focus on this question. Should, um, should charities be regulated? Well, I guess you can um, uh, expect where my answer will be. Um, I would argue that regulation has become a very specialized trade, a specialized uh, area of work. Um, for good regulation, we need regulatory experts, those who understand the specific topics, but also generalists who understand the regulatory systems. We need um, a regulatory profession. We need a holistic understanding of regulation and really think about a lot of things, including the ethics of those involved in regulatory issues. So coming back to that question, yes, from my point of view, any area, included, including the charity sector, needs to be regulated, simply because I don't think we can longer say that regulation equals command and control. Regulation is much more these days. The question, of course, is, and uh, this is where I totally agree with uh, this conference and, and hope that we talk all about these kinds of things. The question is, of course, is the New Zealand government, or any government for that matter, capable at this point in time to regulate the charity sector well, given the regulatory challenges that we face? Um, with that, I'll leave to the next speakers. Uh, if you have any questions on uh, regulation or uh, these kinds of things, please, uh, please get in touch with me, and uh, thank you for your attention. Cheers. Thank you very much, Jerome. Um, that was a tour de force that um, only comes from years of deep learning experience. So thank you. Ten minutes to take us through 4,000 years. Still, I can set the benchmark now uh, for Una, who's up next. <laughs> charities because 
as we know, regulation is not an end in itself. Regulation is a means to an end. So what is our end when we think about charity regulation? And for me, it comes down to two big things, because we are thinking about private goods, often, all about public donations, but the state does roll up our money at the end of the day to contribute to charities, private goods for public benefit. What's the role of regulation in that space? And for me, it's twofold. Our broad aim is to protect charitable assets for the purpose for which they've been given. Because there is no one other person out there who will have a vested interest to do that. So to protect those charitable assets and ensure they're used in the correct manner for those who were intended to benefit. And then secondly, to protect the integrity of charitable status. When you become a registered charity, no matter where in the world you earn that label, you wear it with pride because it means something. It means something to the public if you can say you're a registered charity. It brings with it the feeling of trust and confidence and terms that we've already discussed this morning. So is regulation, in this sense, the red tape? Or is regulation the safety net? that protects those things that we hold dear when we talk about charities. Whoever would want the job of a charity regulator? If you are the charity regulator, you have to navigate that treacherous strait between Scylla and Charybdis. Because think about the two big fears on either side of that narrow strait. Those who seek to regulate charities, Catherine Wells, an American academic, tells us, they walk a very fine line between, and must avoid, both damaging interference and damaging neglect. That's, that's quite a tough one, right? And that's all about getting the balance of regulation right at the end of the day. So how do we begin to think about that? Well, again, coming back to regulation, there's two things you can do with regulation. You can make it an enabling space. You can make it a promotion space. You can have the supportive space. But it can also be the preventive, the constraining, the thou shalt not do space. So regulation can go in two different ways. And when we think again about charities, what are the tipping points for us in this regard. When we think of it in terms of functionality, one might say we should regulate if we thought that a charity was so dysfunctional that state intervention was required despite the cost. Jerome mentioned transaction costs. It always costs to step into that space. When is that actually justified? That the harm caused to charities or to society is so great that we should jump in. This is very much the live and let live model. You're doing good, you're out there, we're not going to constrain you too much. The second notion comes back to something that Sue talked about when she unveiled her role, uh, her approach to regulation. That's the whole notion of transparency. Does the public have enough information that an understanding of what charities are doing 
that they can make their own autonomous decisions regarding whether they support charities or not. That's a very powerful tool the public has. Do they donate? Do they participate? Do they volunteer? A charity that can't get donations, that doesn't have public trust, that nobody wants to turn up on a Saturday morning or late on a Friday night to help, won't be around very long. And it doesn't take statutory regulation for that to happen. People will vote with their voices and with their feet. So that's a second sort of trust and confidence approach to regulation. And the third one is the more, uh, the prevailing issue of honesty. Is a charity misrepresenting itself or its activities to the public in order to obtain support? And then we're into the, the bad guys, the fraud, all of those things that we want to prevent unleashing on the public. So let's look at this issue of regulation from two different perspectives. One might be the charity regulator's perspective, and I've drawn on your own charity regulator here, New Zealand Charity Services, in putting out their view of what they do when they regulate. So this comes from your Geared Funds for Success document, all about you getting ready to set yourself up as a charity. And they say that regulation oversees that effective, good charities have the following things. They're clear purpose and direction, they've strong governance, you've the right people for the right activities, and you've sound and prudent management. Well, no one could really disagree with any of those things. Those are ideal things we'd like to see in everybody that we support. How do you get there? How do you support that trust piece? Well, you've got the gateway to regulation, so your um, registration is your gateway in, and once you're in, they keep you on the right path, because you file your annual returns, you have your financial statements, that provides the accountability. So there's the sort of the golden side of regulation when it's working well. If we had to look at the, the margins of danger, what can happen if there's over-regulation? I've drawn on the work of Evelyn Brody and John Tyler, who are two American academics, and they wrote a really interesting paper in 2009 called How Public is Private Philanthropy? Uh, separating Reality from Myth. And here are some of the interesting things that they say in this paper that give us cause perhaps for, or pause for thought. The state's authority to regulate and supervise charities does not grant the state directive power over foundations or other charities or transfer, transform their assets into property of the state or the general public. So that's the important part about it being private goods for public benefit. Secondly, they point out that whether the fact that the foundations and other charities have public purposes, and pardon me, neither the fact that foundations and other charities have public purposes, nor the fact that they are subject to the Attorney General's parent patriotic powers, supports a claim that these organisations must serve the same ends as those of government, or that government may unduly intrude in the go their governance and other decisions. So at the end of the day, Brody and Tyler tell us that private parties do have this authority to determine the charitable purposes that particular foundations and other charities pursue. So that's recognizing the balance between over and under regulation. So where does that leave us then when we talk about the main question here? 
Do charities need to be regulated? Well, it always, as a lawyer, comes down to context, okay? It's what is our context for this question? And I draw on the work of Marion Fremont Smith, who is the grandmother of non-profit regulation in the United States. She's now in her 90s, but she's still writing. She's an amazing woman. She wrote this over 20 years ago, 1995. And here's what Marion tells us, and this is very valuable. She says, effective regulation assures that the public that there is a mechanism in place by which government can compel compliance with a set of standards that we as a society agree should be observed by the entities that are subject to regulation. That for me is the really important bit. Those words that I've highlighted in red, yes, you can have regulation. Yes, that regulation can force you to do things if you're a regulated entity. But it's because we as a society decided that that was important. And this is where all of you come in. Because you have that we as a society moment at the moment. You are being asked what shape your charity act should take for the next 10, 20 years forward. And these are the issues you have put on the table as commanding your input. What should be the approach of regulation to each of these headings? Advocacy, and charitable trading, appeal rights, and registration and compliance, obligations of charities, the powers of the regulator, and Maori issues, how that affects your eating charities. All of those issues are on the table because you think they're important. Look at the issues you've left off. These are the issues you have not put on a table. And I'm not here as an outsider, but I'd be really interested to know whether it's because you all agreed that these were not important issues, or whether this is a conversation that you're going to have at a later date. So for me, when it comes to regulation, it is a triumvirate of scrutiny. The state cannot be the be-all, the end-all. It cannot regulate, nor should it regulate everything. We need that connectedness of state regulation, the public scrutiny of those they support, and charities peer-supporting others through self-regulation, watching out, following good practices from each other. That is so important because it links back to the two things I said at the start, the notion that our broad aim is to protect charitable assets and to protect the integrity of charitable status. And at the end of the day, we all have a responsibility around the stewardship of those assets. Regulation is just one of the tools that we use to get there. Many thanks. Thank you so much, Una. Doesn't matter how high, high the bar is set, Una always jumps over at the least. I'm going to ask Natasha now to come and speak and give her perspective again. Uh, 
te tōpoko i tēnei kaupapa. Ko te tari taiwhenua te tari, ko au te kaiwhakahaere o ngā rātonga kaupapa atawhai, ko Natasha Wai tōpo e noa. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā hoki tātou katoa. I'm Natasha Wai, as um, I've been introduced, General Manager for Charity Services, and I'm really pleased to be here today to talk about these really important issues for charities in New Zealand. So, uh, do charities need to be regulated? Yes, they do. Uh, but what else was I going to say? New Zealand doesn't want transparency in the charitable sector uh, and associate accountability. People want to know that the money and time they donate to charities is used for the benefit of the public. Uh, protecting charitable assets is, is how I'm described it. The government wants to influence the behaviour of charities to ensure that there is transparency, largely by requiring and supporting registered charities to file annual returns, but also by providing for the investigation and, uh, of charities when things go seriously wrong, and they sometimes do. It doesn't really matter if you call that regulation or not. If you want charities to report, and for someone to make sure that they do, I'll, I'll be frank, we don't live in a world where uh, all New Zealand charities will report just because they feel like it. Uh, and if you want uh, serious wrongdoing uh, to be investigated and those responsible to be held account, uh, to account, you, might, you, you want to regulate it. The vast majority, is, uh, vast majority of individuals and groups working within and with the charitable sector in New Zealand have the honest and good intention of making New Zealand better for New Zealanders. Um, I know that's the case for my team at Charity Services, who work hard to support the sector. Our vision at Charity Services is for a well-governed, transparent and thriving charitable sector that has strong public support. Together with the Independent Charities Registration Board, we are the Charities Regulator in New Zealand. For any sector to operate successfully in New Zealand or thrive, the trust and confidence of those who support it and rely upon it is essential. Last year, the charitable sector, that includes members of the public, was responsible for donating over $4 billion to registered charities. They also volunteered for over 1.5 million hours every week. Uh, for a country of our size, that, those numbers are phenomenal, right? Regular surveys have been conducted um, here and overseas into what is um, behind or what drives public trust and confidence in the charitable sector. These survey results show that um, one of the key drivers is the public knowing that charities are registered and that they're sufficiently regulated to ensure that they benefit the public. Trust and confidence, confidence is therefore not just about um, the sector and, and how it operates, but it's also about the system as a whole. In my view, an important uh, question to keep in mind is what does the public think? What do they want to see in relation to the valuable time and money they give to charities every day? Um, and their voices are often missing from the debate. A regulatory agency, as you can see there, uh, is defined quite widely, as, as Sue mentioned. Um, the question posed for this session is whether charities in New Zealand should be regulated, but they currently are. Um, Professor Urim um, gave you the broader context around what um, regulation is and has been over time. 
Um, but sh in short, here in Aotearoa, the government has set out some clear expectations for agencies that work in the regulatory space. Um, these expectations define the term regulated very broadly, including agencies that have a role in monitoring and administrating, uh, administering a regulatory system. Charity Services is part of an international charities regulators forum. When we met last year, uh, the forum included Scotland, Ireland, Northern Ireland, England and Wales, Australia, the United States, Singapore and for the first time, Jamaica. Um, and we do call ourselves regulators because we are. The word regulator isn't in every piece of legislation setting up these groups, but where government is trying to influence the behaviour of the group through a set of rules, that is regulation. One of the advantages of being classified as a regulator is that we fit into the broader government strategies that underpin regulation, um, including being responsive to the community and thinking carefully about how we work. Um, as a system to support the broader community. Our role at Charity Services is to implement the legal framework set by Parliament and developed and interpreted by the courts. Most of our decision making is delegated from, uh, to us by the Independent Charities Registration Board, uh, but any novel or contentious issues always go to the board and our functions and powers are set out under the Charities Act. The purposes of the Charities Act, including promoting public trust and confidence in the charitable sector and the effective use of charitable resources. All of our functions, registering charities, encouraging and monitoring compliance with reporting requirements, supporting and educating the sector, and investigating possible breaches of the Act or serious misconduct relating to charities. All of this is carried out with those in mind. My staff and I have been at the Charities Act Modernisation Workshops and we've been engaging with the sector user group for some time. I hear some concerns in the sector that are about our regulatory overreach, that is, that we're too focused on compliance and that there is disagreement between us and some in the sector about what we're trying to achieve. I want to reiterate that we are here to carry out the functions as set out in the Charities Act. We do this in good faith, guided by the board, the legal framework, court judgments and the government's expectations of us as a regulator. We apply skill and considered thought to our work, which for our registration team involves a really complex area of law, which many of you are quite aware of. We do have the capability to carry out our role. Um, I'll just give you an example, a random sample of the decisions we make um, in the registration space are reviewed each year by a, um, a an academic who is a specialist in charity law, and we get 100% in terms of our correctness of the application of that law. Uh, regulation today isn't like some of the scary stuff that you wrote described. It's not about being unnecessarily heavy-handed and, and tick box. It's about supporting a sector. You already talked about facilitating. Um, supporting a sector to meet their obligations, and that's what we aim to do. In doing our work, our goal is to be a modern, responsive, risk-based regulator. Modern in that we use technology and modern tools to help support our sector to comply with their obligations. Social media, webinars, the online register, online forms. Responsive, which involves us really trying to understand um, the environment that charities are working in, the challenges that they face, 
uh, and where possible uh, making changes or offering education and assistance to support them. Just by way of example, we recently had um, made a change to one of our processes where a charity changes its, its entity type, going from, for example, a, um, an unincorporated society to a, an incorporated charitable trust. So we re received direct fa feedback that our old process, which required a brand new application to be filed, was creating a really big administrative burden for these charities. So we changed our process, and now it's just a matter of updating entity details. That's, that's how we, we want and we do uh, be responsive. Our customer support and capability team spend a lot of time being responsive to the needs of the sector. They respond to thousands of emails and phone queries and develop resources aimed at helping the sector to meet their legal obligations. A key priority for this year is to support the sector to improve their governance capability. Um, again, this is in response to a need that we have identified um, in the sector and through the work that our team does on a daily basis. And risk-based risk -based means we focus on things that could harm public trust and confidence in the sector and the effective use of charitable resources. Things like fraud, serious mismanagement and significant or persistent non-compliance uh, which is the key focus of our investigations team. The current Charities, Charities Act modernisation project is a fantastic opportunity to examine the role of the regulator being carried out by the department's policy group. Everyone here will have a different perspective on what an ideal deal regulator could or should look like. And I think the quality and value of any legislative review relies on submissions that re represent the sector in all its diversity of people and thought. I encourage you to make a submission and to encourage your clients to do the same based on your experience. The charitable sector in New Zealand does need to be regulated. Charity services as a regulator educates and supports charities to get registered, to file their financial accounts. We take action when uh, we reports aren't filed and we investigate when things go seriously wrong, which they sometimes do. If you want these things to be done, you want to, our charities regulated. Regulation in the New Zealand registered charities context isn't unnecessarily heavy-handed, but it ensures registered charities are transparent. If the New Zealand charities regulator or any charities regulator changed their name, would it make a difference? Isn't it less about labels and more about substance? What do you want that substance to look like? What do you want us to be doing? What do your clients want? What, do the, what does the public want? I think those are the really important questions. Thank you. Kia ora koutou. Thank you, Natasha. Um, uh, as you were speaking, I was um, thinking about just how great it is that in conversations about whether charities should be regulated in New Zealand, uh, we have exchanges between the regulator itself uh, and academics and members of the sector and professional advisors and so on. We shouldn't forget how valuable that is, that the regulator is here and participating in the events of today. Now, that brings me to our last, but certainly not our least speaker, Miles McGregor-Lowndes. Um, so, Miles, would you like to come take the podium?
Thank you very much. Um, my thunder's already been stolen by these speakers. I mean, even showing you were the promo in the book. It's, it's all gone, folks. I've questioned down. <laughs> questions. But I get a, I've got a pretty some sort of vestige of, of why uh, I'm here. Um, Sue gave me the writing instructions uh, that uh, she was particularly taken by the first chapter in the book, which was written by uh, the former commissioner of the Charity Commissioner of England and Wales during the 90s, Richard Fryce, a real um, gentleman. And what we uh, set out to do in the book was to get regulators to tell their story, their narrative, um, and you know what was it like being a regulator and what were the issues which were for them. And so it was really about um, telling stories. And then we had a, a sector representative uh, from the jurisdiction who'd also been intimately involved, you know, on the other side, uh, keep them honest and tell the sector side of the story. Well, we had some differences, and I must say that New Zealand was the most stark um, between Trevor Garrett telling his side of the story and uh, Sue telling the other side of the story, and though some of the narratives were just irreconcilable. Um, so it makes interesting, uh, interesting uh, reading. But uh, uh, what is regulation? We had an excellent uh, 4,000 year overview, which was just uh, marvellous. But let me just um, uh, try and summarise um, that in my words. Um, we've come from regulation being regarded as a sort of a, a functional definition of being a control system where there's standard setting. There's information gathering, and then there's behaviour modification. And that's uh, what we would align now as a pretty narrow definition on the spectrum of, of regulation. They're deliberate attempts by the state to influence socially valuable behaviours which have adverse side effects by establishing monitoring and enforcing by legal rules. The state having a monopoly on coercive uh, powers in the main, there are penalties. So command and control uh, with a penalty at the end. A more broad definition of, of uh, regulation, and there's any number of positions in between, is that regulation encompasses all forms of social control, intentional or not, imposed by the state or by other social institutions. The functional and the narrow definition has been challenged in our modern societies by a number of factors. Let me just uh, identify a few. <coughs> in the first definition, the state is the primary focus. We now have lots of other bodies that effectively regulate behaviour. Self-regulation. And Una edited an artist's book called Regulatory Waves, which did a comparative analysis around the world of self-regulation in the non-profit sector. And that's just, just one other type of uh, tool of regulation. We have the media. When I talk to uh, charities in, in Australia, uh, who do they most fear, the ACNC or the media? Um, they most fear an expose on four corners or on the front page uh, rather than the ACNC. It has something to do with the ACNC and its privacy uh, constraints. But even then, I think they uh, uh, fear the media and being uh, brought into that forum of accountability. <coughs> so the state has lost its primary focus. 
the hierarchical state citizen relationship, which is a hierarchy, top-down control, that, that is, has metamorphosed. There's, there are now overlapping uh, relationships uh, and relationships, and it's, it's no longer central. There was once, thirdly, there was once the centrality of rules, command and control, we saw that in the earlier codes. Uh, we now have a whole uh, plethora of other ways of regulating and being uh, accountable. Um, and then fourthly, I think there's the focus on costs, particularly with government agencies, wherever they be. It's all about being cheaper, better, and faster. And command and control is pretty, um, is pretty costly uh, type of regulation. Uh, I illustrated uh, by uh, a regulator being a sumo wrestler or a jiu-jitsu exponent. A sumo wrestler is, you know, like myself, lots of cloth to clothe, um, expensive eating habits, large bed, um, and then you don't get too much work out of them. They may waddle into the ring, uh, they find some opponent, they don't spend too much energy and they go plop. Uh, and the poor unfortunate underneath is absolutely squashed out of existence to be scraped uh, from the from the floor. They're very expensive, slow to act, and it's a show trial once every once in a while. The jiu-jitsu regulator um, is lean, thin, lean, thin, lean, hungry, um, cheap to uh, house and clothe. Uh, small in stature, but they know the leverage points of their quarry. They know the pressure points. They know the levers to pull, uh, and they can uh, uh, they can uh, modify behaviour with minimum of effort and cost. And so, what we're doing is finding a transition in many places uh, to jiu-jitsu uh, regulators rather than uh, sumo wrestlers. The other thing I've noted in this whole area of regulation. Uh, is that uh, it's a multidisciplinary game now. Uh, quite rightly, um, Ayers and Braithwaite, I don't know why John Braithwaite didn't get a, a um, Nobel Prize for his writing. So, yeah, I mean, it's just as good as Stigler and some of the, the economists. It really is quite revolutionary. That it's, you know, it's the behaviour that matters, stupid. Um, and uh, we know that, you know, uh, going out there and saying, putting heads on sticks or... Death penalties um, has some effect, but it's not as effective as others, and the jiu-jitsu exponent um, has um, shown that. There are many insights now from economics, particularly where the market is part of the regulatory pattern. Uh, criminology, um, uh, the behavioralist and socialist uh, sciences, there are many different levers uh, that can now be used in order to, uh, uh, in order to uh, to affect uh, the uh, regulation. Now, just just to uh, Sue was talking about Richard Fryce. He was a uh, he was a public servant who was in the Home Office uh, during the late eighties, uh, and uh, he in fact um, uh, supervised uh, was the linchpin between the Charity Commission and the government. Uh, and in uh, 91, there was the Woodfield Commission, and uh, that brought down a report, and then he became the commissioner from 92 to 99. 
And what Suze was, uh, was referring to was that he quite clearly said in his chapter and during the, uh, the, uh, uh, his climate culture setting in the Commission whilst he was there, this is not about regulation, this is not about central uh, planning, this is not about interfering in the soul of charities. But uh, that didn't mean that it was um, uh, Rafferty's rules. Uh, the Charity Commission then had taken over uh, in the 60s the quasi-judicial uh, role, uh, which the courts had just become too slow, cumbersome, costly, detailed, and, and they were brought in to, um, to provide a, uh, a different level of service, which was more efficient, other than the slow Dixonian equity courts. Um, he was uh, a wise to the uh, new, uh, new ways of regu regulating in the 90s. He talks about, uh, really it was about explanatory accountability, creating a forum for charities to be held accountable, not just by uh, a regulator, uh, by, but by others. Openness, he said openness about the body, its activities, finances, governance, retains its, in its independence, but within the law. Um, so it really wasn't uh, saying it's, uh, we don't need a regulator at all, we need a certain uh, type of, uh, type of uh, regulator. Uh, uh, here we have uh, Ayers Braithwaite Regulatory Pyramid and the ACNC uh, at its very foundation in its first regulatory statement. Uh, Valerie Braithwaite, partner of John Braithwaite, uh, helped uh, define that regulatory pyramid. Now, basically is that to change behaviours, you've got to have the right attitude, the right levers uh, to where the, um, where the poor opponent or client uh, is at. So at one level it is, um, it is education, at the top where people are just not listening um, and there are, uh, there are real antisocial problems, uh, there are co coercive um, powers. But what regulators have is a, if I can go back, yep, has a, um, a range of tools uh, these days to um, exercise uh, in getting people to change their behaviours. And there's Braithwaite um, set out the, some of the tools. Um, there's self-regulation, as I've said, that Una has um, said. There's co-regulation, there's hybrid regulation, there's market. There's modelling behaviour. I think this is really important by uh, regulators. They model the behaviour that they want from, from the regulatees. Um, so if they're not accountable, uh, if they're not transparent in their annual reports, uh, if they're not transparent when they're called to account, um, it makes it difficult because people can, can smell hypocrisy uh, at a long distance. Um, and those are the examples uh, of the new new way of pulling levers. So the, the real trick of regulators is to pull the right lever at the right time for the right group of people. It's no good going to tickle um, the big commercial banks in Australia as certain royal commissions have found. It doesn't work. Uh, you've got to go to the top of the tree. Um, the other thing that I'll just quickly mention here is that um, the Ayers and Braithwaite does have some downsides. It's not all upside. Because you are um, they would ask you to be um, close to your uh, quarry. 
uh, to your opponents, um, that you will often come from the sector and there'll be a revolving door of agencies. It does promote capture, that is the regulator becomes captured by the sector and, and used for its purposes, uh, and corruption. Uh, and they are two um, quite serious issues that uh, you want to, uh, want to be very wary of, of setting out um, any regulatory uh, regime. Finally, I'd like to uh, close with, yeah, this, uh, I got this off the internet, I can't quite, Gary, have you seen it before? No. <laughs> uh, okay, it was certainly circling around uh, at Australia Day. In Australia, the ACNC has become famous for telling people to um, swim between the flags, um, uh, and particularly in relation to political advocacy. Uh, say, you know, you've got the freedom uh, to do things, but provided that you swim between the flags and, and uh, we, we've set where the flags are, uh, if you can find them. Um, it's, a, it's a metaphor, and I think it's a, in one sense it's been a great metaphor because in Australia everybody knows that, you know, when you're talking about swimming between the flags, it's, it's, it's about um, uh, charity. But uh, I'd just like you to... Um, look at this metaphor in a different way. I think the question that Sue and others here are facing is that not from uh, the regulatee's perspective, but in respect of the regulator, where are the flags placed for the regulator? What is the space where they get to uh, regulate and in what way? Um, and what, what uh, where, who places the flags there? Once they're placed, what is outside the regulator's jurisdiction so they can be a call uh, to account uh, for interfering in areas which are, uh, should not be uh, interfered with or best left uh, to others. So do, regulate, do charities need to be regulated? Uh, well, um, they are. Uh, but the question is uh, how and uh, for what ends? Thanks very much, Miles. Uh, you've given us now two vivid frames of reference for thinking through some of these questions. One is the sumo or the jiu-jitsu. The other is the flags. So I expect we'll be coming back to those concepts throughout the, the day. Now, uh, we have 20 odd minutes for questions. Uh, so, for those who are able to get to the back of the room, to the microphones, now is the time to do so and to ask your questions. Uh, if anyone can't, for one reason or another, get to the back of the room, just raise your hand and uh, shout out your question. Um, and while, uh, while I'm waiting for people to get to the back of the room, perhaps I'll get to be started by asking a couple of questions of my own. Um, the next session was our keynote speaker, Jennifer Petruni, QC, and she was talking about charity litigation costs and how to prove public benefit. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Uh, thank you very much for having me to address you at this wonderful conference. It's great to be back here. I won't be talking much about the costs of charity litigation. I think it's everybody in this room knows that it's very expensive. Um, as Miles said, uh, sumo wrestlers don't come cheap. But I would like to talk about 
how to prove public benefit. A lot of what we'll talk about in this conference in the next couple of days will be about how important public benefit is. But as a barrister and as a barrister representing charities, I'm at the pointy end of how I actually get a judge to agree that whatever entity is, is actually doing something that is in the public benefit. And the reason I wanted to start with this paper is to pick up with, uh, from Justice Ellis's paper that she delivered at this conference last year. Um, her Honour, in her paper, emphasised the importance of evidence in charity cases. As a preliminary matter, can I note that in most cases, the onus will be on the party claiming to be a charitable entity to prove it. Certainly in Australia, all revenue statutes place a burden of proof on the taxpayer. And the general rule of proof is that all facts in issue or relevant to the issue in a given case must be proved by evidence, testimony, admissible hearsay, documents, things or relevant facts. Two exceptions to this rule are that no evidence is required of facts that are formally admitted by the parties or of which judicial notice can be taken. In this paper, I explore the concept of proving public benefit in charity cases and the role of judicial notice in proving public benefit. I note that an important aspect of the requirement to prove public benefit is the so-called presumptions of public benefit in relation to one or more of the four heads of charity. However, the operation and scope of those presumptions is beyond the scope of this paper. One of the more quirky charity cases, and I have to say one of my favourites, is Reed Pleasance. In Reed Pleasance, the wonderful testator left money to provide, and I quote, a penny worth of sweets each for all boys and girls below the age of 14 resident within the parish. Despite the faint argument that in the context of the will, the testator meant the gift to be only for those children attending school, and therefore the gift was one to advance education, um, <laughs> the, court held the gift was not charitable. However, Justice Russell, as he then was, said in relation to a different gift, the gift to provide prizes for the best kept gardens and cottages, however, was one to promote a rivalry, the result of which would be an improvement in horticulture and good house wittery. Such a gift was a good charitable gift, as it was one for the benefit of the community. There didn't seem to me to be any evidence there um, in the case as to why the gift was for the benefit of the community, except perhaps that it could be inferred from the reference to the promotion of horticulture. In the Williams trustee case, Lord Simmons pointed out that not every object of public utility must necessarily be charitable. Some may be, and some may not be. Williams concerned a trust with objects to promote Welsh interests in London by social intercourse. The activities of the club included badminton and table tennis, a weekly social and dance, a music club, and whist and bridge drives. Lord Simmons noted that while it was claimed that the objects were of benefit to the community, 
it was not alleged that the trust was beneficial in a way the law regards as charitable. Therefore, he held that the case had to fail, as the trustees had addressed only one of the two stages of the test. It has been said that the somewhat circular requirement that to be charitable, a purpose must be beneficial in a way which the law regards as charitable, reflects and restates the requirement that the purpose must be within the spirit and intendment of the preamble. In the National Anti-Vivisection case, the House of Lords considered whether a society formed for the suppression of vivisection was charitable. Lord Simmons noted that even in the, in the case of the first three heads of charity, the overriding question remains, is it for the public benefit? The question is to be answered by the court forming an opinion upon the evidence before it. The test or standard by which the question is answered was articulated as follows. It does not depend upon the view entertained by any individual, either by the judge who is to decide the question or by the person who makes the gift. There is probably no purpose that all men would agree is beneficial to the community but there are surely many purposes which everybody would admit are generally so regarded, although individuals might differ as to their expediency or utility. The test or standard is to be found in this common understanding. His Lordship was at pains to point out that in determining whether a purpose was charitable, the court must take into account any evidence of injury to the community even in relation to a purported gift for the relief of the poor. He said if today a testator made a request for the relief of the poor and required that it should be carried out in one way only and the court was satisfied by evidence that that way was injurious to the community, I should say that it was not a charitable gift. I think in that case he had in mind some form of the, the gift causing some sort of welfare dependency. As I said, while it's beyond the scope of this paper to trace all the cases dealing with public benefit, one, I can't uh, pass by Gilmore and Coates, where Lord Simmons again returned to this theme in holding that it had not been established that the trust governing a gift to a community of cloistered nuns gave rise to the requirement of public, the element of public benefit, which is a necessary condition of legal charity. He said in that case, the trustees relied first and foremost on the Catholic belief in the intercessory value of prayer, and secondly, on evidence given by Cardinal Griffin that the practice of religious life by the Carmelite nuns was a source of great edification to other Catholics. Lord Simmons attributed little weight to this evidence, saying, but my lords, whether I believe or disbelieve, what has that to do with the proof the court demands that a particular purpose satisfies the test of benefit to the community? Here is something which is manifestly not susceptible of proof. But then it is said, it is matter not of proof, but of belief. The faithful must embrace their faith, believing where they cannot prove. The court can only act on proof.
So far as the claim of edification by example, Lord Simmons held that this was something too vague and intangible, indirect, remote, imponderable and controversial to satisfy the public benefit test. It has been said that the public benefit test is a quantitative test, but the question remains as to what sort of evidence is required to prove public benefit. The question is not easily answered. Often the courts seek to resolve the issue by recourse to judicial notice. Judicial notice is a concept now form formalised in the Uniform Evidence Acts, which states that proof is not required about knowledge that is not reasonably open to question and is common knowledge in the locality in which the proceeding is being held or generally. The judge may acquire knowledge of that kind in any way the judge thinks fit. So you don't need to prove the sun's going to come up in the morning. In the law reports case, the issue was whether the publication of law reports was charitable. Chief Justice Barwick referred to evidence that had been given by Professor Godhart in the UK equivalent case at first instance regarding the history of judge-made law. He held that this evidence was a useful summary of the development of the law, sorry, the development of law reports and the place they occupied in the administration of the law. He held that the facts to which the professor referred were historical and of that notoriety which brought them within judicial notice. He went on to hold that the production of law reports was clearly beneficial to the whole community because of the universal importance of maintaining the socially sustaining fabric of the law. Judicial notice also played an important part in the Victorian Women Lawyers case. In that case, Victorian Women Lawyers argued that the court should take judicial notice of the disadvantage of women in society and of women practitioners in the legal profession. <coughs> Justice French, as he then was, noted that this disadvantage may be characterised broadly as a social fact of which the court could take judicial notice. He said the social fact propounded was the historical and persisting disadvantage of women in relation to their participation and career advancement within the legal profession. I'm prepared to take judicial notice of it. It informs the consideration of whether the Victorian women lawyers met the public benefit requirement of the common understanding of a charitable institution. Following on from the VWL case, the issue of public benefit arose in the Chamber of Commerce and Industry Western Australia case. In that case, the evidence tendered comprised over 4,000 pages of evidence. In addition, CCI led oral evidence from one of its senior staff members and tendered a book entitled The CCI Story. Can I just say it's always easy to prove public benefit when there's a book? Write <laughs> <laughs> the history. Justice Cheney held that taken as a whole, the materials before the tribunal support the view that the driving force of CCI's operations is the promotion of a strong business community in Western Australia. In CCI's case, there is no doubt that the organisation plays a significant role in support for the business community generally, and its constitutional objects are directed to that end. In stark contrast, in the South Australian CCI case, um, a similar entity to the CCIWA failed to establish that it was a charitable entity. In discussing the effectiveness of the evidence, 
Justice Blue noted that usually the most probative evidence of the purpose of an activity will be the evidence of its effect. He referred to the High Court decision in Word Investments, where they in turn referred to the Baptist Union case, where it was said by Justice McDermott, the charitable purpose of a trust is often, and perhaps more often than not, to be found in the natural and probable consequences of the trust, rather than in its immediate and expressed objects. Similarly, the charitable purposes of a company can be found in the purpose of bringing about the natural and probable consequence of its immediate and expressed purposes. And its charitable activities can be found in the natural and probable consequences of its immediate activities. His Honour went on to note what evidence would and would not be relevant to ascertaining the purpose of an entity. He said evidence of an institution's formal objects, activities, decision-making, transactions, financial position and performance, minutes of meetings and of other objective material is admissible to ascertain its purpose. Evidence of the internal thoughts and intentions of individual members or directors of the body not communicated to and shared by the members of the board of the institution is not ordinarily admissible. He found that having regard to the evidence adduced in the case and the onus of proof, he was not persuaded that the purpose of South Australian CCI was a charitable purpose of advancing trade and commerce, but was rather the non-charitable purpose of advancing the interests of businesses in South Australia. He said, having regard to all of the evidence adduced, I find that the Chamber's primary purpose was to advance the interests of businesses in South Australia, and that its purpose of advancing trade and commerce was secondary to that primary purpose. In any event, as the onus of proof lies on the Chamber, <coughs> I am not satisfied on the evidence adduced that its dominant purpose in undertaking policy advocacy was to advance trade and commerce. In relation to the CCIWA case and the apparently inconsistent decision reached in that case, His Honour said, without being privy to all the evidence and arguments adduced in the Western Australia case, the fact that Justice Cheney reached a different conclusion in respect of the WA Chamber to the conclusion I have reached in respect of the Chamber in South Australia does not cause me to doubt my own conclusion. The Chamber fails not because it's not possible that policy advocacy activities by a Chamber of Commerce may be for the dominant purpose of advancing trade and commerce, but rather because it has failed to prove that they are in the case of the Chamber. The issue of proving public benefit also arose in the grain growers case. Grain growers was an industry association of grain growers which claimed to be charitable on the basis that its purpose was to promote agriculture. The Chief Commissioner of State Revenue disputed this and claimed that it is accepted as a matter of generality that the promotion of agriculture may be charitable, but the manner in which the object is sought to be achieved needs to be looked at. And where part of the manner or activity involve promotion of individual businesses, the Chief Commissioner contended that the public benefit is too remote because at its core, the entity is promoting individual businesses, even if that might have a flow-on effect to the community generally. And secondly, the Chief Commissioner claimed that however, in a given case, if proved by evidence, 
the benefit may be sufficiently tangible and clear, clearly definable to bring it within the fourth head of charity and to do so by the means by which the claim to public benefit is sought to be achieved. But in the absence of such evidence, the Chief Commissioner said the court is not in a position to conclude that public benefit has been established. The Chief Commissioner's submission was not acceptable. Justice Black, we've got a theory here, a theme here, Justice Blue, <coughs> Justice Black. <laughs> the night before the, the um, grain growers case was to be heard, it was to be heard by Justice White. <laughs> I'm not kidding. The night before we were told, no, Justice Black's here. This is a black and white case. <laughs> so Justice Black said, the, the proposition that the promotion of agriculture is, is a charitable purpose has been accepted in the case law for a considerable peer period on the basis identified in the law reports case by reference to the fundamental social quality associated with agricultural activities. It seems to me that I can, without specific proof, infer that agricultural activity benefits society generally and Australian agricultural activity benefits Australian society general, generally and no evidence was led to suggest that the benefit that has previously existed in such activity has ceased to exist. There is also some evidence of the value of the grain industry to the Australian economy in Miss Garden's affidavit, including that Australia is a significant exporter of grains. There are approximately 24,000 grain farmers, of which approximately 18,500 are members of grain growers, and that the Australian grains industry contributes approximately $15 billion to Australia's exports and approximately $26 billion to Australia's GDP gross domestic product. More recently, the Supreme Court of Victoria has relied on judicial notice to find that the telecommunication industry ombudsman was a charitable institution. In that case, Justice Croft noted the submission that he should take judicial notice of the social fact that a telecommunications service provider, and in particular the large providers such as Telstra, Optus and Vodafone, enjoy far greater bargaining power than a residential or small business consumer in the event of a dispute. He held, it would have to be said that anyone would have led a very cloistered life in modern times not to appreciate the enormous importance the telecommunications industry, both to business and to individuals, and the inevitable power imbalance that does exist between individual consumers and small businesses in dealing with corporations the size of the larger telecommunications service providers. These matters are clearly ones of which judicial notice should be taken. And again, in the Rotary case, Justice Croft again took judicial notice of evidence given in the Royal Commission into Misconduct in the Banking, Superannuation and Financial Services Industry, the Hain Royal Commission, in order to recognise the need for charity law to evolve in the light of an increasing need for ethical conduct on the part of businesses and professions. He said this material is directly relevant in the context of evaluating the ever-evolving field of purposes which fall within the spirit and intent of the preamble. His honour concluded that although the promotion of ethics is plainly not a fifth head of charity and it is necessary that public benefit be established, 
it is not necessary that such public benefit be proved in a strict sense. He referred to the grain growers case, where it was said that the fundamental social quality of the purpose sufficed to establish that the community would benefit from the pursuit of the purpose. He said on the basis of the preceding reading reasons, particularly the common sense position that the improvement of ethical standards amongst a group of business people and professionals will benefit the community. I'm satisfied that the community does benefit from the applicant's pursuit of the purpose. In this conference last year, Justice Ellis noted in her paper that the question of whether or not an entity exists for the requisite public benefit is essentially a question of fact. She said that ordinarily courts require facts to be established by proof. But she said it has been long been accepted that some truths in relation to public benefit are self-evident and so do not need to be the subject of additional or traditional proof. She referred to the Scottish Burial Society case where Lord Wilberforce noted the respondent's argument that the society had not shown the necessary basis of fact and that the society should have proved that their burial services were more inexpensive and more sanitary than the normal methods of burial. He rejected that and said all the society had to show was that the provision of inexpensive and sanitary methods of burial and of cremation in particular were for the benefit of the community. As to this, he found that the facts speak for themselves. The scale on which the company's services were resorted to clearly showed that they met a need of the public, and it can hardly be said that to meet a need of this character is not beneficial. So again, we see a form of resort to judicial notice there. Justice Ellis cautioned about judges forming their own personal ideas about what might be of benefit to the public, and said in some cases, particularly what she referred to as value-laden cases, such as the Family First case, the analysis required can only be based on evidence. In the Family First case, the court pointed out that establishing a public benefit has always been a hurdle for those whose primary purpose is solely to promote a cause. Justice Simon France noted that advocacy is all Family First does and referred to the decision of the New Zealand Supreme Court, should I say the beloved uh, decision of the New Zealand Supreme Court in Greenpeace, where the court noted that the advancement of causes will often, and perhaps most often, be non-charitable. His honour referred back to the decision in Mahoy, where the Court of Appeal observed that where the public issue being advocated for is one on which there is clearly a division of public opinion, capable of resolution only by legislative action, this indicates that the court cannot determine where the public good lies and that the issue is relevantly political in character. His Honour noted that there are some purposes, the very advocacy for which will be regarded as charitable, namely the promotion of human rights and the protection of the environment. These are assessed as both being in the public benefit and analogous to a cause previously recognised as charitable, the abolition of slavery. 
However, he said, the occasions where advocacy is itself a charitable purpose are, he noted, likely to be rare. His Honour concluded that the evidence in the case did not establish that the achievement of the goals of Family First would be a benefit to the community in the sense required by charity. In conclusion, I wonder if any evidence will ever be sufficient to prove public benefit in cases where the purpose of the entity in question is pure advocacy and the public opinion on the merits of the issue advocated for is fundamentally divided. The position in Australia might well be different. In, the, in Aidwatch, the High Court firstly held that, that there was no prohibition on political objects being charitable, and secondly, held that the Australian Constitution enshrines a right to public debate, and that this leads to the conclusion that at least in relation to the first three heads of charity, advocacy in and of itself can be charitable. Thank you very much. Next was session two with Sari Baird, Peter Gunn, John Hancock, Matthew Harding, Jane Norton, and the moderator was Jennifer Gill. The topic was advocacy, are charities able to advocate against government policy? So we have a very good panel and uh, I'd just like to invite um, Jennifer Gill from Foundation North, who's going to be the moderator for this panel to uh, come up and she will introduce the panelists. <laughs> charities and, and not-for-profits, and that's already been addressed today, I think. 
So what I'm going to do is, is briefly introduce all of the speakers and then we will crank on into the panel. Um, there are detailed descriptions of them in your, in your booklet, so I'm not going to tell you their life story. I'm just going to tell you what their titles are. So you've already met Matthew this morning, Professor Matthew Harding from the um, University of Melbourne, Deputy Dean of the Melbourne Law School. And then we have Peter Gunn, who is a Crown Counsel, leading the team responsible for constitutional and human rights at Crown Law. Jane Norton, Senior Lecturer at the University of Auckland Faculty of Law. John Hancock, Senior Legal Advisor at the New Zealand Human Rights Commission. And Sari Baird, who's on the ground with a charity, General Counsel at Oxfam Australia. So with no further ado, I'll ask Matthew to kick this discussion off. Thanks, Jennifer. Okay, seven minutes I'm going to talk quickly. Uh, are a ch a charities able to advocate against government policy? The other speakers are going to bring a range of perspectives to bear on this question, informed by legal developments in New Zealand and elsewhere. I want to start by going back to basics. Uh, the key question of charity law is the question of public benefit. So I want to ask the question, do charities advocating against government policy generate public benefit? This question nests within a broader question, whether charities pursuing political purposes of all types generate public benefit. Now, as we know, in New Zealand, the answer to this question is, it depends. Uh, Greenpeace and Family First illustrate that very well. The question of public benefit here depends on the political end sought to be achieved, the means adopted to achieve that end, and the manner in which those means are carried out. Under current New Zealand law, some political purposes do generate public benefit in light of inquiries into ends, means and, and manner. Others, Jennifer says, many, perhaps most, perhaps all others, do not. The bar is set higher, especially in the case of controversial political purposes, which a purpose entailing advocacy against government policy is very likely to be. In Australia, thanks to the High Court's decision in Aidwatch, the answer to the question do charities pursuing political purposes generate public benefit is yes in a relatively wide class of cases. In my view, the key to understanding the Australian position is to see that in Aidwatch, the High Court recognised that the political purposes of charities generate public benefit because of the contribution they make to a certain kind of political culture, one in which people freely express and urge political views on a range of matters relating to law and government policy. On this view, with very limited exceptions, political purposes contribute to the relevant political culture irrespective of the particular ends they seek or the means or manners they adopt. Why is a political culture of free political expression of public benefit? Here, we need to think deeply about the demands of democracy itself. And the philosophical work on democracy, at least in the liberal tradition of thinking about representative democracy, uh, shows us that democracy demands that members of parliament and their advisers and other key staff achieve some sufficient degree of awareness of the interests and preferences of citizens and some sufficient degree of responsiveness to those interests and preferences uh, in law and policy making. A culture of free political expression is one in which citizens can make politicians aware of their interests and preferences and encourage, urge, and in some cases even compel those politicians to respond accordingly. 
So in this way, political culture of free political expression is of public benefit in a representative democracy. This proposition is what the High Court of Australia confirmed in AIDWASH, uh, and in doing so, it appealed to the requirements of the Australian Constitution in establishing a system of democratic and representative government. And to speak plainly, I don't think the proposition can be seriously questioned by any person committed to democratic government. So we might go even further. Advocating against government policy is an especially important contributor to this kind of political culture that I'm talking about. If everyone was out there in the political world arguing and trying to persuade people that the government was doing the right thing, then this would hardly conduce to government coming to know and respond to alternative points of view about what government was doing. I've just come here from Singapore, a one-party state in which the government sets a national agenda that everyone is expected to get on board with. There is not a political culture in Singapore in which the government's agenda can be challenged and alternatives seriously debated publicly. This is one powerful reason why we are uneasy calling Singapore a democracy, even though regular parliamentary elections are held. We might go even further still. While advocating against government policy contributes to a political culture that supports democracy, no matter who's doing the advocacy, and for instance, such advocacy might and indeed routinely is carried out by rival political parties, there is a special further contribution that charities tend to make. Charities often advocate against government policy on behalf of those who have no voice of their own. The homeless, the disabled, children, the elderly, etc. These voices are often not otherwise heard by government. Children, and at least some disabled people, cannot even vote, for instance. So in a world where the voices of the rich and the powerful are mobilised and heard by government in a range of effective ways, it is critical that the voices of the poor and the powerless, including the disenfranchised, cut through as well. Can charities help to do this? So for all these reasons, I think there's a really strong case for thinking that charities advocating against government policy generate public benefit by contributing to democracy. However, this proposition is subject to qualifications, and while the qualifications shouldn't distract us from seeing the truth in the proposition, they do need to be taken into account in order to see the full picture. Let me take you through four. One, plutocracy. Charities can increasingly do serve the interests of the rich and the powerful who seek to influence politics. The example of foundations being used to this end in the USA is instructive. Where charities are used not to bring government into contact with a range of views and interests that challenge its position, but to seek disproportionate influence for the views and interests of plutocrats, then we have a problem. Two, elections. The state quite properly restricts and controls the political speech of all persons and associations in society when general elections are called. This is proper. It's designed not to ensure government responsiveness to citizens, but rather that citizens vote with knowledge of their true options and are able to make informed and deliberate choices. Three, anti-democratic advocacy. Remember that the public benefit of charity advocacy uh, against, uh, against government policy is found in a contribution to democratic culture. Advocacy that seeks to undermine such a culture cannot generate the requisite public benefit. Here I think ends, means and manners do come into view. The charity that argues against women's participation in public life, or that some classes of society should not enjoy the civil rights of others, or that issues hate-filled, bigoted speech that causes citizens to withdraw from public life out of fear, does not generate the requisite public benefit and should not be recognised as charitable. In the marketplace of ideas, there are limits, and these are set with reference to core liberal democratic values. 
and finally, gimmicks and sound bites. In a media-driven world, some charities may wish to engage in advocacy against government policy that's presented not in reasoned argument, but rather by gimmicks and sound bites and stunts. That's how AidWatch operated. Can charities contribute to the public benefit of democratic political culture in this way? Well, I think the answer to that question depends on the prevailing public culture, and if it's a culture in which that's the only way you're going to get your message through, then perhaps that's what's required. Protesters and demonstrators know the truth of this. Uh, so I hope these comments help to frame our thinking about this question of charity advocacy against government policy as we work through that question in this session. Thank you. <coughs> much and um, uh, congratulate the organisers of this conference on their initiative and hard work. I think last year's conference was a great opportunity to debate these issues and to share some different perspectives. So I welcome this year's uh, opportunity to do the same. I, uh, from a legal perspective, I should also note that I'm pleased to be on a panel with Jane Norton. Uh, her 2018 Law Journal article I think was cited in the Family First uh, case and was mentioned as a helpful summary of the key principles in the area. Unfortunately, it came too late for me in the presentation of the arguments in that case, but it is an excellent article which I do recommend um, as being well worth a read. I've been set a, a challenging task. I am uh, tasked with explaining the Supreme Court's Greenpeace decision and the Family Court uh, High Court decision, uh, the High Court uh, Family First decision, and to do all that in less than seven minutes. And if I fail, I face a taser from the panel chair. <laughs> Instructions like that certainly focus the mind. Um, I will attempt um, a, a little bit of an essay into that area, but as people will appreciate, it's a fairly broad topic. Um, I was counsel in Greenpeace, and I was also. Um, in Family First. So I thought we could usefully discuss um, Family First in particular and some of the factual background in that case. It was touched on uh, by Jennifer earlier, um, but uh, I will go into a little bit more detail about uh, the relevant facts. The High Court was looking at Family First and, and uh, for, particularly for those uh, people from Australia perhaps who may not be familiar with the organisation, Family First is an organisation which is founded on the principle that society would be a better place if the traditional family unit was accorded primacy and support. And Family First seeks to convince others of this viewpoint in various ways. It uh, does um, uh, seminars, it produces material, it lobbies, and it organises conferences and um, argues for and against law changes sometimes in support of the status quo, sometimes against the status quo. Family First was originally registered as a charity, but after a reconsideration of its purposes and activities, uh, the Charities Board, may have been the Charities Commission at that stage, decided to deregister it on the basis that it did not exist solely for charitable purposes. Now, as this audience well knows, an entity can be registered as a charity if its purposes are exclusively charitable and in New Zealand it's for the benefit of the public. A charitable purpose falls uh, under one of the four heads of charity 
relief of poverty, advancement of education, advancement of religion, or any other matter beneficial to the community. And it's obviously that fourth head that was substantially uh, up for argument in the family first case. Now, under the Greenpeace uh, rationale, for an entity to fall under the purposes of beneficial to the community head um, ground, it must be sufficiently similar, not necessarily identical, to a purpose that has previously been ex accepted as charitable. And that's, uh, as I say, stems from Greenpeace. The um, Supreme Court justified, um, at least in part, the um, need for analogy to a previous charitable purpose on the basis that that was the safer policy since charitable uh, status has significant fiscal consequences. Now, uh, I think probably the majority, if not everybody in the audience here today would agree with that. Um, not everybody in the audience would necessarily agree with that as a rationale for the Greenpeace decision, I suspect. Now, before Greenpeace, the law in New Zealand in relation to uh, political purposes, very straightforward. If you had a primary purpose which was political, you couldn't be a charity. And that was because political purposes were not traditionally regarded as charitable. I hasten to say in this context, as most people will be aware, political doesn't mean just party political, it's um, advocating for changes to law or government policy more generally. So pre-Greenpeace, you couldn't be charitable unless your advocacy was only incidental to your primary charitable purpose. The Greenpeace said no, uh, that's um, not um, uh, the law anymore, and um, you don't have to have, uh, there is no rationale for a political purpose exclusion. And, and as Jennifer mentioned earlier, there were examples of advocacy purposes that could be regarded as charitable, promotion of human rights and the protection of the environment being two. But it was clear from Greenpeace that not much had changed. The Greenpeace Supreme Court looked at Malloy, which was a 1981 case on um, the um, abortion rights arguments, and confirmed that the advocacy in that case would still not be charitable because it was not possible to demonstrate public benefit. So the Family First decision, I think, um, follows very much in the tradition of Greenpeace and um, Malloy, and um, unusually, perhaps in one analysis, thought that if Family First's purposes were to promote the role of the family simpliciter, rather than the traditional family, which is what uh, family First is all about, it might be considered charitable, but its advocacy of uh, the traditional family unit wasn't uh, able to be regarded as analogous with a charitable purpose. Part of the rationale for that, the court looked at um, Family First's um, policies on marriage and said to the extent that that involved a law change which would favour the traditional family unit, that would, on its face, in fact, run counter to human rights law, which prohibits discrimination uh, on such matters. So, um, the uh, court in Family First uh, noted that while the um, 
court at Greenpeace had opened the door to uh, the end of the um, political purposes exclusion, that door was still not that wide and um, there was still going to be difficulties in uh, establishing um, that you could um, have advocacy as a charitable purpose. In some senses, the path to um, such status is as difficult as it ever was, and um, certainly advocacy organisations will not automatically qualify for charitable status. Um, success, in my submission, is uh, going to depend on an organisation being able to show that its advocacy purposes are both in the public benefit and analogous to a cause that has been previously recognised as charitable. And while Greenpeace has expressly rejected controversiality as a disqualifying factor for charitable status, the fact remains if an organisation has a purpose of advocating for controversial outcomes, it will still uh, likely be harder for a court to say that that advocacy is in the public benefit. So, while Greenpeace opened the door, it certainly didn't kick it in. Um, the final um, chapter in this um, particular uh, line of cases yet to be written, the Family First has appealed uh, the High Court decision, decision and that appeal is set down for the Court of Appeal on the 22nd and 23rd of November, so the Court of Appeal will have its opportunity for input. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you, Peter. I can see that we're building a really nice story here. So our next, our next speaker is Jane Morton from the University of Auckland. Thanks, Jenny, and um, it's a real pleasure to be here amongst people who actually uh, have proper jobs and do proper work after spending much of my time in an ivory tower. Um, I'd like to acknowledge, though, uh, the contribution that charities have made to me standing here. I'm not sure if Jenny would remember, but she interviewed me for a Fulbright scholarship um, 15 years ago, and this is the first time I've seen her since I um, completed um, my study under that scholarship, and um, then I went on to do my doctorate over in the UK, um, and I was pregnant partway through my doctorate and thought I'd just write my doctorate while the baby slept. Um, <laughs> and um, happened uh, to then realise that that was impossible, and it was actually a wonderful um, woman in the city, Nicola Woolworths, who set up a charitable uh, donation to fund uh, the care of my daughter while I completed my doctorate, and other people have benefited from that, so I just wanted to acknowledge um, those two contributions to, to my education. So I'm going to follow on from what um, Matthew has said about um, whether there's any benefit to uh, uh, advocacy, public benefit, and I also want to follow on uh, with a consideration of some of the difficulties that have arisen since the Greenpeace decision. So when I uh, arrived back from the UK, I looked at this lauded uh, Greenpeace decision um, and uh, was struck by the fact that I actually uh, disagreed with it. Um, in many circles, the decision was actually welcome because it appears to remove some of the arbitrary uh, distinctions whereby some worthwhile charities were denied <coughs> charitable status simply because they engaged in advocacy. 
Uh, it was also uh, lauded by some people because it removed the disproportionate focus on Section 5, Subsection 3 of the Charities Act and this debate around what constitutes ancillary purpose. Uh, the judges themselves uh, lauded their own decision uh, as getting rid of um, the political purpose doctrine, uh, which they saw as unnecessary and notwithstanding uh, scrutiny. And so for the court uh, in that decision and other commentators, the focus was back where it squarely should be, which was on uh, simply whether the purpose was for the public benefit in the charitable sense. Whether an organisation is advocating for law change to achieve that purpose should not be a disqualifying, um, should not disqualify it from achieving charitable status. Now, as Peter noted, I expressed scepticism of this decision in my article in the NZLJ. I think that uh, two of the rationales for the political purpose doctrine were dismissed too quickly by the court. Uh, the first rationale being institutional competence. So whether the, the charity uh, decision maker, either the charity services or the court, has the actual knowledge to, uh, to make an assessment about, um, about uh, public benefit in that context. And also the other rationale for the political purpose doctrine, which is uh, constitutional legitimacy. So whether uh, uh, the charity services or the courts are being asked to step outside their constitutional role by determining whether a law change is for the public benefit. The problem with the Greenpeace decision is it provides very little guidance to uh, a decision maker on to how to uh, assess public benefit with those organisations that are seeking changes in law or policy. This is particularly difficult when you have an organisation that is advocating a controversial viewpoint such as Family First. So as you might be aware, the Greenpeace decision asks the uh, decision maker to assess uh, the pub what the benefit is of not only uh, uh, the uh, activity, but also the ends sought. So uh, if you have a controversial charity which is seeking a change in the law or policy, uh, the decision maker has to assess the benefit of the change in that law or policy. This isn't an easy task either as a matter of institutional competence or constitutional legitimacy. Remember that some of these changes might relate to polycentric issues, matters of high policy such as national security, the environment, foreign relations, or even such highly charged areas as what constitutes a family and what benefits should be distributed in this context. Now this difficulty will be particularly acute where the ends are abstract or controversial. By uh, controversial I mean not generally accepted. And so the benefit isn't readily apparent. So in such instances, the decision maker has to go back to look at the means, not the ends, for achieving these abstract or controversial purposes. But where the means involves advocacy for that specific end purpose, how can the courts or the charity services assess whether the means used to achieve that end are beneficial, given that uh, the end itself is not seen as beneficial? Uh, so, as I said, the problem with the Greenpeace decision is the court gives sparse guidance as to how to determine whether advocacy or promotion of law reform or change is charitable. 
The court said the public benefit should not depend on majoritarian assessment, but then gave no guidance beyond that. So the assessment must be objective and not dependent on the subjective views of the donor or the particular judge, but then they can't use majoritarian assessment. So how do we determine benefit, given that the idea of benefit is inherently uh, value-laden? The difficulty, uh, so Simon uh, France Jane family first tried to assess uh, public benefit, but he found any changes in the law regarding same-sex families would be detrimental. And he also said that advocacy for a particular viewpoint would likely only be accepted as charitable if there is almost universal acceptance of that viewpoint. The difficulty is that advocacy organisations are seeking to change law or policy, so they must show almost universal acceptance of the need to change law or policy. So there must be only rare instances in a functioning democracy where it would be the case that a viewpoint was almost universally accepted and this wasn't then reflected in existing legislation or government policy. This can be particularly difficult where the purpose is the moral improvement of society. So how can the decision maker decide whether a certain end sought would result in the moral improvement of society where the means used to achieve that moral improvement is a change in law or policy. Now, I have a long list of responses to Matthew Hardy, but I'm conscious at this point that I'm coming up against the seven minutes, so we might have to talk uh, privately about this. Um, but the rejection of the political purpose doctrine raises questions, though, about charities involved in advocacy uh, more general, generally. I'm sympathetic to Matthew's argument that there might be a benefit from organisations in that they represent the different views of people who otherwise don't have a voice. Uh, Canadian Without, uh, Canada Without Poverty, uh, the charity there helped to represent um, uh, marginalised voices and avoid stigmatisation. So perhaps after Greenpeace we should focus less on the ends achieved by advocacy and shift our focus to looking at the benefits of the process of advocacy in and of itself although I have some scepticism about what this might do to the moral credibility of the charity sector if um, it becomes a vehicle for identity politics and for representation of highly contested views um, or convincing the public of these highly contested views. Thank you. Thanks. Jane, and you know, um, I did. I ran the Fulbright program for ten years, and I always talked so proudly about about my grads, and they're all law professors and politicians, but I still sort of think of them as my grads. <laughs> it's really lovely to see you again. Um, our next speaker is, is John Hancock from the um, New Zealand Human Rights Commission. Kia ora koutou. It's a pleasure to be able to uh, speak to you today, and I uh, really enjoyed the. Um, presentation so far on this panel. I'm just going to give you an overview of the, um, of the human rights framework. I don't um, intend to give you any views on how that may apply, but I just want to provide you with an overview of the relevant um, provisions of the Bill of Rights and international human rights instruments, and then um, a quick um, look through at that um, Canada Without uh, Poverty case as well, because that's a quite interesting case uh, as regards the freedom of expression. Principle. I'll just try and put the slides to 
populist beliefs. We've had this problem before. Oh, okay. There we go. Cool. There we go. Okay, so the principal rights engaged are um, right to freedom of expression, obviously, that is the principal um, right when you're considering advocacy. Of course, that's in our Bill of Rights Act, Section 14. Um, New Zealand signed up to that right um, through ratification of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. It's a fundamental human right that's in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And um, it's scaffolded to a, degree, to, to a degree also by the right to participation in public affairs, which is under Article 25 of the ICCPR, uh, when thinking about this particular issue. I haven't listed the right to freedom from discrimination on this um, slide, which is another potentially relevant right too. And, and, um, and Peter mentioned it in relation to uh, the Family First case. The, I, have, I haven't gone there, I've looked at the um, the positive right to advocate, so looking at it through the freedom of expression of the lens for the purposes of this talk, but if obviously it could well be a relevant right that's engaged um, in this uh, context also. Um, so freedom of expression is obviously it's recognised as a fundamental human right and a cornerstone of a functioning democracy. There's lots of um, uh, observations by our courts about the importance of freedom of expression it's an essential foundation of a democratic society. Um, it's applicable not only to information or ideas that are favourably received, but also to those that offend, or shock, or might disturb the state. Um, and so, when we talk about government policy, I think that particular segment of that um, part of the judgment uh, is particularly relevant. Now, um, under the ICCPR, under our obligations to the ICCPR, the UN Human Rights Committee, which is the UN treaty body that oversees the, um, the ICCPR, it issues general comments, and the general comments are like jurisprudential um, summaries of, of what constitutes the right itself, and it's talked, it's released a general comment 34 in 2011 about the uh, right to freedom of expression. Obviously, again, it, it underpins how important it is as a right in a democratic society, the foundation stone for every free and democratic society, um, and a necessary, necessary condition for the realisation of principles of transparency and accountability. Obviously very important um, uh, issues when looking at government policy. Now, looking at the right to participate in public affairs, and this is from the UN Human Rights Committee's General Comment 25, which is on that right to participate in public affairs. Citizens also take part in the conduct of public affairs by exerting influence through public debate and dialogue with their representatives or through their capacity to organise themselves. And this participation supports the, 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 the right to freedom of expression. So obviously freedom of expression is not an absolute right, it can be limited, we limit it under our own Bill of Rights Act, um, and the courts have made observations about the extent to which it may be limited, so uh, in the Attorney General and Smith case, the Court of Appeal observed that low value expression um, is constrained and low value expression is, it will seldom be justifiable, constrained hate speech, etc. may well be justifiable in certain circumstances. And of course, the international human rights framework also ex imposes express uh, limitations, for example, maintenance of public order, but um, those restrictions must be necessary for a legitimate purpose and they must be proportionate. And I've um, taken this uh, segment from the uh, general comment that restrictions must not be overbroad. The principle of proportionality has to be respected not only in the law that frames the restrictions, 
but also by the administrative and judicial authorities applying the law. So does the, does the Bill of Rights Act apply to charities? Well, the Bill of Rights Act applies to legal persons as well as natural persons, so it may well. So flying on from that, um, I'll quickly look at um, Canada Without Poverty case because it's a very interesting case given that in New Zealand, um, as far as I'm aware, uh, the courts haven't looked at the advocacy functions of charities and through the lens of Section 14 of the Bill of Rights or through the lens of the right to freedom of expression. However, the Canada Without Poverty case is particularly interesting because it does just that. And in that case, the Ontario Superior Court held that the deregistration of a charity for non-partisan uh, political advocacy breached that charity's right to freedom of expression under the Canadian Charter of Rights. So in that case, um, Canada Without Poverty was a, a charity um, that was registered and had the stated, stated charitable purpose of relieving poverty in Canada. And it's principally what it did was it engaged in public advocacy um, to achieve um, attitudinal change and an end to poverty in Canada. And it did so using the, the international human rights best practice and standards as a, as a basis for doing that. It was um, audited by the Canadian Review Authority under the Income Tax Act, which concluded that virtually all of its um, activities involved political engagement and the nature of communications to the public advocating policy changes. And the interesting thing about the policy document that informed that in Canada is it took a sort of quantum approach to, um, to the political uh, advocacy in the sense that charity, under their guidelines of a charity could do really no more than 10% political advocacy on the side of their 90% charitable, um, uh, mainstream charitable functions, if you like. Um, and this is uh, what the, the CRA stated in its view an activity considered political was, and I've highlighted that second point there because it's sort of relevant to what we're talking about here, that anything that explicitly communicated to the public a law policy decision on any level of government in Canada or a foreign country that should be retained, opposed, or changed, whether it was partisan or non-partisan, in its view. Um, so, um, looking at that, um, the court noted that the, that the activities of Canada Without Poverty were non-partisan. They all involved communications about law reform and other issues related to the relief of poverty. And it said most of these activities are public forms of expression that represents the Canada without poverty's efforts to engage its constituency in democratic processes to relieve poverty. Um, so on the issue of freedom of expression, the Ontario Supreme, uh, Superior Court found that there is no doubt that the activity in which um, it engaged in, in uh, constituted or fell within the right to um, freedom of expression. Uh, also interestingly, um, there was uh, some uh, contention around whether or not by uh, have, whether the function of the state to be able to withdraw um, charitable status and then affect its um, uh, tax benefits or the, the tax-free benefits of being a charity, whether that actually even engaged for, or infringed free expression. And the court in Canada Without Poverty found that it did in that case. Um, the Attorney General in that case contended that, you, uh, that uh, Canada Without Poverty had the right to free speech but not subsidised free speech. But in this case, on the evidence, that was rejected. Um, because it was found that that organisation would not be able to financially function without the tax exemption provided by charitable status. Um, and you can see there that held that any burden, including a cost burden imposed by government on the exercise of a fundamental freedom, um, can qualify as an infringement on that right and freedom if it is not trivial or insubstantial. I'll leave things there because I'm out of time, but thank you very much. Okay.
The second thing to do, I want to, I don't have a slide, but I want you to imagine five pillars um, and just draw down or draw down on each of those five pillars. And the first pillar that um, I want to set the scene for is communicating the legal operating environment that our organisation works within. So we do this on a whole range of compliance issues. So advocacy is just one of them. But safeguarding for Oxfam Australia at the moment is a prominent issue. Um, the protection uh, of the funds from anti-money laundering, counter-terrorism and corruption, other issues. So just replicate this five pillar slide for every key obligation we have. There's about 150 laws on our compliance register. The first thing is to actually know what they are. So make sure that the organisation understands the international conventions that we've signed up to as a, as a country um, and the uh, specific national, state or um, in our case, we can even have local government laws. And in the case of advocacy, listing not just the obligations under the Charities Act, but also specific rules around advocacy in the Electoral Act, um, the Commonwealth Electoral Act and State Acts is a very important feature of that one slide. The second thing that people touched on this morning about regulation um, is to be aware that if you are working in a charity or advising one, that there is a lot of privately made or soft law, as I would call it, where self-regulation through um, subscribing to accreditation schemes, such as the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade Accreditation Scheme for Australian um, non-government organisations who cooperate with them. Um, there are also uh, codes for the sector, the ACFID code in Australia, which is the uh, Council for International Development. Um, there's fundraising codes, etc., etc., and they all may have a relevant piece in them um, something to say about advocacy, indeed they do. So understanding your soft law context, and in that I would add the private law that we make as a contractor provider to government through our contracts um, and grants arrangements and the responsibilities to work within the parameters set down there. The third main area is then to develop a rule book to make all of those rules usable by the people who we ask to comply with them in the organisation. And by that I mean policies and procedures. Um, and we're greatly helped in Australia um, by the work of the ACNC and I'll call out that the um, compliance and, and regulatory team there produce some fabulous resources that help charities who don't have in-house counsel to swim between the flags. Um, the fourth slide that I want to put down is um, what happens when things go wrong as an organisation. Um, for Oxfam, that can happen. And we have to have functions there within the organisation that communicate how we investigate, learn from what went wrong, and improve and um, make redress where necessary, but also communicate uh, with the people who may have supported us and may want us to uh, advise them on what we're going to do to change um, so that those things don't happen again. And that final fifth slide is not just working directly to remediate or um, respond to people who may um, have been harmed, but to reflect on the law and the processes. And in this space, this is where advocacy uh, is so important. If, in fact, the laws themselves are creating um, part of the barriers to the problems, um, and we need to raise um, those laws up with government. Um, the fact that it is not government policy um, shouldn't be a barrier to improvement. 
So that leads me to my final comment, which would be, what do we lose if charities who are working and in a high-risk environment testing ideas and ways of addressing some of the most complex problems that we're challenged with, climate change, poverty, the rights of women and vulnerable people. We lose the ability to have a very informed dialogue. It may be communicated in ways that are controversial at times, or through stunts or tweets or Facebook posts, but nonetheless, it triggers a discussion that I think we would be poorer for if we were not having across government, across the regulatory environment, across the private sector and across the general community. Um, and the absence of those voices, I think, would be a real detriment and loss. Thank you. Session three was Accumulations or Application, What to Do About Charities Reserves, with Ian Murray, Peter Walls, and facilitated by Wayne Tukiri. Uh, welcome, it gives me great pleasure to be here um, introducing this topic. Uh, I am an Associate Director with RSM, as Craig said, in uh, Auckland, and my client portfolio is almost exclusively uh, not-for-profits and charities. Why is that? Because that's the space I love working in. And uh, I think the events of Christchurch, just to reiterate um, some comments before, uh, reminded me of why I love working in that space. Uh, because the, um, the need for organisations and all the people that are in this room that do good to uh, make sure that overcomes evil, is, uh, it needs to be recognised. And uh, so that's the reason why I love working in this space. Um, so to introduce the topic, yes, about accumulations, I think it's a fascinating uh, topic. So we've had some analogies already this morning. We've had the sumo wrestler and the, uh, the jujitsu and the uh, surf lifesavers. Um, I think I'm going to be kind of just like the lion tamer. I'm going to throw this tasty morsel in and then run away and these guys go for it. <laughs> and you guys go for it as well in terms of accumulation. I know mean, I have some, some personal uh, views on this, um, but it's a really interesting topic. Uh, and it's the point around, okay, we've talked a lot about public benefit and, and that's obviously what charities are here to, to um, do good. But the question then of when that, should that be? Are we doing good for now or are we doing good for future generations? And therefore do we need to accumulate some reserves to help enable us uh, to do that? That's one of the aspects, the intergenerational aspect of uh, this question. There are many uh, to that. So, um, we have assembled, I think, an outstanding panel here, only two this time, um, uh, to just uh, give their perspectives on this topic. And as before, we will enable people to have a chance to ask any questions um, afterwards, uh, and then we'll wrap up the session. But it gives me great pleasure. So the first sort of speaker is um, Dr. Ian Murray, who's coming away from Western Australia, the University of Western Australia there. Uh, he will be uh, speaking first and giving us his perspective on this. Uh, and then also Emeritus uh, Professor uh, Peter Walls as well will give his views uh, on this and then the questions. So um, as I said, I will uh, throw it, it over literally to um, Dr. Ian Murray to give us his presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Wayne. And I was just speaking to Fiona Martin about joint political scientist John
John Kingdon a moment ago. And John Kingdon suggested that a window of opportunity arises for something to get onto the policy agenda and for change to occur with three streams aligned. A problem, a policy solution, and a political and political motivation or political opportunity. And I think we have a window for change in New Zealand with the Charities Act review and the recently completed tax working group review that's been done to really look at this issue of accumulation uh, by charities. And I, I should acknowledge that John King has also suggested that as soon as a political opportunity arises, uh, problems and policy solutions flock to that political window. And so I admit that I'm part of that flocking to this political window to actually do something about accumulation by charities. Now, what is the the problem, that's what I'd like to have a, a look at um, in a little bit more detail. But to start off, what have the review set? So the Charities Act review that's ongoing at the moment, we have a discussion document and the tax working group report that has come out. Both reviews really frame the chief problem as being that accumulating too many assets for too long without a sufficiently specific rationale means that there's either a public perception of insufficient benefit for the public or that there is insufficient public benefit. So they're really framing it around not getting enough public benefit, and that's what accumulation leads to. And accumulation, I guess I'm using in the, uh, a broad sense of um, your net assets, for instance, increase from time A to time B. And I know that there are more technical definitions that might be used for perpetuities purposes, but using it in a pretty broad sense. Uh, both reviews also identified that private foundations and charities operating businesses were areas where this problem might be most marked. Uh, and in terms of policy solutions, the Tax Working Group review didn't leave things to the Charities Act review, but nevertheless went on and, and raised a few potential policy solutions. Um, and they revolved around the Canadian model of uh, minimum distributions for all charities, and also uh, in the interim report, it referenced the Australian model of a, a, a subset of charities, public and private ancillary funds, being required to distribute a, a minimum percentage of their net assets each year. Um, the Charities Act review also raised uh, further reporting of reserves and accumulation in conjunction with heightened or strengthened governance standards as a potential policy solution to that problem. Now, what does that lead to? Well, I think none of that discussion really asks the question or, or, or tries to work out what the what are the normative basis, what, what's the basis for answering that question of when we've got insufficient public benefit. Um, so I'd like to sort of delve a little bit more into that. And I won't delve too far into it, but I think the second thing that comes out of, of that question is who makes that decision about when there is sufficient public benefit or not. So I will touch briefly on that who question uh, as well. Um, so we will talk a little bit about intergenerational justice and just as a heads up on what that might be. Um, really that's referring to philosophical theories uh, that seek to state what obligations uh, are owed to uh, past and future people. So what obligations do we owe people in the past or people uh, in the future? And that then helps identify what some of the practical policy solutions might uh, be and, and also give us a basis for answering that question about when. So reframing the problem for a start. So firstly, is there a problem? And the evidence in the Tax Working Group report and the Charities Act um, discussion document uh, suggests that the in terms of what's actually happening on the ground, there's um, some increases in assets for the charity sector as a whole, uh, but also a fair bit of variation between charities, and that the charity sector's increasing its proportion of uh, business income compared with the for-profit sector, so perhaps some concern that charities are getting more and more business income, and we might 
possibly need to be worried about that, linked with some evidence that some specific business operations of charities are not distributing very much for rather long periods of time. So we've got some, um, in, uh, some, some specific cases. Um, and also for private foundations, that there's, again, significant variation of some of the larger private foundations Many of those are increasing their assets at a higher rate than inflation, so I suggest that they're actually accumulating assets. So there's some evidence that um, some charities might be accumulating assets, but not an overwhelming um, set of evidence that all charities are uh, massively accumulating assets. Now, if we have a look at the legal framework, actually it's pretty permissive for accumulation in New Zealand compared to most other jurisdictions. Um, there are some rules uh, in a perpetuities context that apply, but you're about to abolish your rules against remoteness of vesting and expressly permit charitable trusts to accumulate, so you're about to lose the perpetuities constraints um, that you had and you could get around them to some extent anyway. Um, also, once assets have been accumulated, there are some mechanisms to um, access them, CPRA administrative schemes, but they're pretty tricky to use. Uh, there are no minimum annual distribution requirements in New Zealand, even for subsets of charities, like Australia, Canada, the US. Um, there are no tax rules that prohibit charities carrying on businesses, unlike the US, uh, or the tax, um, the other business income of businesses that charities do carry on, unlike the US and restrictions in the UK and taxation in or restrictions in Canada. You don't have excise taxes on university endowments the way they do um, in the US. So it, it is actually a pretty permissive setting. So even though there's not a lot of evidence of individual charities, uh, of charities as a whole accumulating, certainly there's potential there for charities that wish uh, to do so. So what do we reframe from uh, in terms of the problem? So that's, I've set up there what the Tax Working Group and the Charities um, Act Review discussion document have said about the problem. And as I've said, I think those quotes go to the, the issue, the chief issue being that charities, or some charities are accumulating too many assets for too long without a sufficiently specific reason resulting in insufficient public benefit. There were a couple of further problems identified about risk of loss of assets and also about um, charitable businesses getting an unfair competitive advantage. I'm not going to go into those other two issues. I'm going to focus on this first issue about just accumulating too many assets for too long, so achieving insufficient public benefit. Now, I guess that, that's all well and good, but then that leads to the question about uh, when do we have, or how do we work out that we, we've got insufficient public benefit? You know, when does accumulation actually result in uh, less public benefit than um, is ideal. And both uh, reviews acknowledge that accumulation can be justified in some circumstances. So, for, for instance, saving up for a particular capital asset or to enable contingency planning. Um, and they go beyond that and accept that there might be some intergenerational basis um, uh, to the management of your assets that you want to adopt as well. And that's a good start because it does accept that accumulation might lead to a net public benefit, but doesn't really sort of grapple with how you answer that question of when it might lead to a, a net public benefit. Uh, and to put it another way, I guess what we're trying to work out is when should a charity distribute its assets now to benefit the present generation um, versus uh, saving assets now and distributing them in the future to benefit the people in the future. How do we judge whether we've got a, a larger or a net public benefit from that um, distribution between current and future generations? Now, the subsidy rationale for tax concessions suggests that we give tax concessions to charities in order to enable them to produce more of whatever it is they're producing, and I use that in a pretty broad sense to include uh, not just goods and services that they produce, but also uh, their encouragement for people to participate in civil discourse as well. So a very broad range of uh, 
goods that charities uh, might produce. So we give them tax concessions to try and achieve more public benefit. Uh, and that's consistent, I guess, with the charity law concept that uh, charity law is aimed at achieving a, a public benefit or a net public benefit. So in, in a broad sense, we know that uh, that's where we're aiming. But those rationales don't really help us work out in this intergenerational sense uh, when we have got that net public benefit. And I think probably the way to do that is to have a look at uh, what are the, the benefits and detriments from accumulation, weigh those up and when one outweighs the other, that's when we have a net public benefit. So that's a good thing. And the benefits of accumulation can be assisting financial sustainability, um, aiding charity independence and hence pluralism, possibly also improving allocation efficiency that a charity undertakes. So there could be an economic benefit there as well. The detriments are that obviously you're going to defer delivery of some benefits and that raises a social concern. So if people today are meant to be supporting a system of rules and social cooperation, how can we encourage them to do that if they don't see any benefits coming to them but not no benefits coming for hundreds of years' time. So there's a real um, social disbenefit to having uh, charities do uh, active uh, work sometime way down into the future. So I think when we're thinking about net benefit, I'd argue that we ought to be thinking about both fairness of the distribution of benefits and also efficiency in the distribution of those benefits, at least to some extent, and I don't claim that we should aim for ultimate fairness and ultimate efficiency, but I think fairness and efficiency are things that we need to be mindful of because they come up when we look at the specific benefits and detriments that arise from accumulation itself and tie into our goal of trying to achieve a net public benefit that both the tax subsidies and charity law uh, are aimed at. Now, I'll sort of pause here and just note that some commentators might question whether charity law um, as a private a body of private law ought to be uh, focusing on those issues, moral issues like that, or efficiency, and whether we should just let donors decide who and when they're actually going to uh, provide benefits to people. Uh, I'd say just briefly in response to that, that charity law, at least can see broadly, includes tax law. Tax law is certainly not private law, so we might be starting to worry more about public concerns there. And even charity law itself, as Catherine Chan has written recently uh, in her book, in involves both public and private aspects, so even if we just looked at charity law itself, I think we can't just say it's just a body of private law that the public should not be interested in. And obviously the Charities Act here in Section 3 also includes the purpose of encouraging and promoting the effective use of charity resources, so you've got legislative and legislative basis for caring to some extent about fairness and efficiency as well. So I'd reframe the, the problem, I suppose, that we need an answer for as being how should charities allocate benefits over time um, as between current and future generations so as to enhance fairness and efficiency and thus the public benefit achieved. Uh, intergenerational justice I've defined before but suggesting that this might be a normative basis for working out that when question about how you allocate those benefits between current and future generations. And there's no one accepted definition of what intergenerational justice requires. Um, there are a range of theories, they do have some commonalities. So most of the theories suggest that we shouldn't, there's no moral reason to prefer people alive today versus people in the future or vice versa. And that we ought to uh, allocate or reallocate resources to some extent um, to, to help uh, those who are more disadvantaged. And so one, uh, the prioritarianism uh, approach to intergenerational justice would be to say that we require a reallocation of resources uh, to prioritise those who are most 
disadvantaged, which doesn't mean equality, because we might need to grow the pie by, unequal, by, by having an unequal distribution of resources, but we should be giving a priority to those who are most disadvantaged. Uh, now, depending on how strong that priority uh, is, it might be that small numbers of disadvantaged people currently alive miss out on some resources in order to benefit large numbers of future people, if we just look at changes in numbers. Or it could mean, if we have an absolute priority, that we uh, advantage a small number of people who are very badly off now, and we miss out on giving a large benefit to large numbers of people who are only marginally less worse off in the future. So choosing the strength of our priority will, will matter. Um, a sufficientarian approach might be that we hand the world on in a similar state to future generations, or at least um, in a similar state as to a minimum threshold. We desire some minimum threshold of benefits that a future generation or that all generations ought to have, and we make sure that charities uh, are in such a state that we can hand that on. Um, it is possible to adopt these theories within a decision-making tool like a social welfare function, given time. I won't talk about social welfare functions, but just to say that um, intergenerational decisions like this have been made by governments and by private actors, particularly in relation to energy and environmental decisions, but there's a, a broad range of areas where it's been done, so there are practical tools that allow you to work out whether a resource allocation or reallocation, what impact that's actually going to have. So what might that mean, policy solutions uh, in New Zealand? Well, we could say, let's let the government do that. Let's use the New Zealand tax and transfer system. Let's leave charities alone. They can accumulate as much as they like and don't care, other than risks of loss of assets, things, you know, issues like that that we were parking to one side. And we just let the government uh, use the tax system and the transfer system to resolve those issues of fairness and um, efficiency. And some of the literature suggests that that is a, a good idea, in fact, a, a welfare maximising idea. But it's all based on some pretty heroic assumptions, uh, even if we're responding to aggregated charity decisions. So, for instance, the legislators respond to each um, charity decision, that um, there are low costs of doing so, and that they have certainty about the outcomes of their own. Um, changes and also the, the charity decisions that were made in the first place. And I've got a lot of doubts about whether that would happen in practice, particularly if we're thinking about people in the future who don't vote. Um, the amount of pressure they could put on politicians today, uh, I really sort of query that. So I've got some concerns about that first approach. Mandatory distribution rates have obviously <coughs> been raised in both of the um, reviews. And potentially you could implement intergenerational justice principles using those sort of uh, rates. So a sufficientarian conception of intergenerational justice might well be supported by a mandatory distribution rate, which is set um, at roughly a level that just allows you to add inflation to your assets. So you've got the same amount of assets for today as you do for tomorrow. You've got to distribute um, something now, but you're saving the same um, value of assets for people in the future. That doesn't really deal with changing need from that charity or charities that aren't meant to last forever, which ought to be spending down at a faster rate than that. So it doesn't solve all problems, but could do something. Uh, letting the regulator decide, so you could let an administrator uh, make the decision, but that obviously uh, spells significant problems for charity independence, so I won't say too much more about that. Um, the final option is leave it up to charity controllers to themselves make the decision, but just impose a duty on them to actually consider intergenerational matters when deciding how to allocate their resources. And we might do that by legislation, or it could be by um, charity services running a test case to check whether the current law already requires that it could be developed to uh, include that. Um, yeah, obviously, there'll be some practical difficulties with requiring that. And you might say, well, for larger charities, we'll expect more than for smaller charities to deal with that. 
Uh, and accountability of decision makers will obviously be crucial. And obviously there are some of the suggestions in the um, Charities Act review for strengthening government standards and reporting would go some way to addressing um, accountability. My view is that we really ought to go with that final one of, of putting a duty or ensuring that charity controls themselves think about intergenerational issues and um, uh, are appropriately accountable for that so that the state stays out of decisions about how we ought to allocate benefits um, over time uh, because otherwise you lose all the benefits of charity independence and pluralism that um, come from that. Perhaps you could have a, a backstop of a, uh, of a minimum distribution rate if you've got bits of the sector you're particularly worried about or if you want to give charity controllers a, a safe harbour, they could offer a minimum distribution rate if they don't want to go down the path of actually working out what principles of intergenerational justice they're going to apply and, and providing an evidence base uh, for it. Otherwise, I'll say no more. Fantastic. Thank you, Ian. Um, what and like Peter to come up and give you the speakers. Thank you, Wayne, uh, and thank you for inviting me to speak at this conference. Um, I've already learned a lot in my pre-conference communications with both Wayne and Ian. Um, I feel a bit like a layman in the room, really, since uh, my only professional engagement with the legal profession is that I conduct a choir of high court judges, <laughs> <laughs> which incidentally includes one of your keynote speakers, the man, of course. Um, I want to make... Um, yeah, good. I want to make the case for accumulation for a specific class of charitable foundation, and my interest is primarily in arts organisations, which, as the DIA table shows, is the third largest category of charities in Aotearoa. Uh, my particular interest today is uh, in talking about arts companies in which you've got an operating entity delivering services, which is then supported by a linked charitable foundation. So a selection of these is shown on the table, and at the top of the list are Tapapa, where we are now, of course, and the NZSO. And both Tapapa and the NZSO are autonomous crown entities, and in this case, of course, it's their charitable foundations that have donee status, so allow people wanting to support those institutions um, to gain tax deductions and so on. The other organisations in the table are all served by pairs of registered charities, the operating entity on the left and the charitable foundation on, on the right, but all of these have donee status, regardless of whether they're the operating entity or the supporting um, charitable foundation. So I'll um, come back to the rationale of that shortly. <coughs> the operating entities all have a kind of mixed uh, they have mixed revenue streams, three main streams. First and importantly, they all gain funding through trading, through selling concert tickets, for example. All of them receive government funding and all pursue development funding, which broadly speaking is made up of corporate sponsorships, grants from community gaming and philanthropic trusts, and donations from individuals. The operating entities are all not-for-profit, to state the obvious, that makes them businesses without margins, or businesses without profit margins anyway. So the first function of their foundations is to make good operating shortfalls in bad years, hopefully offset by a contribution back to the foundation from surpluses in good years. But all of these foundations have been established with a larger goal in mind. 
Sometimes the articulation of that larger goal can seem somewhat veiled in the stated purpose of the foundation trust deeds, since they typically have goals that are wider than that simple aim of supporting the operating entity to which they are linked. The typical financial profile of such peer organisations shows that the operating entity um, has total assets that equate to somewhere between 10 and 33% of the operating budget, while the associated foundation has operating costs that equate to less than 2.5% of the total equity. So in other words, the operating entities are high-cost, low-asset organisations. Their foundations are heading towards being relatively healthy assets with low, low costs. Um, so this is illustrated in this table by two pairs, both with um, very different overall budgets. So the one on the left is, a, is an operating budget of 12 million, the one on the right is a quarter of that size. Um, you'll note that they do distribute, uh, and that their grants in, in the two examples I've chosen here are in the order of 6 to 8%. Unless there's significant new funding coming into those foundations, that level of distribution would be quite difficult to sustain over a period of time without running into the value of the foundation's endowment. This brings me really to the long game. Most, if not all, of these foundations dream of a day when their endowment will be of sufficient magnitude for the income from investments provide genuine and sustained support for the art form in question, and in particular, for the parent organisation. The most recently published annual report of the Ballet Foundation of New Zealand notes that, and I quote, in accordance with its mission statement, the foundation is committed to building a sustainable fund to provide long-term stability for ballet in New Zealand. And their website proclaims that today's reversals is what's on the slide, Today's rehearsal is tomorrow's performance. Today's lesson is tomorrow's mastery. And a gift plan today is the future of the art form. Te Papatangarewa uh, has a website which is even more explicit, and it states that the Te Papa Foundation's aim is to support the work of Te Papa by building an investment fund of 50 million in 10 years. So, um, in its 2016-17 annual report, Tapapa's operating budget was just over 61 million. So it's aiming to get close to that annual operating budget with its uh, foundation endowment. The ambition to sustain the arts in this way is well-founded. Returning to my business with no profit margins comment, all of these arts companies are vulnerable year on year to a temporary downturn in their very specific market. Such a downturn might eventuate simply because of an intangibly less appealing offering in a particular season. You know, this is quite hard to get exactly right. It's not necessarily, necessarily the result of bad planning or bad management. So earned income can fluctuate. In the development space, corporate sponsorship is very strongly linked to the buoyancy of the general market. Nobody here can predict the future of gaming trust funding in New Zealand. And many have qualms about the middle classes relying on it to support sophisticated art forms. 
um, however much we, we believe in the public good of the art form itself and what it can do to enhance well-being in society, the willingness of successive governments to underwrite particularly art forms that have their roots in Western European society too cannot be taken for granted. I am not, I hope, talking about catastrophic failure in any of these revenue streams, but it would nevertheless be a huge comfort to those of us involved in this sector um, to, uh, to, to think that we could provide a sustainable future for those art forms through those dedicated charitable foundations. What hope have we got? In many ways, the environment for philanthropic giving in New Zealand is favourable. The cap on tax deductions, as you know, was, reviewed, was removed in 2009, gift aid introduced in 2011, and there have been other initiatives as well. When the national-led government came to power in late 2009, the Minister of Culture and Heritage, the Honourable Christopher Henderson, established a task force to look at ways of increasing philanthropic support for the arts. The report, Growing the Pie, cover you see here, um, concluded that, quote, we now have a tax regime that requires very little refine, refinement and that there is very little from overseas jurisdictions we could consider as a useful addition to the country's tax infrastructure. This openness to philanthropic funding as a way of supporting the arts is relatively new in New Zealand. It is, of course, very well established in other jurisdictions, notably the United States. And my slide here compares the latest reported endowments of some significant American arts presenters with four of the major players in New Zealand. The poorest of the American presenters in this table was the, is the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, which I wanted to include simply because it nearly went bankrupt after the GFC and was obviously supported through that, with, through its foundation. I've separated the US and the New Zealand presenters here with a bar showing that to Papa Foundation aspirational goal that I mentioned a minute ago, the 50,000 in 10 years. So it's not there yet, it's ready because it's, it's waiting to be filled. And even this hardly registers on the scale alongside our North American counterparts. And the actual endowments of any of those New Zealand institutions, as you can see, just look like little puddles on the, on the right of the table. We should be regarding found. Oh. oh, this one. Yes, I'll just um. Yeah, I'll go back. Yeah, one more. Yeah. Sorry. There we are. Yes, you can see there's the part one in the middle, aspirational, and there's the real assets of of you know really as we're big players within the New Zealand sector compared with what you've got in the United States. Just leave that up there for a minute. We should be regarding foundations of this kind in New Zealand as both young and in a growth phase. To Papa's ambition to reach their first stated milestone in 10 years will, I am sure, be echoed in the funding plans of other foundation trust boards. Realistically, we probably need to allow 25 years for those foundations to accumulate an endowment that is genuinely capable of ensuring the future of the organisation or the art form they seek to support. So they need to build up a kind of equilibrium, enough critical mass for that. There are compelling reasons for foundations to be actively funding projects on their journey to that sustaining endowment goal. 
It is only through active investment in artistic activity that donors and potential donors can see the power of their philanthropy. Moreover, a significant proportion of the funding coming into these foundations is already tagged, given for a specific purpose that cannot be deferred. But the target amount to be distributed annually should, as far as possible, be related to investment income rather than total wealth. Moreover, the minimum distribution rate should be such that the value of the base endowment is not eroded through inflation. A rule like that applied, as Ian has just pointed out, to public ancillary funds in Australia, that 4% of a foundation's equity should be distributed annually, would inhibit growth and possibly even contribute to an erosion of real value. One other donor or potential donor perspective needs to be mentioned here. Anyone intending to respond in the spirit of the RNZB Foundation's vision, a gift plan today is the future of the art form, needs to be assured that their generosity is not going to be treated by other kinds of funder as evidence of an organisation's short-term operational sustainability. In other words, a foundation's assets should not be regarded as reserves that can be spent down before any genuine funding need is recognised. Their endowment, especially in, the growth, in this growth phase, needs as far as possible to be protected. Some of the resistance, I think, to consolidation in paired operating entity and foundation situations, I, I believe, reflects this concern. In an ideal world, these foundations would be allowed to grow until they reach steady state. I've been exchanging emails with Ian about what this might look like. Steady state might equate, for example, to a foundation endowment that is roughly twice the annual expenditure of the associated operating entity. I want to show you one more American example um, before I finish. And this is from the, whoops, sorry. Yep. This is the Aspen, uh, Aspen Festival and, sorry, Aspen Music Festival and School. Um, and these figures are, uh, come from 2000, really from their 2011 festival. So after the GFC, they did feel the pinch. They reduced the whole thing from 10 weeks in the summer to eight weeks in the summer. You'll see that they take 20% of their annual operating budget from their own foundation. And this seemed an astonishingly high figure. Um, and, but they, their foundation's total endowment was 60 million at this time. Uh, they had just launched a campaign to, to increase it by another 100 million and received the first donation in for 25 million. I mean, they're just operating on a scale that doesn't exist here. They had a distribution rule that they could so that 20% is based on 5% of the market value of the foundation, foundation's assets averaged over three years. So that's what steady state could look like. Once you've got you know, sufficiently large endowment, you've got a very, very powerful force there for um, supporting uh, the, the art form or the organisation through thick and thin. So, Personally, I would want to see New Zealand charity law provide protection for the endowments of foundations linked to performing arts companies through recognising that any requirement for annual distribution relate, certainly in the growth period, 
only to the income from investments rather than from the capital itself. By the way, in talking about arts organisations, I'm only talking about organisations that I know. I think there are parallel situations, obviously, in, in, for example, sport. The other wish to recognise, at least during a foundation's growth phase, that accumulation is to be encouraged rather than discouraged. Additionally, I wonder whether protections need to extend quite explicitly to cover foundations whose accounts are consolidated in the operating entities' accounts. Consolidation is manifestly transparent and it would be great if it were to be encouraged rather than feared. Session four was The Future of Charities and Tax, with Nick Bland, Artie Chand, Stuart Donaldson, Mark Glash, Fiona Martin, and Jamie Cattell. Kia ora uh, So as has been said many times today, welcome and thank you for coming to the second Charity Law Accounting and Regulation Conference. Um, this session is on the future of charities and tax in New Zealand. Uh, it will run in the same format as the other sessions so far, with a short piece of statement from each of our five panelists, after which we will open up for discussions and questions from the floor. So, as Craig said, I'm Jamie Cattell. I'm the Senior Accountant at Charity Services. Um, my role involves all things financial, um, including monitoring compliance by charities with the financial reporting standards. Um, given the limited time, uh, I will Given the limited time and to allow for more questions and discussions with our panel at the end, I'll keep this brief. What I will say is that while we don't deal directly with tax, um, we are aware that any change in tax treatments or concessions that are offered to charities can affect uh, the types of entities that we have on the register and the types of activities that they engage in. Today we have a fantastic panel of professionals to share with us their views on um, the current issues in the New Zealand tax environment for charities. So first we have Stuart Donaldson from Inland Revenue, and uh, he's going to provide us with a brief overview of some of the issues that are top of mind. Uh, then we'll hear from Artie Chan of Artie Chan Tax Law, uh, in particular focusing on the business exemptions that apply to charities, business tax exemptions. Um, then we will hear from Mark Lash from Deloitte, who will provide uh, an iwi and family perspective on uh, structuring and charity tax issues. After that, we will have Nick Bland from Simpson Grierson, who will provide us thoughts on the tax policy development process. And finally, we will have Professor Fiona Martin from the University of New South Wales, uh, who will sum up and comment from the Australian perspective. Uh, so, if you will join me in welcoming our panel to the stage. Slides in here. Oh, yeah. 
I can just talk. Um, you've just been missing some exciting pictures. Yeah. Seems we're having some technical difficulties while they sort that out down the back. Um, okay, just I'll just talk to you. Thank you for the invitation to speak today. So I've got about seven minutes to talk about uh, the future of tax and charities. Uh, what I'd like to cover is uh, five things actually, just some broad context um, about government support for the charitable sector uh, through the tax system. Uh, recent tax law changes, I think that's probably good context for thinking about the future as well. The tax working group recommendations, which is supposed to be thinking for the next 10 years and, and issues with tax and charities. Other matters that have come to our attention that um, could be considered by government in the future. And I'd like to focus on, uh, end on Inland Revenue's um, increasing customer focus and what that could mean for the future as well. So those are the things I'd like to cover. I'll just start with the broad context. Um, charities in New Zealand have received tax exemptions, I think, since the 1870s. Um, and it's, um, I had a really nice picture of what Parliament are like. Oh, they are on? That's, that's excellent. Okay, I'll show you. <laughs> that's what Parliament looked like when we decided to have tax exemptions for charities. The government recognises that the charitable sector plays an important role in the New Zealand economy and society and contributes to the well-being of New Zealanders. As part of that recognition, registered charities are treated favourably for tax purposes. The support for charities in the tax legislation is targeted and it covers a range of areas. I've got uh, those, I think the main ones, I think, I think it's pretty much on the slide. So you're familiar with them, it's income tax exemption, which obviously translates to resident withholding tax um, exemption as well. Of course there are exceptions, um, if you are a charity and you have business income and you have overseas charitable purposes, you may end up paying tax on some of your income, so it's not a complete uh, exemption. Um, donation concessions that are familiar with for donor organisations, fringe benefit tax exemption for a subset of donor organisations, GST concessions for a much broader um, group than not-for-profits, not not -for and, and two lesser-known um, concessions in the Act. Um, student loans, you get an interest-free um, concession if you're a student with a loan and you go overseas and you work for a charity and that charity is listed on um, by land revenue. So student loan borrowers can receive concessions. And then in, an even lesser loan concession is uh, for Working for Families tax credits. If you're a recipient of Working for Families tax credits and you receive uh, payments from a charity, that's completely ignored. But if you receive a payment from anyone else, a non-registered non charity, not-for-profit or just another person, that's more than $5,000 a year, and that's taken into account and will reduce your, your working for families entitlement. So another advantage of being a registered charity, just thinking about your beneficiaries. It is difficult to quantify the level of total support. I mean, we know there's about $300 million a year um, that um, goes towards donation tax concessions, donation tax credits and gift deductions. If you add income tax, GST and FBT, I think it's about a billion dollars a year, roughly. So don't quote me, but I think that's, that's roughly what it could look like. We haven't really done this because it's quite hard to do. To put that in context, I think the government provides grants to the sector of about six to seven million a year. And obviously don't forget local government, they provide a number of concessions to, to charities as well. So within the, the type of government tax is just, just part of the picture. When officials provided advice to the tax working group last year, we outlined a framework for the taxation of charities and not-for-profits in the future. Firstly, you need to decide whether the tax system should be even used at all to provide support for the sector, or whether there are other options such as direct grants that could be more appropriate. But secondly, if you do decide to use the tax system to provide support, you should ask four questions. 
Firstly, who should be eligible to receive the support? Secondly, to what extent should the support be provided? In other words, what's the acceptable fiscal cost? How much is the government prepared to spend or forego? Three, how should the tax support be targeted? Should it be targeted to income tax, GST, FBT? Should it be targeted donation to donor support? Should it be targeted to New Zealand entities versus entities with um, purposes overseas? And lastly, uh, linking into the previous uh, topic, what alignment should exist between the timing of the tax support and the ultimate public benefit? So is the, is the government prepared to provide tax concessions today, even though the public won't see any benefit for that in 10 or 20 years? Uh, there is general agreement from both the tax working group and past reviews that the government should regularly review the tax support it provides in the sector in case it should be changed to be more effective. So the future of charities and tax will depend, I think, on how future governments respond to those, those sorts of questions. Looking at recent changes, uh, just context for the future, um, based on our experience from the last 10 years, we can expect to see ongoing tax changes. Every year the government has at least one tax bill, sometimes three or four, and there's always changes to, um, for charities in those bills. Usually it's because we add more overseas charities to Schedule 32 for donor status, but usually there's other changes as well. When changes are made, they're typically recommended jointly by Inland Revenue and Treasury, at the moment, policy officials from Inland Revenue, DIA, MV and Treasury actually meet once a month, so we know what each other's doing, and we take an, an informed approach to what we do. In the last year, I worked with a team at Inland Revenue about, on about 12 changes that went through in the June 18 bill, and they were passed in March this year. The main themes are shown on the slide. The biggest change, which we hope will result in more donations being made to charities, is simplifying the way donors can claim back their donation tax credits. So from 1st of April this year, they can just um, photograph or upload copies of their donation receipts as soon as they make the donations, and it will refund the donation tax credit automatically at the end of the year in most cases. So that should make things a lot easier. That idea actually came from our public consultation in 2017 about how to simplify the tax system. About half of the other changes were focused on improving integrity of the current rules within our existing policy settings. So for example, making sure all organisations with donor status uh, published on our donated list. The other half reduced compliance costs for small charities. So for example, we introduced a $10,000 de minimis threshold for the deregistration tax. And I think that will take out about 60% of registered charities from that tax. A number of suggestions uh, for these changes actually comes from the sector itself, through a writing to the minister, um, writing to policy officials, or raising these suggestions at select committee. For example, most of those deregistration tax changes actually were suggested in submissions to the Select Committee in the previous year. For complex deregistration changes, we actually used a targeted consultation and we got about 12 key officials, uh, sorry, key industry advisors for the interviews before we put those changes through. So in summary, we do have a dynamic environment with charity tax law. It's typically made up of small changes within the current policy settings and many of which of those are suggested by the sector, though occasionally there are wider, um, more significant changes to policy settings uh, with this consultation. I don't know if I need to go through this, I'm sort of um, uh, running out of time. Tax working group recommendations, I think we all know what's in there. The group focused on four um, areas for charities. Um, what I would say is that the officials have told the Minister that we will report to him on what we recommend in respect to those four areas after the charity's modernisation review is complete. 
So we won't be reporting to the Minister um, on those four things until um, uh, later this year. This one is just thinking about other things that have come to our attention from time to time. And maybe they're not new to you. Um, imputation credit refundability is often raised as a change that could be made for the sector. As you know, it's not imputation credits aren't refundable in New Zealand. Um, the rise of social enterprises um, have come up. Should tax concessions be extended to entities where there is an element of private benefit? Um, are there other tax issues that we need to consider um, that would affect social enterprises, such as donating trading stock? At the moment, if you donate trading stock, you can't claim a tax deduction for that trading stock. In fact, you have to return it as market value in return. Charitable purposes. Um, when the charity regulator decides the purpose is not charitable, should the government still, in certain circumstances, provide tax exemptions, as we did for community housing a couple of years ago? General tax concessions. When will and won't general tax concessions be extended to charities? Uh, for example, the R&D refundable tax credits being considered at the moment. Donation tax concessions, how could we change those to make them more effective? And not-for-profits generally, and usually when I present to not-for-profits who aren't tax exempt, they'll raise two issues, a thousand dollar deduction, are you going to increase that? And I usually say, well, better be careful, or we might just get rid of it completely. Um, and um, more, more seriously, um, mutuality and should not-for-profits pay tax on transactions between members uh, or not and can we and Germany provide better guidance in that area. So I just want to end with the point about inland revenue um, and um, how we engage with the sector. Um, so I think the future of tax and charities is not just about war, it's about how we do engage with the sector and how the sector engages with us. We know there are opportunities for inland revenue to improve in this area. About, an in, about a year ago, inland revenue, uh, our structure changed and um, to reflect a stronger customer focus. And not-for-profits are explicitly part of our structure now. Um, we've made some immediate small steps, so you might notice we have a new site for not-for-profits that we keep up to date. We're actually using social media, and last week was the first time we um, tweeted on Facebook and LinkedIn um, news about charities, so you can expect that in the future. Um, over the next month, uh, a research team is interviewing a range of not-for-profits, as well as surveying not-for-profits um, about their experiences with inland revenue. So if you get chosen, we'd really appreciate you linking into that and responding. Even if you don't, we're interested in your views. And you can see I've put on this slide, um, if you want to email us at charities.careers.iod.government.nz, by end of May, um, put charity insights in the subject line, tell us what's working well with inland revenue for your charity. And what could inland revenue improve, either operationally or through recommending a law change for your charity? So we are actually going to have a lot more focus on the not-for-profit sector and charities in the future. We're happy, of course, for that anonymous that feedback to be anonymous if you prefer. Thank you for your time, and I look forward to hearing my fellow presenters. Thanks. Thank you for that, Stuart. Um, I think that was a really good summary of the issues and I know that a lot of the things that you touched on are going to come up later in this panel and later in the conference. Um, I'll now invite Artie Chan to come and give her views. Thank you, Jamie, and um, good afternoon to all of you. 
What I am going to cover very briefly today is the business income tax concession. Specifically, I'll touch on how the provision stands at the moment, then we'll look at who's using it, we'll look at some of the changes that are coming through, and then the future, because we're talking about the future of charities and tax, we'll look at the future of this concession. Is this useful, effective, and are we, is it really relevant? Let's start with the provision itself. At a very, very simplistic level, if you have a registered tax charity and it wants to conduct business through a separate entity, it can set one up. That's great. If that trading entity has a charitable purpose, then it can benefit from the income tax exemption. What that means is that the trading entity does not have to be a charity at the moment, um, but it will still not have to pay income tax, which is really great. Now, that leads us to the question, who's actually using it? Well, all of us who work with charities or for charities know that the biggest issue all charities face is funding. We have our primary sources of funding, government, donors, so forth. But a lot of charities are looking to become more self-sufficient or having some degree of self-sufficiency when it comes to funding. By having a business, conducting business, you do generate funding which you can manage and control. The income tax concession allows you to set something this up relatively simply and manage it for the purposes of your organisation. Now there are other reasons for this. Um, there might be charities who want to provide goods and services at a, at a different rate and, and conduct business to be able to facilitate all of those types of things. The tax working group, um, their stats say that 30% of charities have some sort of trading arm, um, which, which is unsurprising. Um, in my experience, uh, I've seen a lot of charities investing in commercial property, residential property, and of course retirement villages, but then that's just a snapshot of the types of activities that charities are getting into. One of the issues that has been identified and ha has now been really fixed is transparency. So you have the, the main charity that's a registered charity but its trading entity to get this income tax exemption does not have to be a charity. So it's not regulated in the same way as a charity, it does not have reporting requirements and that was seen to be a bit of a gap. We don't really just want to focus on the charity, we also want to make sure that the underlying trading entities are, are operating in the way that, that, that they should. So what we now have is a new section, uh, a new amendment to section CW42, which says that the trading entity itself needs to be registered as a, as a charity. That will come in from the 1st of April 2020, and, and that will mean that the, that the landscape changes a little bit. Now in terms of other issues, the tax working group received a lot of submissions from people who were against this income tax concession. And the reason for that being that they felt that giving this income tax concession to charities operating businesses gave those businesses an unfair competitive advantage, and we don't want that. Now, we might be able to get over that hurdle and say, well, okay, numerically, do we really have a, a, a commercial advantage here? Maybe, but how significant is it? And at the end of the day, if all of those profits are going to the charity, Waste the fire, why are we getting so excited? Now, 
The other issue, which, which to me seems to be more of an issue, is this issue around accumulation of those profits. So if the trading entity itself is accumulating its profits, and there isn't sort of a systematic distribution of those profits to the ultimate charity, then is the charity utilizing those profits? And are we concerned that there is this accumulation? Now, there might be legitimate reasons for it. So it might be because you want to purchase a capital asset, so you want to retain those profits. Or it might be that you want to reinvest those profits because you want to develop a bit of a nest egg. Regardless of your, your motivations, we will see some debate and discussion around whether there should be some more restrictions placed on this income tax concession, which maybe requires a, a distribution of profits at, at every 12 months, or having providing some information as to why those distributions aren't happening. Now, what is the future? Well, we are going to see a, a lot of international jurisdictions have, have started to work to its basis that we will have an income tax concession for businesses that operate for charities, but what sort of businesses should they be operating? Are we okay with charities operating any type of business? Or do we want to, again, restrict that and say, well, we want you to operate businesses that are related to your charitable purposes, and if you do that, we will give you an income tax exemption. But if you fall outside of it, you won't. Um, an example would be, for instance, if you have a charity that provides counselling for parents, and, and that's what it does, but then it decides to, to generate funds, we're going to put our counsellors out into the wider marketplace and, and get them to provide those services at arm's cost. Now, that's a separate business, great. If we make money from it, then it's related to the primary purpose that our charity has, so we should have an income tax exemption. Now, what happens if, for instance, that same organisation is lucky enough to have enough resources to invest in commercial property? Let's just say that they are able to. If they do that and start operating that as, as, a, as a business going on to that, if it's not related to the core type of services that they're providing, should they still get the income tax exemption? Or should that fall out and you get taxed as a normal business because it's moved away from what you were trying to do? I would expect New Zealand to start having those discussions. And I would see that this income tax concession becoming more and more restricted in terms of its use. And my personal opinion, we're probably going to see this section not being used very often. Um, it, it's just going to probably become a little bit redundant. Anyway, on that sort of slightly doom and gloom note, <laughs> I'm going to um, wrap this up and um, pass this on to the next panelist. Thank you.
um, whether that's with Naitaku Maimi in the far south, uh, all the way through to some of the Tehuku uh, in the far north. Um, I'm going to just talk very briefly. I mean, I always find it interesting when you get a panel of uh, five tax advisors and you give them seven minutes to talk about their topic of choice. Um, to get us to stay within seven minutes is going to be a, a little bit of a challenge. So I'm probably not going to touch on everything I'd like to share with you today in relation to the Māori sector and in particular the interaction with the charities uh, law uh, and tax in particular, but um, I'll try and give you a little bit of a flavour of some of the issues that are there. I just wanted to start by, um, can you just quick show of hands, how many people in the room work with Māori organisations and charities? Yeah, okay, so quite a few of you. So look, what I put up on the screen, I thought it was useful rather than sort of jumping right to the future to just take a couple of minutes and talk a little bit about the current state. And you will appreciate every mining organisation will have a slightly different structure, so this is just really illustrative. But um, it's probably, there's probably some common themes in amongst it. So I appreciate that the words are really small. Um, if I'd known that you were sitting way at the back, I probably would have made them slightly bigger. So I'll just talk through them as we go. So at the very top, and most importantly, we have our iwi. That is the whole purpose or the reason for why these organisations exist. What typically sits underneath it, represented by the dark blue box, is what we call our post-settlement governance entity. That is the entity that the Crown has agreed, has got the mandate to settle with the Crown in relation to the EB's claim. And that is where ultimately the assets, the rights and the obligations initially first pass. That post-settlement governance entity takes on the role of governance for the group generally speaking, looking after the strategic, setting the strategic direction uh, for the group and ensuring that the group delivers the outcomes that are important to the people. As you look at it, on the bottom left-hand side, in the lighter blue colour, we've got an asset holding company and we've got a charitable investment trust. That asset holding company is not a charity, but I will touch on what, um, a little bit further on my presentation around how and why we have that in our structures. Typically the light blue area of that, of that diagram, their focus is to grow the putia, the assets that have been received from the Crown for the purposes of providing a commercial return. And that can often comprise a mixture of both taxable entities and charities. On the bottom right, as you look at it in the green, uh, in the green circle, is our Emmy Development Trust. The role and function of that particular charitable entity is for it to deliver the charitable outcomes and the charitable purposes to the iwi. Um, I thought I'd just show you a little bit about how the funding works in the structure. Again, apologies for the fact that it's actually quite small. But if you think about at the bottom level of the structure as you look at it, those effectively are our commercial entities that are generating financial returns. So as you look at it on the left-hand side, we have taxable subsidiaries, we have, um, uh, we have limited partnerships represented by the triangles, and those are feeding up revenues all the way up to the, uh, the dark blue box in the middle, which is our asset holding company, which we've talked about before, and also the round circle in the middle, which is sort of a greeny colour, that's our charitable investment trust. Again, thinking back to the previous slide, the focus of those two entities is really around generating financial return. What happens is the financial returns are generally passed uh, up to the parent entity if it's sitting on the taxable side. So you can see there's a big arrow on the left hand side of the structure making its way up to the top. That's our distribution of taxable Māori Authority distributions and Māori Authority tax credits. In the middle we have our, our, our charitable investment trust. It is generating tax-free um, tax earnings, particularly often from, from um, the businesses that it's conducting. And that will be distributing, as you look at it, 
from the centre out to the right-hand side of the EV Development Trust on a charity-to-charity basis. And from there, the EV Development Trust distributes up to, up to EMU. So within the structure, we actually have two levers to pull. When we're wanting to deliver benefits to our iwi, we can either deliver them through our charitable side, which is through the iwi development trust, or alternatively, our taxable distributions, which can come up through the parent, the parent entity. So what are some of the perspectives in relation to the structures that Māori organisations use in tax, in tax and charities in particular? Ostensibly at its heart, the post-settlement government entities that settle with the Crown are ostensibly charitable. They exist for the purposes of people, tikanga and environment. But the Crown won't settle into a charitable entity, so they are forced to adopt a particular Crown model around settlement. And that is that the parent entity must be a taxable entity. These organisations exist for the people. If you read the constitutional documents of post-settlement governance entities, you will see very clearly that it's all about ensuring the health and well-being of the people, the health and well-being of Māori culture, and the health and well-being of the environments with which um, those, those EV groups reside. The separation of entities that I've illustrated in the structure is really just about providing the opportunity for there to be good or different governance structures that are placed over the top of those activities. For example, the, the post-settlement government entity is often a politically motivated entity. It is a popularity contest as to whether or not you get appointed onto its governance board. However, we know that if we're wanting to manage commercial assets or we're wanting to develop great programs to deliver to the needs of our people, sometimes we need different skill sets. Hence why we have subsidiary structures to allow that governance to occur. Because the purposes of these entities is all around delivering um, to the people of the Tikanga environment, Māori organisations have a deep understanding of what the needs are um, and what, what is necessary in their particular area to make a difference. So if we start to look at things that might challenge that, things like the taxation of business income and maybe clawing back of some of that stuff, um, there's a real risk, I think, that if we start to, to pull back on, on, on some of those exemptions, we start to deplete the resources that are available to the organisations that best know where those resources need to be delivered. I don't, I don't think any Māori organisation would describe to a view that the Crown would be in a better position to deliver outcomes to its people than what they are. Certainly the Crown's record in that regard is not fantastic. A couple of areas where I think there are some opportunities to, um, to actually positively enhance income, um, out outcomes. We've talked a little bit about the vulnerability of imputation credits. That is a considerable, um, has a considerable impact in relation to the, the way in which Māori organisations operate. Um, I touched before on the fact that we have this taxable asset holding company in our structure that's a Māori authority. The reason we keep that in our structure is because Māori authority credits are refundable credits. So I can route income, which will have a non-refundable imputation credit, through that structure and turn it into a refundable credit. So if we're applying our funds for a charitable purpose, we effectively get our imputation credits back in that mechanism. But there's a cost of doing so. There's a compliance cost of having those structures in order uh, for those outcomes to be achieved. So if we were to remove <coughs> the, fundability of the, the, the impediment around the fundability of imputation credits, we would remove some of the distortions that we have around specific investments being target, targeted by charities or the need for specific structures to get around them. 
Um, I just want to touch finally on a last couple, couple of things, and one is around the distribution and retention tax. Māori organisations have an intergenerational view around their asset base, and the previous presenters were talking about an intergenerational perspective. The charitable sector could learn a hell of a lot from the way in which Māori organisations look at their asset bases and they look at how they're going to provide for today's generation and the many generations that are to come. I'd be really concerned if we were proposing to introduce a form of tax on, on, on business income if it wasn't distributed, if it didn't have in mind the fact that Māori organisations have that long-term view. It's about restoring the putia, restoring the asset bases that they don't presently have, but also at the same time providing an opportunity to be able to deliver to the needs of today and the future generations as well. Any steps in those areas would need to have those in mind. Um, finally, um, I did want to just sort of talk a little bit about charities compliance and where I see the future. And that is we have, um, in the Māori context at least, quite a number of Māori organisations that are adopting structures that are similar to what I've just illustrated. And it's really important <coughs> fundamental to them that they maintain their charitable tax status. So some of the work that we've been doing with some of our Māori organisations is around assisting them to review their processes, to ensure that um, to ensure that their processes are robust, to ensure that they understand what activities that they're carrying out, and those activities are charitable that we're keeping them safe because the risk of a deregistration tax uh, is just too high and in a lot of instances the cost of them will be significant. Anyway, that's about all I can cover in the, it's, all, it's already read, it's been read for about a minute so I'm going to pause here um, and uh, look, I'll be around over, um, over the afternoon to hear anybody else have a bit of a chat. Thank you. Uh, that's what seems to be uh, prioritised. I'll give some examples of this shortly. Uh, 
Uh, secondly, um, in terms of the way that uh, some policy changes, or what I see as matters that should be dealt with as policy matters, the one which they've pushed through, um, I think, has, has been a little controversial. Um, and there I have in mind some of the reinterpretation to certain aspects of the tax legislation that's happened of late, um, and some of the more recent remedial uh, legislative changes that have come through uh, and haven't garnered the attention they should have had from the charitable sector uh, in terms of pushing back and, and getting it right. Thirdly, um, I think there's an issue about the Charities Act versus charity taxation. Um, in the end, the Charities Act is tax legislation, um, or at least a large part of it is. It's tax legislation. It's regulating your access to tax um, in terms of income tax exemption at the moment uh, and going forward uh, in relation to tax incentives. And I think there's a bit of a, a lack of clarity in relation to, to, to that feature of the Charities Act registration regime and the role of DIA and IRD in relation to policy development uh, impacting on charity taxation. And then for the, just in terms of the charitable sector, obviously there's a lack of capacity and resource to deal with this stuff. Um, to some extent, not what, uh, individual charities don't want to put their heads above the parapet. Um, we just don't have the time, uh, apart from delivering on their, their charitable uh, works, to, to get heavily involved in policy stuff. Um, I think there is a lack of awareness or engagement on the part of, of, of the sector to a degree. Um, and I think that flows through to a lack of representation and submissions on on important matters. Just in terms of some examples, um, just thinking about the tax working group and what happened there. Um, you've got a, a tax working group process that looks at the New Zealand tax system, how to get it right going forward. In terms of charity taxation, 100% focus on effectively integrity issues, tightening things up, clawing things back. It's not surprising because I appreciate that the official's report, or secretariat report, that went to the working group covered broadly uh, how the tax system supports the charitable sector. But what did it focus on? What did it say to focus on? A couple of integrity issues. Um, and I think that reflects that mindset that I mentioned earlier around what, what gets focused on at the moment. It's the negative and not the positive. I think it's also notable with the tax working group that there are lots of individual submissions I run out of time already. My, my, my countdown is showing zero. Oh, I've got all the time in the world. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so just to take an example, what, what, and, and we've already heard this mentioned a couple of times, but will it actually get looked at seriously? Um, you know, 10, 10 or so years ago, streaming and refundability of invitation credits. That was put forward as a positive measure, as we mentioned a few times already, uh, to support the charitable sector. It's wholly consistent with uh, Parliament's position on uh, exempting charities. Um, why wasn't that part of, for example, the tax burden uh, agenda uh, for charity taxation going forward? Just thinking about the way in which, what I, as, I, as I say, things that I think should have been dealt with as policy matters um, have, have ended up being dealt with as reinterpretation of legislation um, and then have been dealt with by way of so-called remedial legislative changes. There have been a lot of developments over the past 10 years around donation tax incentives. Um, I think there's been a fairly aggressive approach on the part of inland revenue um, in terms of 
what is a gift that qualifies um, for a donation tax credit or deduction. Um, and it's an aggressive approach that has cast to one side the long-standing position in relation to the same types of payments qualifying for tax credits in the past. Um, so again, I think that reflects this, this mindset that I talked about. Also in the, in the donation tax incentive space, the approach to donor organisation status um, and the issue of organisations applying their funds wholly or mainly uh, to charitable or qualifying purposes within New Zealand. That was dealt with as a reinterpretation of the wholly or mainly requirement, with IRD casting aside the more than 50% that had been accepted for many, many years and indeed was the basis upon which uh, the rewritten terms of the, of the legislative provisions uh, were passed and came up with, at least initially, mainly means more than 90%. That can scale back in terms of the final position that's been reached, it's a tolerable uh, position that's been reached, um, but it, that should have been dealt with, I think, as a policy matter, not pushed through as a sort of an interpretation matter. In terms of the, the latest legislation that's pushed through, um, I've had Stuart on about this a few times. Um, the changes that Stuart talked about in the recent legislation were all <coughs> described as remedial changes, tucked away in the back of the commentary. They didn't get much attention, there weren't many submissions. Um, we tried. Um, the uh, Law Society's Tax Committee tried, but they didn't receive a lot of attention because of that description remedial changes, and they were quite important changes. IRD, statutory provision for IRD pre-approval of donor organisation status, without any clarification around things like timing issues or other, other issues. It's equivalent to a Charities Act registration process, but without a full act to deal with. You've got a broadly worded anti-avoidance provision around donation tax credit claims now. Um, we pulled that back a little bit. Um, but the original drafting was the type of drafting that IRDs only got away with in relation to certain types of tax credit claims. Uh, it's as if they knew that the charitable sector wasn't going to be sufficiently engaged uh, for them. Uh, wouldn't be sufficiently engaged to push back on them. And you've got interest and penalty provisions applying to um, incorrect donation tax credit claims. All those things bundled into some sort of remedial changes in the latest tax legislation. And I think those things Standing back, looking at all those developments in that area, this should have been dealt with as a policy matter. There could have been a discussion document around these issues, and then much better legislation, if legislation was required, around donation tax incentives. And then I come to the, the, the Charities Act review itself, and its tax implications. Um, seems a bit artificial when registration is required for tax purposes to access tax concessions that you delink the review um, from those tax concessions. For example, if we're going to be reviewing the business income tax exemption and the, its scope, doesn't that feed into what sort of registration and, re and, and ongoing compliance requirements you have under the Charities Act? If accumulations are linked to, or concerns about accumulations are linked to the use of the business income tax exemption, why is that all being muddled into, muddled into the Charities Act review rather than having a wider review that encompasses the tax policy. And I think there are probably other examples I could give as well, but those are the ones that came to mind. So then thoughts on 
Can we improve the process? I think individually and institutionally, um, I think there can be a, a change of mindset. Um, so, in terms of looking at charity taxation policy now over the next 10 or so years, I think there can be change of mindset. And I think that, as I say, that starts with us in this room uh, and other individuals involved in the sector. Um, and, 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 and it spreads out with the, for the organisation. But for officials in particular, and my, my, sort of my challenge to, to Stuart and his colleagues um, is to think about a change of mindset. And that means accepting that, as Parliament has over many years, that tax concessions to charities deliver public benefit. And that charity taxation for the future is not just about clawing back or tightening um, existing concessions. It can and should also be about enhancing and extending concessions where appropriate. And we've heard some examples mentioned already. Um, I've jotted down imputation credit refundability, and you will have noted that Mark mentioned that Māori Authority credits are refundable. Why not uh, the same position? Uh, why isn't the same position seriously looked at uh, in the wider charitable sector? Uh, facilitating or encouraging social enterprise, if tax changes could, could do that. Incentivising appropriate non-monetary donations, not just gifts and money. But I think also when you're looking at sort of clawing back or tightening existing concessions, having a balanced approach to that as well. So in terms of the, the competitive advantage that um, tax-exempt charitable businesses have, they also have disadvantages in terms of attracting equity funding uh, to develop their businesses. It's not a, it's all advantage, no disadvantage. Um, there are other factors that need to be taken into account when reviewing that exemption. And there are also just compliance and complexity issues. You start looking at unrelated businesses or different approach to business and un unrelated business income, you've got to draw lines between passive and business income, between related and unrelated businesses. Um, and that's another factor to be taken into account in terms of complicating the law through. Improving IRD's approach, I, I think some of the issues I talked about earlier could be improved through care and management and using the generic tax policy process that we have um, whenever possible. Um, Recognising that charity, charity taxation interplay that I mentioned earlier, being transparent about it. And I think also giving the sector better or additional avenues to be heard um, on Charities Act and charity taxation matters. Now I certainly applaud what, what Stuart mentioned earlier about in the interview using uh, communication channels now to be more communicative with the sector, to provide opportunities, as you mentioned, for feedback. Um, but I think there are other things that can be done. Um, with the charitable sector, we helped by formalised, officially recognised advisory board, or formalised, officially recognised sector user group arrangements that gave the sector a better voice. From a lawyer's perspective, is the, is the Law Society's Tax Law Committee enough? It, tr it, it, it does its, what it can uh, to contribute to policy development in the area, uh, but some things do fall through the gaps. I know that the Charities Act Review itself has been bandied about between committees, uh, not knowing quite where it falls. We don't have a charity not-for-profit committee specifically looking at uh, those things, and, and what can CANS do in, in that space as well? 
And of course, from the sector's perspective, are there newer or improved sector-led options? Uh, are there things that the sector can do to band together, with not necessarily as a sector as a whole, and you've got different perspectives on charity tax uh, policy development, um, but perhaps appropriate parts of the sector can do better uh, with sector-led options uh, for influencing <coughs> positive uh, charity taxation policy development. So that's all from me. Thank you.
charity sector. Main charitable purposes, both the same, except one was more in Australia, we're more religious, who would have thought, and you're more educationally focused. Well, there you go, see, you're smarter. Appreciate us educators. And um, very, very similar to in that there's a lot of small charities in both countries. This is really interesting, I think, and food for thought for further discussion. Um, about you know what's what the needs of this sector are and what the compliance costs should be and what the regulation should be. So that's all I wanted to say about that. And then I just wanted to look at the income tax exemption and more particularly the taxation of business tax because I think that's that's a major issue and something that's vexed countries all around the world. You know, we have this concept where all this income tax exemption for charities is some huge subsidy. Everybody's been talking about that today. It's a subsidy. Well, I disagree, and many tax researchers disagree that the income tax exemption is a subsidy. Let's face it, what would these organisations be doing if they had to pay tax? I mean, who would pay tax for a start? Like the charity? But you know, why? When it's, when it's doing all this public good? What about its beneficiaries? Most of the beneficiaries for a large number of charities anyway would be on the poverty line, so they're not taxable anyway. Or they might be receiving benefits and services, not actually income. So it just seems to me, for many other reasons as well, that it's not a subsidy. And in Australia, we don't quantify this uh, amount of tax expenditure in our treasury expenditure statements, we don't say that the income tax exemption costs us any amount of money because it's not quantifiable and it's not really relevant. Okay? We do for donations. That is actually quantified in our treasury statements every year. It's around $3 billion because they can see that. They can say, okay, well, you gave $300 and your average tax rate was 25%. So we've, you know, the, the tax revenue has subsidised by X. I can't think of the maths at the moment, but you know what I mean. So that's that's a completely different system, and they're, they're sort of segregated in Australia. The income tax exemption is very much you know, charitable status, but the tax donee status is very different. We won't go into that today. But let's have a look at a few things that my colleagues very cleverly said, which I think were wonderful. I loved every presentation. Uh, he talked about 30% of charities here having a trading arm. Now, I'm sure that it's very similar in Australia. We don't talk so much about trading arms, but there are some charities that by their very nature um, provide services or goods that get income in. So you think about you know, universities that charge fees, not-for-profit schools that charge fees, hospitals that charge fees. They're all charities. By their very nature, they get income in. But then there are other organisations that need to raise money because you know, donations are not as high as they used to be. They're not coping with inflation or, or the increased demands of expenditure. Government grants aren't either. And they're very limited and restrictive government grants. So these organisations need to go out and, and earn money in some way. And there seems to be a sort of a mindset which we uh, seem to have overcome in Australia, and I'm not saying we're a gold standard by any means, but we seem to have overcome this mindset that there's something wrong with charities actually earning money. You know, we seem to think, as the High Court said in Word Investments, well, they can't all just be out there doing lavington drives. It's just not going to cut it. 
you know, so why not let them carry on a business? I know we've got this idea about competitive neutrality. The Productivity Commission in 2010 in Australia said that was just nonsense. I have to tell you, I'm sorry to tell you, this is from an economist's point of view, I couldn't work that out because I'm not an economist. But basically, unless the charity is out there undercutting its market traders, its marketplace, they're not getting any benefit. Sanitarium doesn't charge any less for their cereal than Kellogg's. And I don't see Kellogg's going out of business. So it's the same sort of principle. Am I at the end of my time? I am? Oh, yes. Okay. It's working this time. All right. Well, then, I think there's some other countries and what they do. Including New Zealand, I haven't caught up with. I know the trading subsidy subsidiary thing is there, and I agree with what Artie said. I think it's just waste of space, but anyway. The US has, where's the US? Yes, US. Unloaded business income is taxable. It's a nightmare of a tax. It costs a lot of money to, to administer, to comply with. It gets, collects no revenue, and it's just a burden. So don't do it. Thank you. <laughs> Session 5 was Governing Charities with Sarah Doherty, Chris Kelly, Rosemary Langford, Karen Rangi, Tina Wilson, and Andrew Phillips is the moderator. Thank you, Craig. Just a bit of a feverish getting in while my turn over the last few seconds. Tenekoto Kato, Ko Naratano Kokoba Atafai, Tokuro Mahi, Ko Andrew Phillips, Tokuro Nekoto Kato. So my name is Andrew Phillips, I work at Charity Services, I'm a manager of our engagement and business improvement team. And one of my roles is overseeing our efforts at building the capability of the charity sector, and in particular our function to educate charities for matters of good governance. And we've been wrestling with the concept of governance and charity services for the last few years. Um, we've been trying, it's one of our, as you've heard Natasha speak, uh, speak earlier today, it's one of our really key focuses this year to try and get some resources out there which can really hopefully build charities' governments. Um, I think it's quite interesting um, earlier today thinking about those um, swimming between the flags, where we should put those flags. And I think that's it, we are certainly com coming to try and figure out where where those flags should be. We're very conscious that a lot of different um, flags exist already out there in a lot of different legal regimes. So it's quite hard for charities to navigate that space, actually figure out where they should be swimming so they're not smashing into the rocks. Um, and, and fortunately today, we have a fantastic lineup of people who are hopefully going to be able to shed some light on the issue of how we can improve charities' governments. Um, so we have um, Chris Kelly, who will give us a legal perspective, particularly on what um, changes to the Trustee Act mean for um, trustees of charities, and a little bit about charities and the older population charities and what that means for the future. Um, then Karen Rangi, who's a governance specialist and previously a member of the Charities Registration Board, We'll be looking at the broad issues of what, um, what does purpose governance look like in the wider community government sector, and what mechanisms can support good governance. Um, then Sarah Doherty, trustee of the um, New Zealand Navigator Trust and director at Doherty Solutions on the will be using, um, exploring governance from the grass, grassroots charity perspective, particularly using the learnings of New Zealand Navigator, the system set up 
for charities to self-assess their governments over a number of years. Um, then Tina Wilson from New Zealand Trade Enterprise will talk about the particular issues and challenges for governance of Māori organisations. And finally, Dr Rosemary Langford from the University of Melbourne will give her perspective on how governance standards have worked in an Australian context. Um, and then we'll have opportunities for questions, hopefully, if everyone's took time. So, without further ado, I will um, like to introduce Chris to kick us off. Thank you, Andrew. And I don't have to go to the mic, do I? Stand here. Yes, good. <laughs> so, um, normally I have slides, but I haven't got any slides today. I feel quite bereft, but hope you'll, hope you'll cope anyway. Uh, so, as, as Andrew said, two things I want to touch on briefly. One is legislative change, and the other is to do with the ageing population and what that might mean for charities. So, um, the legislation I want to talk about is the Trust Bill. We've heard about other legislative changes in the wind. But the Trust Bill um, is actually in front of Parliament right now, so it's going to happen. Um, it's had a long, long gestation. I can remember agitating for reform in the 90s, would you believe? Um, but the bill is there. It will come into force in, 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 the, in the not too distant future. Um, it doesn't affect, of course, all charities, but it does affect those charities that are trusts, which is quite a lot of charities, certainly the ones I uh, act for and, and work with. Um, so as I said, the bill is a long lead in time, so it's probably about two years before it's going to be in force, but it will make some changes for trustees of trusts, including charitable trusts. One of the big things the bill does is for the first time ever, trustees' standard duties will be actually set out in black and white so you can look at them. Up till now, it's uh, textbooks like the one I wrote, which sort of discuss what the duties are in a discursive sort of way and refer to some cases here and there. Now we'll actually have them in black and white, and you can refer to them. So that's going to be quite helpful. Um, as always, most of those duties are things which apply by default unless you say something different in your trust deed. So the answer to all questions related to trust is always, what does the trust deed say? So that's where you go first. Um, one of the trustees' um, standard obligations, which um, has always applied to trustees, was the rule that trustees have to be unanimous. Before you panic, yes, there was an exemption for charitable trusts. There always ha there has long been an exemption for charitable trusts. Charities are allowed to make majority decisions. Um, in the new bill, it just restates the unanimity rule and doesn't mention the charity exemption. So I have a slight concern uh, that that exemption might have actually got lost. I'm not sure whether that's deliberate or not, but it doesn't seem to be mentioned in the bill. What I do recommend to those charities that are trusts, go and look at the trust deed. Usually, most of the deeds will say the trustees of this charity can make majority decisions. You'll usually have a clause there about the quorum required for meetings and how many must vote in favour of the proposition and so on. That's good if you've got it. If you haven't, you may need to think again because up till now you were able to make majority decisions. In future, it may not be possible. I would recommend looking at whether you can change the deed. There may be a variation power. Um, some other big changes in the bill. Uh, the trustees' powers are set out in, in quite wide terms now. Um, most trustees will already have a clause saying the trustees can do just about everything that a human being could do. 
Um, uh, that's more or less what the bill now says as well. You may not want that in your charity, of course. You may decide that your charity should have limited powers. It may have been the intention all along. If so, you may need to change the terms of your trust deed. Um, there are other new rules that are passing interest. Um, there's new powers to appoint and remove trustees where there's an impasse or an inability to get rid of someone who's um, perhaps no longer competent to act as a trustee and so on. Um, that will, will help in some cases. There's the ability to delegate your powers as, tr as trustee if you're overseas. That's always been there, but it's improved. And there are also some uh, new rules about clauses. I don't know how many charities have this, but I think quite a few do, where the clause that says the trustees are not to be held liable for anything that goes wrong, provided they acted reasonably, honestly, didn't um, deliberately do something that they knew was wrong. The Act now limits the extent of those clauses and says you can only be let off as trustee if uh, there's no evidence of dishonesty, willful conduct or gross negligence. So slightly higher standard probably for trustees in future. Finally, it may only be occasionally relevant but some, uh, for some of you, but there's also uh, alternative dispute resolution processes in the Act. So you can actually use mediation if you've got an impasse within a trust. So those only affect trustees, but I think they're quite useful to know that they're coming up. I think in particular, if you're feeling hamstrung by lack of powers in your deed, in the future you may have a lot more power. Um, but you do need to think about whether you need to still to be able to make majority decisions rather than being stuck with unanimous ones. Now the other thing that I've noticed over my many years as a, a trust practitioner is the problems increasingly caused by an ageing population. And certainly with private trusts, we've noticed quite often people hang on too long. It's too late to retire because they haven't got the mental capacity to sign the documents anymore. And it's very complicated. There's been a heap of cases in front of the courts where trustees had to be removed because they were no longer mentally competent. Now, I haven't seen it yet in the charitable trust sector too much, but I am starting to get conscious of the tendency for some charities, especially, uh, particularly smaller ones, I think, to be run by local community volunteers, often retired people who've got the time. And the problem I, I, I am concerned about is, have we got a succession plan going here? Uh, I've, in previous uh, law society conferences on elder law where I've spoken, I've talked about a, a grey tsunami of ageing New Zealanders. I feel qualified to talk about a grey tsunami. Um, but uh, there is, there is you know, we are ageing, we are living a lot longer, people are trying to be active a lot longer, and that's great, but um, you, people, trustees and, and others on committees of charities need to be aware of the need to move on, to bring in new blood regularly. In some organisations there are, of course, rules that say you have to stand down after a few years. Uh, the problem I've seen is that it's all very well you're ready to stand down, but there's no one to replace you. No one wants the job, particularly if you happen to be the Secretary of the Treasurer. <laughs> because Secretaries and Treasurers, no one wants those jobs. I know, I've been one. Um, so, uh, you know, you need to think about that succession planning. Are we, you know, in the case of, of uh, incorporated societies and organisations like where you've got a membership base, and some trusts have memberships as well. Is your membership active? I've you know, had cases where the, the membership just sort of shrinks and shrinks. 
and you have difficulty getting a quorum at meetings and it's very easy for a, a group to take over and misuse a, a group, so, a, a charity. So, and that has happened on odd occasions. So I do sound a word of warning. Have you got plans in place to make sure your charity is active, mem new members are being recruited? In the case of trustees, what is your trustee replacement process? Some of the bigger ones I've seen have a, almost an HR committee that sort of goes out and headhunts potential new trustees and brings them in. Uh, I think that's a very good process if you're big enough to manage it. Um, so that's just my, my thought about future governance, making sure you've got new blood coming in all the time. Kia ora and it would be very remiss of me as a governor uh, not to officially welcome you to the Museum of New Zealand Te Papa on behalf of my colleagues on the board here. And I um, want to start by saying that my, um, well, number one, I love a captive audience, so I'm just going to get someone to lock the doors for the next <laughs> <laughs> um, But secondly, my views and thoughts on governance in this sector are very much shaped by my experience current experiences as governor on two charities, two crown entities, and of course this is one of them, and a couple of international awards. And so I just wanted to check in the room who here is a governor of charity. Yeah, so a good chance. So of the rest of you, who's a governor in a commercial organisation? Oh, a few of those. And so the rest of you must be friends of ours. That's <laughs> <laughs> really good. So, um, I've got two areas of thinking I wanted to flip with you, and the first one is around the challenges for strengthening the governance in the charities, or the not-for-profit, or the community government sector is probably the best way to describe it. So, um, who here thinks that uh, governance in our sector is strong? Whoa. Okay. <laughs> so who thinks it's absolutely... Awesome. Strong. Thank you. What about at the other end? Okay, so absolutely terrible. So if that was a five and that was a one, uh, all the rest of you are three. <laughs> Two and a half. Yeah? Okay. So my first lot of thoughts was around the context in which we uh, all have an interest in seeing governments get stronger in our sector. And part of that context are the views generally on governance in this country. So I just wanted to pass my views by you. These are based on comments and thoughts I hear from people in the government space. So the first thing is, there's a hierarchy to governance in this country. So business is king, so if you're on a corporate board, that's real governance, doing governance properly. And then there's a big leap sort of downwards to not-for-profit boards that are paid. And then there's an even bigger leap down to not-for-profit or charity boards where you're not paid. And then right at the bottom, because this is the place where they tell you to go and practice governance, uh, school boards and trustees, because after all it's only the education of our kids for some matter. So I, I hear this expressed quite often, and I think it is one of the challenges as to why uh, it is difficult to get good governance in our sector. Now it's not to say that we don't get good people. I've got awesome colleagues on the boards that I uh, serve on. But I do think that uh, the second factor around this are some of the perceptions around governance generally. So here's the first one. 
It's easy. The staff do all the work. Governors just go to meetings and eat your lunch and go home. Um, the second one is that it's an end-of-life occupation. So you do it after you've done everything else, right? So you've got something to bring. And there's a certain amount of um, rational thinking in that. Um, but there's also the implication that you can only be a governor if you're old. And I don't subscribe to that at all, even though I'm old. Um, the, the third thing, and it's, it gets to the hierarchy, that somehow uh, not-for-profit governance is not as valuable as other governments, particularly if it's paid. And um, fourthly, and this is a bit of a variation on the theme of it being easy, is that, um, you know, it's really hard work when you're a governor on a commercial board because you've got all that, you've got those targets to meet. Well, I must say there are days when, some, as I said, I'm on the board of Te Papa, there are days when it would be great just to have one target of making some money and not trying to address a range of complex issues for a very wide audience. So I've got some different views of that. So uh, I think that does have a bearing on the way that people, both inside our sector and outside the sector, um, pursue, perceive the importance of governance. And I think too the fact that it's largely learned on the job, because, so who learned about governance when they were at school? You know what I mean? Um, and I would say most of us learn by just getting on there and probably mostly by doing stuff wrong. Those are the best learnings. So again, I think there's a bit of work to be done both inside our sector and outside to um, work on how we value governance. So what kind of things, my second lot of ideas was what can we do to support um, getting governance better? And so the first thing I think there's got to be an attitudinal change uh, towards the value of governance. And, um, and I think that change is, again has got to come from both inside and the outside. But I think too that developing more purposeful support to, to getting governance better um, is really important. So we're really lucky in this country that we have got some great resources like NZ Navigator that Sarah's going to talk about. Um, but I, one of my observations is that a lot of the resources are concentrating on the technical skills of being a governor, so how to read a balance sheet things like how to do a risk register. And there is very little support around the bit I think that makes the most difference, which is the behavioural skills that you need to make a board, you know, how do you play nicely with your mates? How do you bring diverse views together towards the common purpose of the organisation? It's a lot harder to find that support. And I'd say in most cases where boards have, um, where things have gone to custard, has been where relationships have broken down. So I think a focus on support for building strong behavioural skills is one way that we could get stronger boards. I think too, looking at some of the changes that we might need in governance practices, so some of these things that have been long-standing hallmarks. So I hear people talk about the importance of consensus decision making. I would suggest to you that if we're really going to make the most of having diverse views at the table, then perhaps our focus should not be on consensus, but it should be on what are the range of options that we've got open to us in order to be successful as organisations. And finally, I think, um, and this is responsibility for all of us, that we need to be making space for new and different models of governance to be developed. So, um, at the age of, I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but old. Um, you know, I don't for one minute think if I was a 21-year-old starting out a governance career now, then I would necessarily design the processes that we have. So I think there's good reasons for some of the governance practices that we have. But we've got room to actually let people grow and find practices that work for them and work for these generations. And um, 
and start with what they care about. So what does the data tell us? People are often motivated to get busy at the start of the year. So March is the busiest month for self-assessment in NZ Navigator land. So about 30% of assessments are completed between February and April, and then the rest are evenly spread throughout the year. Social services, culture, sport and rec, health and religious organisations are actively using NZ Navigator. Environment, education, development and housing, much less so. Based on the overall average over the past year, the highest rated domains have been relationships, you might laugh at the next one, finances, and direction, which is the language that we use around your strategy. The lowest rated domains are evaluation, communication, and administration. And to clarify, communication is about telling your story and engaging with your stakeholders, not so much around relationships. So from the data, there's a couple of um, interesting insights that I wanted to share with you. One is around uptake. So for the most part, uptake follows population, Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch. But there are three regions that are outstanding in the field with really high uptake. So Waikato, Bay of Plenty, and Taranaki. And what we know is that in those regions, there are long established, really highly regarded community-based capability builders active. So it shows that there's a link between having trusted support on the ground and getting on with self-assessment. In terms of development stage, we ask people to indicate if they're new, emerging, growing, or developed. New and growing organisations are the ones that are most engaged in self-assessment, and that makes sense. You're at the start, you want to find some things out, you're growing, you want to pause and see what do we take with us going forward, what do we leave behind. Developed organisations that have been around for longer than 10 years know that you have to stop and pause and reflect. Interestingly, the ones who really meh, don't bother are emerging organisations. So that's in their first two, three, four years. Um, and interestingly, at this time, it's exactly in that um, period of their development that they're forming their patterns and habits, including what they do about governance. And it correlates with the use of community net Aotearoa. So the five most visited resources um, over the last year are all to do with setting up a new organisation, um, including legal structures, trustees, and that sort of thing. So to finish, I've got some advice for those who are working to improve governance in Aotearoa. Speak to two-year-old organisations in the South Island in the first half of the year. <laughs> <laughs> and also, <laughs> present governance and what it is and why it matters at the initial inquiry and registration um, phase and stage. Follow up in year two. Look at your register in year two. Talk to people and get them reflecting. Give them some indicators about where they should be up to in their governance development. Um, and thirdly, develop really practical tools, that's for all of us, that supports people's behaviour. There's lots more to discuss, the screen's turned red. There is one other element, because you know I've got the speaker and so I'm going to. And I'm really interested that we carry on a conversation and discussion here in New Zealand 
to look at cultural paradigms that exist here and look for great models of governance that are not typical Western European ways of looking at things. So go to Pacific communities, Māori communities, and understand how are decisions made, how are assets managed, how are disputes resolved, how do organisations and communities stay on track? Because believe me, there are solutions sitting in there to all of that stuff. And if we meld and merge and learn from one another, we can have something that's really pretty awesome, but also actually works here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So, kia ora. Karen was uh, equally box ticking along the way. 
But that didn't mean that you just got there and you rested on your laurels. You had to bring something to the table. And um, I think the best governance that I've, uh, the governance learnings I've had is being surrounded by great governors and learning from them and watching from them. So you need that, uh, that knowledge and that strength at those governance tables, no matter what uh, business or structure they are. And it's equally hard up in their charities because you come from quite a different cloth uh, and what, what your purpose, your motivation and your drivers are. So I kind of sat on Careers New Zealand, I sat on Lotteries, Grants Board, you know, that was quite a, an awakening. And I sat on the National Board, but then we had to sit on all of these subsidiary committees across the country. And every region, every place, every sector, every grouping of people, they're all different. And that, that's probably the biggest point. It's not to assume that people's motivations are always going to be the same. And a good example of that is people might say, oh, Maori and Pacifica, we get blended together a lot. And, and we are. We're cousins, we're whānau, we've got whakapapa and history together. But our drivers are different. And so when it comes to governance and the way that we think, they might be structurally different as well. And so that's probably a bit of a learning to, to actually really understand those motivations around these charitable organisations. Oh, I have time, don't I? I could talk all day over here about myself. Um, I then went on to be the, uh, my sister and I set up the first Maori Charter Council practice, so I got to see quite deep and dirty across where the level of uh, charitable organisations were for Martin across the country. And that was right at the forefront of when Kongaro Trust was established and all the kohanas came out. So we understood what it meant to receive boxes of shoe boxes full of receipts and how we were to support them. Now these are community people meant to be doing good things for their community, their people, their babies for tomorrow. So they, they were struggling with a lot of those notions. So education of governors is always going to be the thing. Now governors will come at us from many, many different circles and so many, many different channels. But ultimately, they've got to be passionate, they've got to be motivated, and the aptitude and attitude that was spoken about before, they are the critical factors for great governance. Because if you're not motivated about it, you'll just be compliance. And compliance and governance should not really, whilst we, you know, a governor has to be compliant, it should not be motivation, you have to be thinking wider than that. So that's the challenge around creating, creating that wave of change. So that spectrum of portfolio of people is really, really important. Then I went on to become the first money invest and work in the first money investment firm. So this is where it gets nitty gritty. So we were working across in entities who were all pretty much charitable in nature. They were trusts and corporations. They were, if you come back later, that structure was onus and put upon them back in order to receive their treaty rights. So they couldn't be a voter way back when, if they didn't have a structure surrounding them. So there were some complexities around how Māoridin was introduced into uh, structures of governance and, and trust and legislation. So that's, that comes with a little bit of resistance. Um, and then by seeing that, we realised that a lot of governance, uh, people are selected for their governance roles purely by popularity. And so this will be similar in the communities that you might be across as well. So they don't necessarily come with the right school set, but they will have other characteristics that people see valuable in representing them. And so in Māori spaces, you know, quadruple bottom lining, that's a, that's a term we can loosely chuck around, but it's, it's the things that the world is actually waking itself up to, environmental, social and governance, so the ESG factors that the United Nations think about, and then you've got to put a cultural lens on that. You've got to put time frames on that, people think about their decisions differently. For Māori people and for Pacifica people and probably other ethnicities, 
Our family businesses don't think about next generation, next generation. We think in waves of seven. The waves come in seven. And so an average generation is about 25 years. So we're thinking that's, our, that's what we think in a generational shift. So it's apples with apples and making sure that the decisions I make today as a governor are going to affect my grandchildren's mukapunas, mukapunas, mukapuna. And so that's actually quite an onerous task for governors in these structures. Um, I've got the red timer and I didn't even get to what I wanted to talk about, so it means I've got some heaps of cool things that we can share as the panel goes across it. But governance for Māori entities is like an onion. You know, when you cook it right, it's sweet and it just sings and it's beautiful. But when you get it wrong, it can really, really make you cry. And um, <laughs> the other things about that is when you're dealing with family businesses, which is a lot of these trusts and corporations are ultimately family businesses, uh, your, your responsibility, your accountability is really, really high. And they know where you live, so you're never going to get escape. <laughs> so we'll just leave you with that. There's lots to talk about in the, the nuances and differences around Māori trusts and corporations and the charitable nature of them, but maybe it'll come in on some of the questions. Kia ora. Australian perspective, so Teresa Nasser. Okay, good afternoon everyone. Um, so someone had to have slides and that's me. Um, I will tell you there is a mistake on the slides, first person to find it gets a photo of frog. I won't tell you if it was deliberate or negligent, but there we go. So um, Sue's asked me just to hear a broad overview of how the governance standards are working in Australia. So this is going to be fairly superficial because there's a, you know, I could speak for hours. Um, maybe I'll <laughs> Andrew said he would taste me, but I pointed out he can't because I'm on the next panel as well. So, um, so how are the governance standards working in um, Australia? Partly because it's something being considered in New Zealand. Um, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but you would know we've had a review of the ACNC Act in Australia with lots of very uh, considered submissions. But I just want to point out the broader context is there's been a spotlight on governance in Australia in particular. So we've had the Banking Royal Commission, um, and that recommended that our corporate litigator, um, ASIC, get tougher. Uh, we've had um, the ABU. Aiding the barometer saying there's a global implosion in trust in institutions. We've had our securities uh, regulator release corporate governance principles that were quite controversial, or uh, well, actually weren't as controversial as they could have been. Um, and as I said, we've had the review of the ACNC. So just an overview of uh, how um, charities or how what our constitutional system is. Now, I'm not a constitutional expert, but it's quite important to understand it um, because it explains some of the anomalies we have in our um, system, which you don't need to have in New Zealand. So, um, firstly, though, um, charities or the, reg the regulatory framework is the um, Australian Charities Not for Profits Commission Act and the ACNC regulations. Um, the constitutional aspects are because we have a federal, we have federal and state and territory governments um, tasked with different powers. Now it's, it's a little bit more complex than that, but um, our federal government um, doesn't have the power to regulate every aspect of, um, to make laws for, for every aspect of governance and um, regulation. So, for example, in the corporations area, we don't have a uniform 
scheme for years and years um, because we had state and territories having different schemes. And the way we've achieved our corporation scheme is for the states and territories to refer their power to the Commonwealth. But that has a sunset clause, so every five years that has to be renewed. Now, we don't have that um, with charities regulation. So those are the key points, of, um, key uh, acts that I'll be talking about today. There are, of course, a number of other layers of regulation, um, and that's an issue, as we heard from Sari. So when we um, look at the governance standards, there are five broad governance standards. I won't go into them in detail. The first is that registered entities, so registered charities, have to be not-for-profit and work towards their charitable purpose. The second is that charities need to take reasonable steps to be accountable to their members. The third is that uh, charities mustn't commit a serious offence. Uh, the fourth is that charities must take reasonable steps to ensure that their board members aren't disqualified, either from acting as a director in the corporate sphere or um, disqualified by the ACNC. This is a summary. The fifth is the one that I've focused on so far, although I haven't actually officially started my research yet. Um, so the fifth is the duties of what are called responsible entities. Now, responsible entities means responsible persons, which means trustees, directors, that sort of thing. Before I look at Governance Standard 5, what you'll notice is that the obligations are all imposed on the entity. The obligations aren't imposed on individual responsible persons, and that's because of the constitutional framework. So Governance Standard 5, which I won't read through, basically says that a registered entity, so a charity, has to take reasonable steps to ensure that basically the directors and trustees comply with a whole lot of duties. Now, I won't, um, I don't want to be tasered, so I won't read them all, but basically to um, exercise their uh, powers with due care and diligence, to act in good faith in the interest of the entity, not to misuse their position, to declare conflicts, not to engage in insolvent trading, that sort of thing. Um, I think the slides can be made available, so they're there. So, Governance Standard 5 is what I've, um, what I've focused on. Recently, as I said, a detailed review was undertaken into how the legislation um, was operating. And I should just say that our ACNC has only been operating for five years. It was a bit contested at the start. So it's actually quite early to assess how it's all gone. Um, and also the ACNC's focus, uh, key focus has been guidance and education. What did the ACNC review say about uh, Governance Standard 5 or the system of governance is that it's uh, complex and confusing. It's unreasonable to expect volunteer directors working in the sector to understand and comply with multiple jurisdictional and inconsistent governance requirements. So that's a pretty firm tick of approval to our model of um, <laughs> governance standards. What, what are the issues briefly? Um, firstly, one of the key problems is that the duties are imposed on the entity. Uh, it's for a charity to take reasonable steps to make sure the individuals um, comply. Now, there, what I find in practice is that there's uh, the stance taken by academics is different to the stance taken by practitioners. So I've tried to talk to as many people as I can about this. When you look at it on paper, there are a lot of inconsistencies. When you talk to practitioners in practice, they say, well, it's actually working quite well. The governance standards are actually just the minimum standard and people are really wanting good governance. So there are some problems with the model in that uh, I think that it does leave a gap in terms of individual accountability. Individuals aren't accountable under these governance standards. 
Also, our duties in the Corporations Act for directors of charitable companies have most, a lot of them being turned off, although there's debate about that. Can that be fixed? I think that could be quite easily fixed. I don't think it's as big a problem as it first appeared, but we need to do some finessing just to work out the interaction between these governance standards and the Corporations Act. The third is the interaction between these governance standards and requirements for incorporated and unincorporated associations. The main thing that I see is that there isn't a regulator who can take action in certain cases where there's misappropriation of charitable assets. Um, so when that, whether that happens or not is, is something to look into. When, when there's something serious like crime, criminal breach or fraud, then um, action can be taken. But there, there seems to be a gap because our corporate regulator doesn't have jurisdiction. As I said, anecdotal evidence is that it's actually working quite well. Finally, um, and I've run out of time, I don't think gov the governance standards per se are problematic. So I don't think there's any reason why New Zealand shouldn't bring in governance standards. The problem I see in Australia is the constitutional aspect, that the governance standards are imposed on the entity, not the individuals. Uh, but it seems to me there's no reason why in New Zealand if you brought in uh, uniform standards, they couldn't be imposed on the individuals as well. Having said that, I think I agree with what Sue was saying, it takes time. You need to look at the interaction between these governance standards and all the other requirements to sort it out. Because one of one of the things that people are giving me feedback on is it's so complex, um, and you don't want the governance standards to be another layer of complexity. Sorry, I was talking to us about that this morning. Final thing, um, and here's a hint if you're looking for a frog. Um, the our Institute of Company Directors released not-for-profit um, principles, and I think they're excellent. Um, I think that they could. Um, no, I'm not there. All right, I'll. Have um, uh, I think they're excellent. I think there could be a little bit more focus on a little bit more detail on social and environmental risks, but I do recommend them in terms of looking at um, you know the governance models. Sorry. <laughs> Session 6 was a potpourri of research in the charitable sector, and we heard from Una Breen, Carolyn Cordery, Dave Henderson, Bernard Lemieux, Stephen Moe, and Brent Kennerly was the moderator. I'd just like to uh, introduce our next aggressive panel. <laughs> Sorry, no, no, I it's fine. See it I know, there. it's fine. So, uh, yeah, the next fine, and last panel of the day, um, I don't look too aggressive actually, but I look okay. Uh, looking at the topic of research, uh, really important in any sphere is to actually look at what's working and what's not working so that any decisions that can be made can be made based on a good understanding of the sector. So uh, we have a panel now uh, with some eminent people on in terms of research. I'm Brent Kennelly, one of the audit partners at Grant Thornton, and, and much the same lines as, uh, as, as Wayne. Passionate about the sector and have been for a while. 
Why? Because all of the passion that you bring. I don't care if a listed goes up by two cents or down by three when you sign an audit opinion, but actually it's really important what we present for your audit opinion and why. So that's where I'm sitting. Stunning, stunning last panel for the day. We've had a couple of the panellists here before, um, and one of them has promised us some, some, some karaoke presentations, so let's see where that gets to. <laughs> we have got Caroline, Una, Dave, Bernard, Stephen and Rosemary, as I say, some of whom you will have seen and recognised. Caroline, uh, if she's not ducking between Birmingham and Wellington, she must be just in, in transit. Una, Dave, everyone knows Dave. Bernard Lamous from, uh, from PKF in Hamilton. Again, a wonderful audit partner, previous colleague of audit partner and things as well, so I know he signs, signs great opinions. Stephen, <laughs> congratulations to Stephen, our partner at... Um, going to dive through each of the pieces of research. It is a presentation from, from the individual team members. Um, there won't be questions at the end, but it's, it's that hard sell of the research and hard work that they've done through it. And I would like you to clap just one more time of, of a thanks of appreciation, because everyone in the room is here for the sector and doing and doing their day job as well as their night job and that sort of thing. But these guys have gone one step further than those proverbial you know, um, surf, surf lines that one should swim, the flags that we're meant to be swimming between. They're outsiders, they're doing the research. They're finding out what it is, why it is, having no idea whether they're going to come back in from the rip or not, or whether they're going <laughs> to quietly float out to the side. They're there, again, a great round of applause. <laughs> Why wouldn't we just use those? I hear you asking. So five things. Una didn't actually include the sixth from the paper, and I don't know why I'm going to give her a hard time later. But um, if you're not in New Zealand, fund accounting issues are actually really important. Restricted funds, I know we don't think about them too much in New Zealand. We think more about reporting entity. Um, what about revenue treatment of non-exchange transactions? For the non-accountants, that means the donations that you make to someone so that someone else can get the benefit, or an animal, or the environment, or something. So, so you're not getting uh, revenue back for, you're not getting some sort of benefit back. 
What about if you're donating your time or your, um, or your assets? Also, treatment of heritage assets, and when I looked on our notebooks, we've got lots of different pictures of heritage things, so I defy you to try and work out how you're going to value them. Uh, that's an accounting issue that's not in the commercial sector, and you might want to write a story about it, all the outcomes you have, so narrative reporting. So, global outlook, all those different regimes, why we're not the same. We can start with those countries that have no requirements specific for non-profits. Those term, tend to be ones where there's no charitable regulation. We can move to the countries where there's no specific regulation for non-profits. It depends on your legal structure. That's where Ireland sits at the moment. We can turn to those countries where they take a sector neutral approach. So they don't look at how you do your accounting because you're a charity. It's the IFRS standards that apply and we tend to think of new, uh, Australia in this regard. We can turn yet again to those countries where for tax reasons they impose a mandatory reporting requirement in the public domain for all recognised non-profits. We tend to think of the US in this regard, the Form 990 for all those 501c3s. We can go yet again and we can think of countries with not-for-profit specific financial reporting requirements that are compulsory regardless of your legal form. Any idea what country that might be? Yes, absolutely, right here in New Zealand, also in the UK with the UK SORP, charity SORP. And finally, there are those countries where you have not-for-profit specific financial reporting frameworks encouraged, but not mandatory. And Ireland gets two bites of the cherry because we fall into this box too. <laughs> okay. So why would you follow financial reporting standards? You, they need to have some sort of legitimacy, right? They need to either be required or in Ireland they might want to be you know, strong support for them. We think of things like accountability as really important from the sector. We want to be able to compare one aged care charity to another aged care charity. We want some sort of consistency. If we think something's an asset, it should be an asset in all of the organisations that we're looking at. But of course we know that it takes a lot of time to prepare these financial reporting uh, reports and to use the standards. So we've got an administrative burden. We need uh, to worry about the sanctions. And we could actually say we're being colonised by some of those people in another country. We don't want that in our So, this is an international study. It was funded by the Consultative Committee of Accountancy Bodies. The respondents, over uh, 605 of them from 179 countries, who gave us 63,000 words of free comment, so not just tick the box, this was their, their thoughts, the richness of their ideas. Everyone from regulators to accountants to users of accounts to the funders, right through to the people who work in the organisations. And from that work, we turned the results. And you have one and a half minutes. Okay. <laughs> so there was very strong support for the purpose of actually having financial reporting standards uh, that were internationally acceptable. So they would be able to have accountability, <coughs> stewardship, and they should be available to all um, countries. And then we said, well, how useful would they be? And there was, okay, only 72% rather than 82 or 92%. But I think the interesting point was that 82% of the people from African countries who responded to the survey said it would be very useful to have international financial reporting standards, but much fewer from Europe. So, back to our starting question. 
should a common international standard for non-profit organisations uh, be introduced or made compulsory uh, across, uh, across the globe? Well, we had some interesting outcomes. Stakeholder evaluations were mostly positive in response to that question. So they indicated that there was a feeling that an international financial reporting standard would garner support and would have a moral legitimacy, which is what we're looking at in this research. In terms of moral consequential legitimacy, that would be granted if that type of financial reporting met specific NPO accounting standards, the types of issues that Carolyn mentioned at the start. And if it resulted in consistent, transparent, and reliable accounts. They didn't so much care whether you could compare them or not, but once they were consistent and reliable, that mattered. Um, a majority of the stakeholders also felt that moral procedural legitimacy would follow because they felt if there was a converged standard, parties would coalesce around it, subject to a big caveat that Carolyn will finish on. Which was, of course, the compliance burden. So people were worried that uh, they wouldn't have enough capacity and expertise to follow international standards. And many people felt that if you had an income of less than half a million dollars, US dollars, that you shouldn't have to follow them. Now only 7% of UK charities have incomes above half a million dollars. So, you know, basically they thought it was a great idea, but they were really worried it was going to be big and huge like IFRS, and they wouldn't be able to use them. Thank you very much.
what actually, why would people pay uh, board members? 21% of respondents thought that it would help to attract more experienced board members if they are paid. Um, there was an emphasis there from people from the Institute of Directors saying it's good practice to pay um, um, charity board members. Um, the Gannotarians felt that 14% of them felt that people should be paid for work done. 36% um, thought that paying someone created an expectation that the board member would be more involved. Now, to me, it's beyond belief that someone would sit on the board and not be um, involved unless they got paid. But this is what's coming out in the survey. Turning it around, why shouldn't board members be paid? Well, the simple answer is a lot of the smaller charities have got no money. All of it goes into operations and they can't afford to pay board members. So that, that's the simplest answer. Um, then we looked at the issue of um, one of the questions that did come out of this. It was an open-ended question, and it was from someone from South Auckland who wrote a lengthy answer. And um, this is a person that was uh, a Polynesian, Polynesian person who was holding on to two jobs. The partner held on to two jobs, and she was passionate about the cause that she wanted to represent. And Fortunately for her, she was paid because she couldn't afford to sit on this board and feed the family um, if there wasn't a payment there. And I think sometimes we've got to look at the cultural diversity side of things. We then looked at um, should board members be refunded for the actual expense such as travel, meal, phone calls, etc. Well, two thirds thought they should, and a third were probably a bit stingy and said, no, we're not going to pay any board members, they should be volunteering for it. Um, the, then the question was, how do you base a refund? Um, and 76% thought based on actual cost or IRD mileage rate, and then there was a host of other small bits and pieces. I then turned to the governance side of things, and I started asking the question, um, does your organisation have a policy to pay a board honorarium or fees to your board members? Surprisingly, only a third had a policy saying that it did. Two thirds didn't have any policy at all, uh, which was a bit of a concern. Um, then the kind of big, the next question is: if you've got a policy, is that reviewed independently by anybody else? Because if you think about it, you know, if you're a board member and you're going to pay yourself, it's easy to create a policy to pay yourself. It's much more difficult and much more challenging to have that peer reviewed by somebody else or or challenged along the line. And this is where, as an industry, we really have a problem. Only 9% thought that um, policies regarding remuneration should be peer-reviewed by somebody else. Now, I think that is probably an unacceptable practice in our industry, um, and it's something we should be looking at. Um, we then talked about how do you peer practice um, something like this. Like this. Um, there was a suggestion that the auditor could um, re review the policy or the solicitor or sometimes managers could even review the policy. There's no consistency out there. Um, the best practice I did come across were the organisations that actually held AGMs, and probably less than half charities hold AGMs because they don't need to, because if they have trust, they can elect not to have an AGM. Um, those that did actually have an AGM and approved the board on rearing at the AGM for the next year, actually to me are following best practice. Now, in the commercial world, that's normal practice. If you're running a company, you need to state what your remuneration is going to be for your directors the next year. And I think we can actually learn quite a bit from that. 
Um, still stay on the issue of um, whether the organisations can or should pay their, their board members. I then looked at whether your trustee or your uh, rules of society or corporate society foundation documents, whatever your foundation document was, allowed for payment to board members. And this is a, a question I raised specifically because I had two problems with charities I was working with last year where they were paying their board members in contravention of their trustee. Because the trustee specifically didn't allow for the payment and they blissfully went off and paid the board members and, and then we had to do some backbilling. So 70% fortunately do, did go and look at the trustee requiring documents and actually looked at how they paid the board and allowed the board members to be paid. 15% didn't and 15% were unsure. Now, um, the last thing, just a quick question about how um, board fees were calculated uh, and again there was a range of answers. Many deferred to the manager as to the expert on how they should pay the board members. Um, some actually benchmark against incredible benchmarkings like strategic pay or institute of directors. Um, some looked at um, the school trustees' fees, which is probably laughable if you're, if you're running a, a fairly large charity. And there was a host of other bits and pieces. Now, I could go through a whole lot more of these, but I've run out of time and I do know you want to get home early. So in your delegates pack, there's a little colourful brochure with two sides on it. If you want a copy of that survey, the details are on here. Download it, it's free. Use it and happy to catch up with anybody afterwards on it. Thank you. Next, we have on the, the, uh, the boardwalk stinger. It's a real pleasure to be here and see all your smiling faces because I've literally spent dozens of hours with the rest of the organizing committee pulling this together and it's such a pleasure to see you now in the room and um, the quality of the discussion that we're having and I love the word pictures that people are coming up with, the sumos and you know the, the, the flags, it's easy to understand really helpful. I've also realized that I'm the only speaker from Christchurch, um, and so I just wanted to say a really brief word. Um, I, I ran by that mosque the day before the attack happened. Um, I knew someone who was killed there, and so I just wanted to say thank you to all of you. I know there was lots of good feelings and prayers heading towards Christchurch when that happened, um, and it was something that we felt in Christchurch, so thank you for that. And the, the advice that I have for you is when you get home, um, hug your children a second time. And the phone that has the urgent message to be answered, maybe put it aside and read them a story. Having said that, we'll move on to... <laughs> so the research that I've been involved with, um, actually how many of you realize that we are living in a time of paradigms that are colliding? We talked about paradigms before, and um, the old paradigm is that if you want to do good, you start a charity. If you want to make money, you start a business. The new paradigm is that if you want to do good, you can do it while making money. This is involving the idea of impact companies, so taking the idea of combining profit and purpose. So the very essence of the company that you start 
is achieving some social or environmental aim. A great example of this in Christchurch is a group called Stepping Stone, and they have a charitable trust which owns a company. The company employs people who have just been released from prison. That's a difficult thing to have on your CV. They give those people employment, help them bridge the gap to other employment. So through their existence and the employment that they're giving, the business that they're running, they're actually achieving charitable purposes. The research that I've been involved in is called Structuring for Impact, Evolving Legal, Stru Evolving Legal Structures for Business in New Zealand. Uh, it was funded by the Law Foundation, and we've been working on it for about a year now. Um, and there's five co-authors of the report, and it's a real privilege that Philippa Wilkie is here from Chapman Church. She's a co-author um, with me of the report. Also, uh, uh, the, the main researcher involved was Dr. Jane Horan, and we had Amber Hosking and Jackson Rowland involved as well. And what we wanted to do when looking at companies that are about impact was to ground it in actual research. We didn't want it to just be sort of our comment about what we think the future might hold. So what that involved was going out and actually interviewing more than 20 of some of the leading impact companies within New Zealand. Um, we also spoke with charity services, with IRD, with other lawyers, with um, accountants. So it was really trying to ground it and getting perspectives from all types of people. We also chose deliberately that it was we talked with partnerships, limited liability companies, trusts, basically any type of entity that is involved with impact, we spoke with them. And the reason we were doing that was to ground our statements and our research in the practical reality of what people are facing. And so the, the question that we were trying to ask is, are there barriers for impact companies um, who are trying to achieve purpose and profit? Do the existing legal structures suit this sort of a company? And um, the answer uh, will, will be released next Wednesday. <laughs> so I have to be careful because it hasn't been publicly released yet. Um, but next Wednesday it will be um, released. Um, so like I said, the Law Foundation funded it. It's coming under the, um, the name of Akina Foundation and sent in Department of Internal Affairs have all been involved in this. So it's quite a collaborative thing. Um, three law firms have been involved. Um, so that's been great to see collaboration across the sector. Um, and perhaps just to state that the part one is about the scope of the research that we did, looking at charities and for-profit types of structures. And then part two is looking at three main categories. We looked at mission, we looked at funding, and we looked at legal structure. So those were the three categories. And then part three, we were a bit audacious, but we proposed solutions. So that will be, um, it will be available next Wednesday. So um, what we'll try to do is put a link to it when we send out like slides for this and things. I'll try to make sure there's a link, because it, it's not available right now. I don't even have a copy. <laughs> um, but that's the research that I've been involved in. Really excited to share it with you. I know it's slightly um, not quite aligned with charity, but I think it is the, a bit of what the future holds, this idea of acting for purpose through these types of vehicles. Now, some of you are listening will be very impressed that I have not used the word social enterprise yet. <laughs> now, I, I hope you realize that that was deliberate, 
because I feel like the word social enterprise is an intermediate stepping stone between the old paradigm and the new paradigm. And I dream of a day when all companies are involved with being clear about their mission, their purpose, and acting for impact. But underneath all this, it is social enterprise. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're looking at and researching. Um, and then just to finish in my last 18 seconds <laughs> is um, I've also been doing research on my own, interviewing people about their journeys as not-for-profits and charities. And I've been um, talking with a diverse range of people from Kids Can, Fred Hollows, right through to charities and not-for-profits you wouldn't have heard of. I've been uploading them on a podcast called Seeds. And so there's now about 100 interviews available there. Um, so that's about 100 hours of content, people telling their journeys, their stories, and why they do what they do. So in the packs that you've got, there's a little business card which tells you how to access it. Um, but that's another bit of research that I'm involved and in, will continue to do, hopefully on a weekly basis, to release those interviews. Thank you. Fascinating, this, the, 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 the events, the research, the happenings that are, the, that are occurring out there. As Stephen's put a, a lot of time, obviously, into the, the report with the team for, for Wednesday's presentation. I know I just casually have dropped in another 100 hours of time that I've uploaded from all sorts of places. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Right, the next presentation. Dave, we have it. We have it lined up. We're good to go. So thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Um, there's a lot I'd like to talk about. There's been a brief mention of a roadshow that uh, Sue and I have been involved in, along with people from um, the Department of Internal Affairs and Charity Services. Um, and we've heard a lot. I think we're six weeks into a seven-week consultative roadshow going all the way from Whangarei and into Kaagal. Um, it's been pretty exhausting, but we've heard some great stuff and we've learned some great ideas. Um, but today I'm focusing on a bit of research we've done as part of our project. Now, um, I really need to emphasise that um, this research, a lot of the work's been, most of the work's been done by strategic grants and I can acknowledge their input. Um, they've been an independent external evaluator, but they were committed to assisting us because Sue and I were approached by a group of 12 uh, community trusts, all of whom had, um, were offering basically to provide a little bit of funding each. Um, and uh, they, were, they were concerned, they were sharing a concern about uh, the way the charities legislation is currently being in interpreted and the way that that's affecting community organisations. Somebody used the word colonisation earlier and uh, Stephen also talked about paradigm shifts and I think the paradigm shift that's coming for the moment is that it's not appropriate anymore for government agencies to be colonising our sector. So I'd emphasise, and you can probably gather from that statement, that Sue and I are very independent of the um, Department of Charity Services in doing the uh, research that we uh, are doing. Um, data collection, um, we distributed the um, links to our survey, survey through community networks um, and we were really pleased that the distribution based on the community networks that we were able to put together um, did result in 662 surveys logged, not all of them um, completed 
but a wide range of organisations there represented in the results. However, there were some uh, tricky sides to it. Uh, in terms of the uh, size structure of the respondents, um, these figures don't represent the don't reflect the overall makeup of the charitable sector, and it's well recognised in the sector that uh, if an organisation is part of a national network, um, it's generally easier to reach. It's probably one of the larger organisations. It's got time and energy to actually look externally to the to the mahi that they're actually grappling with in their local community. And smaller local organisations are of course harder to reach, and that shows in where the responses have actually come from. Um, interesting percent, uh, percentages there too, 87% of registered charities, sorry, 87% of respondents registered charities, 14% um, not registered and the reasons why are there. Um, look at the purpose of the Act, purposes of the Act, I stress these quotes and all the quotes that are in this presentation were selected by um, the people doing the survey for us independently. They're not selected by Sue or I to pro provide a um, particular angle on it. But um, there you go. Uh, majority, of course, because there's a majority of larger organisations in there describing it helpful, good and fine in terms of the purposes of the Act. But uh, those same people are also suggesting further purposes. Tier 3 and 4 of organisations having much more problem and in fact uh, describing registration as a charitable entity as onerous, costly and politicisation and the criteria quite far reaching. Um, looking at some of the specific purposes, existing ones, you know, there's some great responses there. And this one, you know, was selected by um, the people doing the work for us. Um, Promoting trust and public trust and confidence, saying it's worthy, but if some historic organisations have charitable status and other more recent, most, almost identical organisations are not granted it, the public will have concerns about the process and question the validity of both organisations with the overall effect of reducing confidence in the charitable sector. So the very fact that a number of organisations that, as Sue mentioned this morning, are perfectly qualified to be registered, are not able to get registered, is in itself undermining public trust and confidence in the sector. Um, the other thing about uh, existing purposes, uh, the second one, encouraging and promote effective use of charity services. Somebody's described it, again, where the aim, uh, but in practice, the interpretation of the Act seems to be putting up unnecessarily high barriers to registration. So that where they would be charities, they're having to expend a lot of time, energy and financial resources trying to get registered. Uh, and there's a mention of a hurdle there, and it does raise two questions of course. One is if an organisation is having uh, trouble getting registered, they're probably going to have trouble with reporting as well, so you've got to ask whether they actually should be registered, they need better advice about whether they should be trying to register. And then the other one is, is it deliberate that it's being made hard? Uh, it's a common perception in the sector um, that Sue and I are hearing around the country, uh, but that, to get into that, oh, it's a whole other can of worms that we don't have time to look for here, look at here. Some other po possible purposes, 
um, promoting the charitable sector in, to engender public and government confidence in the sector. Interestingly, this one, using the data gathered from the reporting to actually broadcast information, especially in response to um, ill-founded criticisms of the sector in Parliament or in the media, we've experienced both of those quite a lot, um, it would be a good purpose from our perspective. And in fact, that's why uh, a lot of people in the sector supported, back in the early days, having a purpose of enhancing public trust and confidence in the sector. Uh, structure of the agency, this is uh, an interesting one. We had 357 respondents, 43% suggested an autonomous crown entity, which is what we had before 2012. And interestingly, when I look at that, it just, it's classic because it takes me back to 2002. We had a working party on registration and monitoring of charities. Page nine, it's our strong view. And this was after a big national consultation. And you think, you know, certain deja vu here, right? It's our strong view that a charities commission would be most acceptable to the charitable sector. It's important as it would mean the costs of monitoring and enforcement are likely to be less if the sector supports and has confidence in the organisation. <coughs> Any lesser alternative would fail to adequately recognise the importance and independence of the charitable sector. So when I talk about colonisation of the sector, we've gone around in a big loop. We're revisiting it again. Please, let's seriously do revisit it. Appeal processes, I won't go into this in great detail. There's some um, great quotes there. Somebody's uh, described the limited time, 20 days, to file an appeal as ridiculous. Um, there were accusations that there's political bias in some of the um, Charities Registration Board's actions. Uh, and an emphasis in quotes too that um, appeals should require a different set of people. Um, but 83% of respondents, which is a fairly clear majority, supported an independent specialist charities tribunal. Uh, Deregistration, well, oh, we won't go into there because I see I'm looking at a red light over here. Um, extent to which charities are, can advocate, 59% of respondents feel that uh, um, regi being registered is moderately or very influential on their capacity to advocate. Um, and then a couple more quotes that were provided to us here. We believe that being charitable requires us to advocate for the addressing of the causes of the problems that impact the people we work with. Applying a band-aid without addressing the thing that causes the problem is just stupid in the long term. And Advocacy is, being part of, is part of being a charity that needs to be protected in law. So thank you. Thanks so much for that, Dave, and all the best uh, for next week's trips and travels as well. <laughs> Clearly, a lot of time, energy and effort by the team, you know, either doing research, thinking about it, starting it, or completing it. But I think... All of that research can only happen with the participation of people in the room as well. So on behalf of the team up here, thank you to you. If you've quietly sent in an email, sent in an answer, taken that additional you know, five, ten minutes to reply to another survey that's turned up. So, so thank you so much for that because without your input, these guys wouldn't be able to stop, look, think, analyse and come up with 
are we swimming between the flags or are we on the, on the outside of those flags? One of the themes today has been very much around submission, submission, submissions and things. And a 30 second plug for the uh, Cairns Wellington not-for-profit special interest group. We have a meeting at uh, Grant Thornton next Tuesday, 12.30. There's lunch, there's good fellowship and there's good debate um, about wanting to put your submission in for the review of the Act. There'll be commentary, uh, there'll be time for it. We'll kick off at 12.30. Uh, it will be done and you'll be back at your desk by 2. Uh, it's one of the things in, in, the, in Wellington that we do on a monthly basis and it just so happens. It had been planned prior to knowing, obviously, that 31 May is now going to be the extended deadline. Uh, so we were planning for it uh, as at, to land it for, for 30 April. But more than welcome, but please register via the CAMS website so we know exactly who's coming and why and where and from, from where. Um, next Tuesday, 12.30. Thank you so much. Thank you to the team. And again, thank you.
Um, and I think also with accumulations, it's very contextual. There are very different types of charities out there facing very different issues. So there is a great danger, or at least um, some potentially significant unintended consequences of trying to run a one-size-fits-all model over accumulations. Um, future of charities and tax. We all get excited after lunch for, for tax, which is good. Uh, we heard about the business conundrums with, uh, with tax. We heard a very interesting Maori view on tax. Uh, we got a good rundown in terms of what the IRD has been doing, and I was delighted at the end of that to hear how much the IRD has been listening, and it was also reaching out in terms of different ways to listen. Uh, so let's be hoping on all of us to actually speak up, because if the IRD is listening, then we need to help the IRD by giving a voice to any issues that people have. We then heard a counter view from Nick Bland that um, maybe uh, the IRD is not listening enough, or maybe it's the sector needs to get more organised in terms of how we make our voices heard. So I think that's a really positive thing that we can do collectively in terms of especially those professionals in the room, um, how we can more collectively uh, make voices heard and, and raise the issues that we're seeing uh, in the day-to-day -day work. Um, governing Charities, uh, a lovely session. Um, great to hear that there's some resources out there and, and knowing what's in the uh, Navigator uh, resource, for example, there's some fantastic wealth of knowledge there that all charities should be aware of and not anywhere near enough, I would suggest, are. So it's incumbent on all of us to have a look at that ourselves, um, but also to be able to point people to those sorts of resources so they can get the help when they need it. Um, we heard the, the cultural lens is a very important one for us to use, especially in New Zealand where we have a strong history of Maori charity, Maori social enterprise, Maori business, a different cultural way of looking at things, uh, and likewise a Pacifica view. Uh, and that you know, maybe we can learn some more things by looking a little bit more closely at that. Um, I love the concept of a hierarchy of governance. Uh, I've definitely seen that in my own career, the, the values that people put on certain types of governance, uh, whether you're a listed company director or whether you are like, up on the board of a small charitable trust. Uh, ridiculous, because uh, our charity sector does so much good work in New Zealand and in Australia. Um, so I think it's up to us to actually try and break down that hierarchy of governance. Uh, we had a very interesting discussion around should governing bodies uh, be paid in a later research session. Uh, and I think that ties in very much to that. Um, to me, it's not so much about the money, it's about the being valued is the issue. Uh, and uh, perhaps we don't do enough of valuing uh, things like the importance of governance in our sector. Perhaps we can all do some more around that. Um, what clearly came out of the, the governance session for me was that an educative approach is still needed. Uh, and we've got a, a charities regulator in New Zealand that's done some good efforts in terms of education, um, but they're only one stakeholder. Uh, if we're going to make the sector better, it's a supply chain issue. Everyone in the sector is responsible for lifting things like the levels of education and best practice. Uh, and lovely to finish off with some research today, to hear the good research that's going on, uh, the people that are putting that effort in there, the, the single set of not-for-profit standards, that was the best accounting double-act short presentation <laughs> I think I've ever seen. <laughs> well done, both of you. <laughs> 
Um, should charity board members be paid? Uh, the impact entities, uh, and Stephen, I was delighted that you resisted using social enterprise as a label for so long, um, because I think you are quite right. It is all about impact, and we are seeing a blurring of um, business, charity, things in the middle. Uh, and us all needing to get our heads around new paradigms, and being brave, and being open to those. Um, I was also really impressed to see a hug this morning. Uh, thank you, Matthew. I think it was you and Mike that, that kicked off with that. Uh, and Stephen reiterating hugs after the experience of Christchurch. Uh, you know, it's the important things, the family things, the things that actually make us human, that make us a community. So um, never underestimate those. So there's been a lot of mahi that's gone in today, and actually. For our Australians and our international guests, I mean, you might not know what the word mahi is. Mahi means work. But it kind of means work in a sense of doing good as well. And that's an interesting, slight cultural distinction. Um, there's been a lot of mahi that's gone into today in terms of the presenters and all the time that they've put into their presentations. So I thank all our presenters for their mahi. Um, I'd also like to thank all of you for your mahi in sitting through this today and thinking about some of the things that you've heard. Uh, and I guess in thinking about what we're going to do next, what we can do positive out of these learnings that we've got there. Um, and I'm also delighted, just to finish off, that we've um, made some money for Diabetes New Zealand. That's really good. <laughs> So, phew, that's just day one. We've got day two tomorrow. <laughs> so for all of those that are coming back tomorrow, I'd really like to see you here at um, 8.30 in the morning. Um, if you've already registered, uh, we look forward to seeing you at the conference dinner tonight, which will include the uh, New Zealand Charity Reporting Awards. Uh, and it's at the Harborside Function Centre at 6.30 in the Tiaro Room. Uh, and just to close off the day, I'd like to invite Joby Cannon back to um, close it with a karakia. Day two started with session seven, the review of the Charities Act, emerging issues and implications. And in that, we heard from Gwen Keel, Steve Kerr, Matthew Turner, and Sue Barker was the moderator. Morena itafanao. And for our Australian guests, that's morning to our family. Because this does feel like a nice family. It's lovely to hear the buzz in here uh, on a Friday morning in a now sunny Wellington. So. <laughs> um, hope you enjoyed yesterday. What do people think? Good? Great. Yeah, I mean, we, we traversed a lot, didn't we? Do charities need to be regulated? Uh, proving public benefit? Advocacy? Accumulations? Tax and charities? Governing charities? And research? Uh, some really good topics there. So I'm sure today is going to be just as interesting and have just as many good discussions. And last night's award ceremony, for those that went along to that, I'd just like to uh, congratulate the uh, organisers of that and, and especially Chartered Accountants Australia New Zealand. That was a lovely celebration of good practice. It was a lovely celebration of people who have put a lot of effort into communicating their story. And I was personally quite struck um, by the passion, the commitment, um, the stories that you don't otherwise hear about of really great things happening in communities. 
Uh, it was really lovely. So I hope that we can actually um, get some more profile on some of those winners, uh, those organisations that won the reporting awards, uh, and they won those because they are following the standards to a high level and communicating really effectively. Uh, more people need to see this and see, see great examples. Good morning, everybody. Uh, could I just say thank you very much, Your Honour, for the speech. I was, um, there was a slip on the motorway, so I'm sorry I was a little bit late. Very sorry. I would have loved to have met it, but I'm very grateful that it's being videoed, so I look forward to hearing the rest of it later. Thank you, Stephen. Um, so, moving right along. The review of the Charities Act could be a once-in-a-generation opportunity to create a world-leading framework for, of charity law for New Zealand, as we discussed yesterday. But also, as we discussed yesterday, there are significant issues, and I think that this is acknowledged, with the nature, scope, and timing of the review. To discuss emerging issues and implications of the review, it's my pleasure to introduce our panel this morning. Steve Kerr is a policy manager in the policy group of the Department of Internal Affairs and one of the review team for the review of the Charities Act. There is a slight change in the program. We were to have Donna Flavel, who is the chief executive of the Waikato Iwi, commonly known as Waikato Tainui. Um, Donna is a member of the core reference group but is unable to join us today and fortunately um, Gwen Kerr who is a legal advisor to the post-settlement governance entity for Waikato Tainui uh, is able to join us. Welcome Gwen, thank you. Um, this substantial charity holds over $1.3 billion in assets. Waikato Tainui is committed to building the capacity of its iwi, hapu, marae and tribal members. Waikato Lands and River Trusts manage tribal affairs, implement the tribe's development strategy, and make distributions for education, health, well-being, marae, social, and cultural development. And last but not least, it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Matthew Turner, who is a chairman of the legal practice in Brisbane, Australia, known as Newman and Turner Lawyers. And in December 2017, Dr. Turner was appointed by the Commonwealth of Australia to be one of the four panellists to undertake the review of the Australian uh, Charities and Not-for-Profits legislation. The committee's report was made publicly available in August last year. So I'd like to, without further ado, welcome Steve. Thank you. Tēnā katoa, ko Steve Kerr I'm, uh, I don't have slides, but I'm the policy manager at DIA, uh, as Sue said, uh, responsible for the, for, the, uh, for the review for modernising the Charities Act, as we call it. I'm just going to give a sort of 10-minute update on the progress with that piece of work, consultation uh, meetings, what we're hearing, um, and, and where things are heading in terms of the legislative uh, review to follow. Quick bit of background. I'm sure a lot of you will know this, but the government announced the review last year. Um, we launched uh, the consultation about seven weeks ago. 
I'm sure many of you, I hope many of you have seen the uh, public discussion document that's uh, released. We might bring down some copies um, at lunch so that you can take one away if you don't have one already. Um, and since, since then, over the last few weeks, we've been doing a roadshow of consultation meetings, and Sue's been a part of that. Um, and we're doing 25 meetings from Whangarei to Invercargill. Uh, We've found the level of discussion and debate at those meetings, the level of engagement has been really great, you know, at least as good as we expected, probably better than we expected. Uh, it's just reinforced to me how critical it is uh, in a process like this for, for bureaucrats like me to get out of Wellington, get on the road and hear from people in their own words uh, about how they see things working and what their immediate um, concerns are and what their thoughts are uh, about the bigger picture. So um, I think that's pr probably my first reflection, just that it's been a great level of engagement, really positive process so far. Uh, one other comment on the way that we're running the meetings, I think, has um, been sort of notable. Um, we've approached the, the roadshow as a, as a collaboration, really. So as policy officials from DIA, uh, we're sharing the platform with Sue um, and also with Dave Henderson, who you heard from yesterday, who's up here. Uh, sort of speaking uh, on, on behalf of the sector and offering their, um, their views on the issues at play. And that means that people at the meetings are he really hearing contrasting views, um, and that's triggered really good debate and um, sort of robust exchanges, if you like. And uh, a lot of people have told us they appreciate that approach to consultation meetings, so that's also been really positive. And certainly, um, while there's some concern about kind of a chilling effect in New Zealand around charity advocacy at the meetings, no one seems to hold back in terms of sharing their views about uh, the problems as they see them. Uh, we've also had a lot of positive feedback too about the way things are operating. So in terms of emerging issues, um, I think just firstly bear in mind, um, talking here about issues we're hearing from the floor at these meetings. We haven't received written submissions yet, and so certainly probably get a different flavour in terms of emphasis and issues. Um, at, at, at meetings out in the community. But there has been a lot of comment um, about the time available to make submissions and, and the timeline of the review in general. Um, so nine weeks for consultation is, is not enough. People um, probably predictably aren't engaging fully in some of these issues until they come to the meetings uh, and hear the presentations. So as you heard from the minister yesterday, that time frame has been extended um, out to 31 May and we should now be able to take more time um, with the, uh, the policy work and the legislative work to follow too. So that's great news. Second theme, again, this isn't surprising, but it's come through uh, really consistently, which is tier four charities, small charities are struggling with the reporting standards, the financial reporting in particular. Um, so those standards are still uh, relatively new, and of course they are tiered so that smaller charities have lower requirements than, than large charities. Um, but they're still too difficult for a lot of small groups, not all of them. Um, and those, what we're hearing as well is, uh, f you know, d directly from people themselves, that the difficulties with reporting standards are happening in the context of, you know, struggling small organisations, volunteer time, a lot of other compliance issues uh, or requirements from funders and, 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 you know, local government or other agencies. Um, a third issue, uh, and this is related to that, is just um, we're hearing a lot from charities uh, that they, they need more support, more you know, guidance, training, capacity building work, um, more resources. Uh, and I think I would say on top of that, 
or in addition to that, probably better coordination and, and um, uh, more signposting towards the resources that are actually out there. You know, we heard yesterday about Community Net and, and, and even the resources on the Charity Services website um, some people aren't aware of and aren't making use of. So, um, so that's a key theme. Um, I suspect uh, a little bit of public investment in that kind of area would probably see really, really great results. Um, and it has been interesting as well, just observing in, in different cities and towns as we go around the level of local uh, coordination, which is quite patchy, but it really does make a difference having people on the ground who have a role to kind of bring the sector together. Uh, fourth thing that's resonated with people is business. So we're not in the consultation document really proposing or talking about any, any radical changes there, but the uh, very fact that we've, um, that, that we've included it in the document and that we're talking about it has, has um, what's the word, maybe spooked some people. Uh, so re really strong message that uh, business is a really key way that charities fundraise in New Zealand. Um, don't, take our, don't touch our businesses sort of message. So we've, we've, we've heard that. And finally, um, last but not least, of course, advocacy. Uh, it's really resonated with people coming to meetings, the ones that I've attended. Um, there's a lot of interest in Greenpeace and Family First uh, decisions. Um, not necessarily you know, deep engagement with the particulars of the cases and the, the assessment of public benefit and so on, um, but a clear sense that, that charities feel like they might be risking something by speaking up and that that's not, that's not a good thing. Um, of course, there's a mix of things going on there. Um, some of it's to do with, um, uh, you know, concern about uh, damaging relationships with funders and so on, but, but, um, but it's clearly a, a key part of the idea of charities for people. Um, lastly, I uh, just want to run through a couple of the emerging imp implications, challenges I think I had. Implications is a better word. Um, I think one of the interesting developments which you may have picked up on that run through already. One of the interesting developments for us is that a lot of the key issues that are front of mind, burning issues for people, aren't to do with the Act, aren't actually to do with legislation. Um, this is at the community meetings, I should say. We, we, we haven't heard the submissions, I just repeat that. Um, but things like reporting standards are actually set under different uh, legislation. Um, and all the issues around support and capacity building obviously aren't, uh, well, aren't necessarily things you try to fix through legislation. Uh, in the first instance. Um, so there is a challenge there, um, aside from looking at the legislation in terms of the way that um, government uh, coordinates its, its support and its relationship with the sector and, and, and a challenge for the sector in terms of the way it's coordinated too. Um, and, and hopefully we can build uh, more of a partnership. Um, we have uh, a challenge, I think, as policy officials to really get to grips and understand these compliance challenges and how they play out day to day for charities in their work, um, how the charities legislation works alongside other legislation and, and requirements from funders and so on. So, so we'll, we'll continue to work with the sector, but also with officials and IR and MB and so on to try and align things as much as possible. You know, I'm sure officials are always saying that, and it's not as easy as it sounds, but there is, it is a key driver and a key consideration for us. Um, lastly, uh, yeah, we've got a lot more work to do um, in, the, in the review team. Um, I just want to say to the organisers of this conference, it's been fantastic. The timing could not have been better for us. We're just starting to kind of dive deeper into the policy issues, and the agenda's been um, incredibly useful for us. Uh, you know, advocacy tax, uh, PSGEs in Te Ao Māori, 
uh, governance standards, all these issues that we're thinking about have come up, and to hear from uh, both from practitioners but also from academics with, a, with more of a theoretical uh, and international perspective uh, has been great for us. Um, so thank you. And um, very final thing, just an observation about the fact that, you know, we're on the road and sometimes at these meetings we get differences of, of views and differences of opinions, sometimes kind of opposing positions and sometimes we're just kind of somehow furiously agreeing with each other about things where we've got a slightly different view about how to move forward. But um, I really appreciate that fundamentally everyone's on the same page and, and, and shares a kind of vision about uh, having a really effective sector, making, um, making people's lives better in New Zealand and in, and in Australia and around the world, actually. And that's what um, is at the heart of the charity sector. So that's, uh, I just think it's important to bear that in mind as we, as we hear these debates, and, and it's a really positive thing. So that's me. Kia ora. Thank you. Uh, I will wander around because if I stand behind a lectern, I'm only hobbit-sized, so it, um, it doesn't really work for me. Uh, we do have a PowerPoint, um, so I'm going to run that uh, through quickly. Um, we uh, at Waikato Tainui, I'm a legal advisor at Waikato Tainui, so my background is I am a lawyer. Uh, no one's perfect. And um, Essentially, we thought we'd run you through how we're looking at this review from our perspective, particularly from the Te Ao Māori perspective. So, first of all, uh, to talk to you about a post-settlement governance entity. This is the organisation that is set up and has its genesis in a treaty settlement with the Crown to represent a specific iwi that has mandate to represent tribal members in New Zealand. So, Waikato Tainui, Naitahu, uh, those kinds of names. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Uh, we are a registered charity uh, as a group. We're a slightly looking, different looking animal to a lot of your charitable clients for all the reasons um, that Justice Williams has already discussed. Within our structure, we are an incorporated society underpinned by trust documents and running a number of companies. So from a legal perspective, um, that's why I want to work there. It's fascinating. Um, and all of the issues uh, that we look at in this sector um, for us, particularly, charity and tax are two sides of the same coin to us, and how we structure our affairs uh, is very much underpinned by these kinds of policy considerations. So we've uh, obviously settled with the Crown as a treaty partner, and the first thing we would say as our expectation is that um, in terms of the review and timing issues, uh, we are disappointed we're not talking about the charitable purposes definition in the Act. Um, for all the reasons that Justice Williams has pointed out. It is hard to imagine uh, a less relevant test in the law. The only other body of law we have in New Zealand that's similarly ancient would be trust law. Uh, that dates back to the 11th century and the Crusades. So in charities, we're slightly more modern by getting forward into the 1500s. Um, but, you know, it, it really doesn't work particularly well. Now, we've figured out how to work with that in a PSG context, but it's very difficult for a lot of Māori-based smaller community charities who are trying to squish themselves into those heads. So we have over 76,000 tribal members to take care of. Uh, the settlement funds that we've received were never intended to fully compensate those people for the social, economic, cultural uh, deprivations they've suffered as a result of the Raupatu, which is the land confiscations 
uh, somewhere like the Waikato. So our expectation is that is only seed money that we are to grow so that we can assist those people to recover from the effects of colonisation. Now, the only way we can grow that is to run businesses. So I think you can feel where I'm headed um, with that particular remark. We are trying to affect intergenerational change. So as a charity, we make decisions looking forward five and 600 years. Uh, most of your clients in the charitable space are not looking at things with such an enormously long lens. And I've worked with an enormous number of New Zealand charities uh, in my time. Um, but I have never been asked to consider how that's going to look in five or six hundred years' time uh, before joining the tribe. Um, and that's a big job. That redress is a really big job. It's complicated. And that takes a lot of flexibility within our structure so that we can do the things we need to do. And from a te ao Māori perspective, you'll hear about mana motuhaki, the ability to self-determine. You'll talk about mana whakahaere, which is the ability to do what you want to do uh, with your assets. In terms of perpetual steward stewardship, which was the kaitiaka, kaitiaka point that um, Justice Williams was talking about. So we've talked about the review and timing issues. There simply isn't enough time for people to uh, reply meaningfully to the uh, survey document. Um, that has been sent out uh, to us. Uh, it's very difficult to get a steer on what the actual policy uh, reasons are for some of these things. It's just put to you as a series of questions. So you will be receiving a fulsome submission uh, from us with our thoughts on all of those survey questions. We wonder whether there is now a case for PSGs to have an alternative regime to the charities regime in New Zealand because we are so different. We don't solicit public donations, we have an intergenerational lens, we must apply tikanga to our work. Uh, we look very different uh, to all the other kids and so we're wondering whether a first principles review would elicit the response from us that there should actually be an entirely new thing called a PSGE uh, governance uh, regime and that uh, we would be happy to give you our remarks about that. Um, accumulation simply doesn't work in a five to six hundred year context. Uh, we accumulate funds because we need them to last for a really, really long time and we need to respond to things that we don't even know about yet. Um, and so an accumulation rule for us wouldn't work well. We are constrained by our structure, however, and as Justice Williams pointed out, if we're not giving enough money out to our people, they simply vote in new governors who will. So we are peculiarly uh, restrained by our structure. We can't just have a pile of money that we sit on. Our people won't tolerate that. So we are already constrained in that regard, and we certainly don't feel that any accumulation rule is likely to take into account the sorts of things that we need to think about. Um, we think it's likely to be ethnocentric uh, and not to really recognise how we want to accumulate and why we need to accumulate those funds. Um, I think you already know how I feel about um, any fooling around with the idea that perhaps our businesses should pay tax. Um, from, from our perspective, you know, our work is to try and compensate the descendants of those who suffered the Raupatu. We need to make it as easy as possible for us to use the very small amount of money that was given to us at settlement to help those generations come out of intergenerational poverty and over-representation and all sorts of negative statistics in modern day Aotearoa. 
So as long as we're spending our money on those charitable things, uh, our view is how we get there is really uh, not the point. The point is what do we spend them on at the end of the day, and that should be the test. So if you ultimately spend that money doing charitable things, that's just fine from, from our perspective. We can't grow our money any other way. It is a full and final settlement. Uh, we are responsible for stewarding that money. We have to grow it. Advocacy from a te ao Māori perspective, one would immediately say, of course you don't mean that we can't hold the Crown to account for its obligations under the treaty and the fact that the Crown needs to um, be kept on track in that regard and uh, will wander off the ranch if not watched closely and shepherded back uh, into compliance. So we would certainly say um, we see no particular problem with advocacy at all in a modern democratic society. Why shouldn't people advocate for their position? And quite often from a charitable perspective to achieve what you want, you need to change the law. We, we, we know that. Um, one only needs to consider that it was the law that deprived Waikato Tainui of all of their land in the first place. There was a piece of legislation that simply took all their land away from them. So to then say, oh, you can't have any political um, or legal objective as charity seems to me to be um, uh, quite an interesting assertion in a modern democracy. And uh, we're very sad that we're not talking about the charitable purposes. Now, as I say, we have had a long time and given a lot of thought to how to make the current system work for us. It's not a hugely problematic issue for PSGEs, but it certainly is for some of the smaller charities that we work with and that feedback we hear all the time. So just a word from our marae and smaller charities. So a PSGE, we're an incorporated society. Our members are our marae. So we have 68 member marae into our incorporated society. Um, so we speak uh, for them as well when we're going to make this submission. Um, they're much smaller than us and they don't have people like you and me at their disposal. So they find this uh, whole charities regime much more challenging uh, than we do. Um, it's too expensive. Um, it's too difficult to maintain. It's too difficult to run. They don't have the capacity building. They're a volunteer. They're sitting at their kitchen table once um, a month on a Thursday with some other people uh, trying to figure out how to run their charity. Um, we don't want to see any additional regulation or fees imposed uh, on those entities. We would like everything simplified for them and we'd like them to get more of a hand. So we would say, um, you know, uh, there, there is a disquiet among this idea that, that the DIA are here to police the sector. I'd say you're here to support the sector uh, and we'd like you to be a little bit more forthcoming in your education and support role than your police role, um, bluntly put. Uh, so uh, that is the Māori perspective just from, from myself uh, and from the Waikato Tainui perspective, um, and I hope that's been helpful for some of you. Hello, everybody. It's great to be here from across the ditch. Um, I'd like to begin by just drawing your attention to five or six of the recommendations in our report. In ten minutes, I'm obviously not going to be able to cover very much, but what I've endeavoured to do through the course of this conference has been to listen to what the issues that are arising here are and to some extent do a comparison with the issues that arose in Australia, pick out what I think are the key themes coming out of this conference and the discussions I've had with a lot of people since arriving uh, on Tuesday night, 
and talk briefly about how, where I can or where I think insights that might be useful are for you. So if I could say that in Australia, three issues emerge consistently in our review. Uh, for those, by the way, that would like to follow, just type in strengthening for purpose into your web palm browsers and up should come the report. And you can go to recommendations 5, 9, 10, 11, 12 and 13 are the ones I'm going to touch upon. In Australia, the three themes that came out were fundraising. Everywhere we went, there was such a high level of fundraising frustration. It was item one, number one, when we walked into a room. Now, I don't think that's such a big issue from the conversations I've had here in New Zealand, but in Australia it was. The second issue was the objects, and I think we can probably thank um, the ACNC for getting everyone a little bit excited about that. They asked for a couple of variations of the objects, and the sector decided it had some views which we managed to hear every time we walked into a room. And that probably was um, inflating an issue a bit above um, where it probably needed to be in the overall discussions and debates. The third was in relation to a national scheme. Because we have states, there's a, a high levels of complexity in relation to constitutionality questions. And those issues were permeating up in a variety of different ways. So when I come over here, I find a quite different prioritising of agenda items. What I've heard, rightly or wrongly, is really two or three key issues. Governance and how you get good governance has come up consistently in conversations with people. And the second one is the proper limits of governments and the interventions of which the last speaker just said, where should government be playing a controlling role or a supporting role? Those sorts of issues come out over and over again in conversations here. With the greatest of respect, I'm, I actually think that some of the issues that are coming up on this side of the ditch are probably the bigger issues at a really macro level than issues like fundraising, but you take what you're given when you go to do a review, as I'm sure those that have been in the review process have discovered. Um, let me then start with how I think I can be helpful to you in relation to governance standards and some of the things that came up for us. We struggled a lot with governance because everyone knows that if you get good governance, you get great charities. If you get bad governance, you get lousy charities. So everybody wants great charities because of the impact of charities on society. The question is not the importance of governance, the question is how we get there. We, um, the Commonwealth Government imposed five standards um, as a part of the uh, process of establishing the ACNC, and part of our process was a discussion of those five standards. Um, they were overlaid on the corpse law, and in some ways they're an attempt to summarise the corpse law um, and to try and state clearly what might be appropriate governance standards. We were consistently confronted with problems um, as we went from consultation to consultation. Um, the con for example, the conflict of interest issues in relation to charities generally, but in relation to mutuals, are unbelievably complex. In a church context, um, a number of churches pointed out they already had governance standards at quite some sophisticated levels, and how those, which are sometimes statutory or substatutory regulations, interfaced was quite complex. We ultimately decided to recommend that the governance standards become a, a equivalent of a last resort, and if you could show that you had a governance standard that was being implemented, then the government, government's government standards would kick in. But if you had your own governance standards tuned to purpose, that might be much, much better because a number of state legislations actually had quite good governance standards and I thought the mutuals ones in relation to conflicts of interest, for example, were very complex and very thoughtfully worked through. 
we uh, recommended also that the word perceived, this was a Law Council of Australia recommendation, be taken out because in fact the governance standards in Australia required perceived conflicts of interest also uh, to be a disqualifying characteristic. That was unbelievably complicated. It's not in the corpse law. It's in no other standard um, of statutory thing. And we said, let's bring them back to consistency. So we struggled with an attempt to try and find some level of consistency. And lastly, we said that a criminal, um, in Australia, there's a, there's a uh, governance standard that says the breach of a, um, a statute carrying a penalty, of more, a penalty of greater than 60 penalty units is a breach of a governance standard. We formed the view that if you breach a law, you should be punished for that law. You shouldn't also be then able to be um, punished for a breach of essentially the tax laws and the ACNC laws. We said separate them out. If the ACNC wants to do that, take it out of the governance standards and make it in another place. But we thought that you should only be punished once for an offence, not potentially twice. So there's some of the issues that came up in our review. I thought it might be helpful if I offered some, um, some, uh, a couple of personal comments. And I think that it might be possible, if you're looking at governance standards, to reduce them to three. Um, I've made the first comment on that slide first. But I think that governance standards actually bear upon three areas. I think the first one is there's a bundle of issues linked to um, the nature and character of the people that are in your leadership. I call that good governors, and I think that's focused on the character of the people on the board. Second issue is I think there's a bundle of issues linked around goals. That is that the charity has to be able to focus on and show how its output's linked to its charitable purpose. And thirdly, um, I think there's a bundle of duties linked to um, the rules which you operate within. Obviously it's the law, but also the LORE of the organisation, what are its uniquenesses and its duties to the people that it exists for. And I'm wondering if it's possible to reduce governance standards to three broad categories, good governance, good goals and good guidelines. You've raised the issue of the colonisation of charities and what are the proper limits of government regulation. And I want to give you some encouragement in this regard. I think that we are struggling at the beginning of the 21st century to really emerge with a new body of law for the not-for-profit sector. Um, I think that this is very much uncharted territory. And we have a body of law for commerce well structured around companies and around contracts and around transactions. We have well-established bodies of state law and family law to give us justice within a family context. We have well-established body of law in relation to government and proper limits on government power in administrative law, constitutional law and so on. And we're really trying hard to develop a body of law for the not-for-profit sector and what it should look like. And I think that one of the things that um, we, we struggle with in this space is just what does that what does that body of law look like? And I'm going to suggest that some of the comments that have made around the role of government to support, to enable and to encourage charities are in fact a large part of what is at the centre of that body of law. But we really are, as a Western world at least, really trying to come to terms with what the body of law for the not-for-profit sector should look like. Um, what is the proper limit of government, government regulation? I don't know the answer to that, but I think I can tell you where the outer flag is. I think that the outer flag is probably that it's not appropriate for the government to be able to take control completely of a charity. I think that there's got to be some space, at least without reference to a court. So we recommend that in our review that the government have the power to ban a person from being a director, 
but not the capacity that, to replace the person. We think that the capacity to replace the leadership should ultimately lie somewhere outside of government because otherwise government can completely colonise the sector. So I, that's my personal view on where the limit is, but it's also a view that we expressed within our report that, uh, that that's probably the proper limit. But I haven't heard too much discussion around that in, um, in New Zealand as being a bigger issue, but we have done that in Australia. Um, the last thing to say, and it builds from what I've uh, just said, or the second last thing, was as much as possible to try and use carrots, not sticks. Miles talked about the use of the, uh, the jiu-jitsu rather than the sumo wrestler approach to regulation. Um, one of the things that we said in our report, and we really struggled with this, was to, we lifted, we said that if there's no other factors in play, how high can we lift the, the lowest tier for reporting. I think they've still got a reporting, and we said they've still got a reporting for the low level, but how light can we make it? And we, so we drew a line at a million dollars. The government formal levels were two, it was a quarter of a million, and when we seriously looked at it, we thought a turnover of a million dollars is not actually that much, and if you're doing nothing, you're not getting government funding, you're not sending funds to West Africa, or any of these other things, then why not look at how little we can impose a burden upon the sector rather than how much. And we drew a, uh, a tier level at one million. Means I'm out of time. Uh, a one million, a million and, four, and up to five million. Lastly, there's been some interesting things done in the US where they've endeavoured to pri provide volunteer protections through the Reformed Uniform Unincorporated Associations Act. And in Queensland we and in other states, we have civil liability protection. I think that's something you could think about. Um, generally, though, use of carrots, not sticks, the function of this body of law is to enable and to encourage voluntary participation and giving a thank you for the enormous privilege of being here. Wow. Thank you very much to our speakers. Thank you, Matthew, for, for the challenge to us. We're at the watershed moment of, of creating a new framework of, of law for this area, and um, thank you for that challenge. Um, thank you very much, Gwen, for your insights um, uh, on the ground from a Tao Māori perspective. Very helpful, thank you, and thank you for coming at short notice. <laughs> and Steve, thank you uh, for your... Um, for your comments about how the review is progressing at the moment. Now, uh, when we're on the community uh, roadshow, uh, Steve has been at pains to point out that uh, you're all welcome to come and ask him questions. Uh, am I correct in saying that here as well? Sure. And, and I wonder if the other members of the DIA policy team might like to identify themselves. I see Rachel, um, Louise, Brooke. So, you know, the review is in progress. As Steve said, policy decisions are being made. So um, we have an opportunity now to ask questions, and please don't be shy. This is the opportunity. Uh, we have wonderful um, uh, speakers and thought leaders here, so please take the opportunity, go up to the mic, but also um, please, make, uh, please make yourself known to the review team and, and have uh, discussions with them about issues that you're seeing as well. So enough from me. Um, we've got a few minutes for questions. <laughs> Could I perhaps start by asking each of you um, what would be the key change you'd like to see to the New Zealand charities legislation? I'm going to say two things. <laughs> um, we have to grapple with this um, charitable purpose idea in New Zealand. It's simply outmoded for modern life. 
Um, and I really think that it does prevent people from entering the sector. So in private practice, I used to work for a lot of people trying to set up charities, and they would spend an awful lot of money and time just trying to get in the frame. And they would tell you what you were doing, and you would think that is a worthy, fantastic thing that you are doing. And then you'd send your application off, and then you'd have an argument with someone who wasn't trained to have that argument with you, quite frankly, about whether or not your objects test was in the right part of the trust deed. And we like it to appear at clause three, not clause seven, and various other irritating realities that I'm sure some of you in the room are familiar with. <laughs> and please change this, please change that. We don't like your rule on the other. It just shouldn't be that hard to give people a hand to get into the charitable sector. It just shouldn't be hard. Um, the second thing I would say is that the emerging tribal economy means that uh, the charities regime doesn't work uh, particularly well for PSGEs, particularly as we watch the tennis ball uh, getting knocked around between the IRD review and the charities review about the business income tax exemption, uh, which we are watching and we have people in both review groups, just so you know, keeping a very close eye on where that ball is. Um, and at the moment it seems to be over here and we imagine it will get bounced back uh, after submissions. So we're following that ball around, but that's a bit of an irritating exercise to be doing that. But uh, I think that we do have to grapple with the idea that uh, charities have to make money somehow. Um, we, we can't elicit public donations or we don't elicit public donations. Uh, we have to make this work for ourselves and most charities are in that boat, quite frankly. Uh, the, the gap between rich and poor in New Zealand has never been wider. People have never needed more charity than they need it now. And we need to get innovative. How are we going to solve our housing crisis? How are we going to solve our health crisis? How are we going to solve these things? Um, anything that will clear the way for charities to get on with the mahi uh, is all good from my perspective. Awesome. Thank you. I'll take a pass on that because I don't think it's my place to say where your legislation beard should <laughs> be made. Just agree with me. I'm here to serve. <laughs> so she, and I, agree I really with liked what she said. <laughs> I really liked what she said. <laughs> that That's how you do it. Yes. <laughs> That's how you do so, it. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, obviously, I've, it's, you know, I don't want to not in position to preempt the outcome of all of this. Um, I just mentioned a couple of things that haven't come up that we have been talking about quite a lot. Um, um, one is the appeal mechanism. So um, if we are um, continuing with the approach of charitable purpose being defined in common law going back to 1601, um, and the, uh, Justice Williams' um, presentation was, um, I think everyone probably thought it was fantastic, really interesting, and he kind of highlighted some of the um, ways that society has changed in the intervening 400 years or so. So anyway, if, we st if, we, if we've got a common law approach, um, uh, maybe um, the barrier of appealing to the High Court is, is not appropriate. Um, it's, too, it's too high um, for charities wanting to appeal decisions and um, having uh, a specialist jurisdiction, uh, which is doing a bit more business, if you like, developing a bit more expertise, um, as is the case in England and Wales and perhaps elsewhere. That's um, something that we've been thinking about. Um, and. I'll stop there because I can see there's a question. Awesome. Miles.
charities that have been uh, clogging up the compliance uh, desks of the uh, ACNC in Australia. And uh, one of my colleagues um, characterised them uh, very pithily as those organisations governed by uh, male, pale and stale <laughs> board members with a sense of entitlement. Uh, so they are the secret fraternal men's business organisations, uh, return service men, I say men, uh, and some uh, religious organisations. Uh, and it appears uh, to me that their sense of what is good governance, although very detailed uh, and real based, is not what the general community sense of good governance is, which is drawn from a sense of governance of the Anglo-American perspective of how you run listed companies. Is there a place for alternative philosophies of governance? And how do they mesh with a regulator uh, wanting to enforce what they believe are community accepted standards. I take it yet that was the easy question, was it Miles? <laughs> did, you have a hard one? did you have a harder one back there that you might want to put out? <laughs> uh, um, I think Miles, I've heard added to that list of male, stale, frail is the one you missed. And um, and pale. Um, what I said, Miles, in relation to governance was I think there are three issues um, from my perspective. Governance, uh, good governance, good goals and good guidelines. And the difficulty we have at the moment is the separation between um, management and, and, and the board and governance is dominant in Western thinking around boards and it comes out of a commercial space. And there's a huge amount of good reason for doing it. It makes enormous sense but it doesn't translate as 100% sensible and it really has a lot of problems translating into the not-for-profit sector where the person might be on the board and involved in the management and a volunteer and playing other roles, as sometimes happens in a school community, for example. So we do need to think about these issues, obviously, but it's very difficult when we start to impose very tight standards through a regulator because it acts in a very constraining way because people only have to comply with or can only do things if they comply with the regulatory structures. And so you end up with this controlling and constraining um, exercise. And I was in a discussion here in New Zealand a couple of days ago where my, someone was saying the whole concept of minutes. We need to teach people how to do them. Well, maybe we don't. Maybe what we need to teach people to do is to record a decision that was made and the, where necessary, the reason for that decision, which is fundamentally what the purpose of minutes are, rather than teaching people how to conduct a meeting and record minutes. Is that not, that's not me up for money, is it? Uh, it's, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so I think there's a lot of room for what Miles is challenging me to think about, but I think it's really going to be a problem if we ingrain deep uh, deeply within legislative and regulatory frameworks, actual form rather than substance. 
Um, but that's about as much as I can give you in about five seconds. Thank you. We are out of time, but it's a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much to the speakers and to, to Miles for the discussion. I think it highlights the complexity of some of these issues, and, and I'm, I think it's fantastic that we are here discussing them. If you'd all please join me in thanking the speakers. Session 8 on social enterprise featured Louise Aitken, Dana Breckman Reeser, Kay Marie Dunn, Holly Norton, Andrew Phillips, and Stephen Moe. But that's a separate episode on the podcast. So you can just click through to listen to that one separately. Session 9 was a podcast interview on the history of reporting with Carolyn Cordery. And again, that one is also a separate episode on Seeds. Session 10 was on the future of financial reporting. And we heard from Warren Allen, Paul Atkins, Jennifer Gill, Liz Prescott, Duncan Scott, Braden Smith, Melville Yates, and Brent Kennerly was the moderator. Fantastic. Thank you. And let's come this way. Um, it's awesome to be at this part of... Let's dive in the way along. The future of financial reporting. Um, it, it is that highlight time of the conference. <laughs> it's that last panel, it's after lunch on the last day. And financial reporting people are pumped for it. The doors have been locked, <laughs> but there is an exit over this way if you'd still like to keep going that way. Look, financial reporting, and I think, you know, thank you so much to Caroline uh, for the presentation just prior to lunch. You know, real scene setting, where are we, how did we get there? And I think it's fair to say, Craig, both you and I go far back to, you know, um, receipts and payments accounts. You were talking of trust account audits this morning, and, you know, they're kind of where receipts and payment accounts were back in the day. The whole traverse to where we are now, and we've got a sensational panel in front of us looking and going forward, looking from both the XRB point of view, from a practical point of view, from a, from a client point of view, from a tell-your-story point of view. And I'd like us just to do two things before we kick that off. One is to applaud everyone that got through the Tier 1, 2, 3, 4 reporting awards last night. Yeah. <laughs> Massive effort double the number of applicants to try to win or come uh, highly commended in those awards last night than there was the prior year. Fantastic, and I would particularly say congratulations to Zealandia, who we have up here today, who will talk about a little bit about their story, their journey, not the last 500 years to how they've got here, but um, you know the, the journey for that annual report. The importance of annual reports clearly is both the stakeholder point of view as well as a governance point of view. And again, the last quick thing I'd like you to do. Let's raise your hand if you are representing a charity here. When you're thinking of that charity, uh, hands up, sorry. <laughs> when you think of that charity, uh, have you read their full financial statements from woe to go? All 36 pages of notes, all their profit and loss, their cash flow, their net statement of equity, their statement of service performance, the whole nine yards. Yeah, about half the hands have disappeared, I'm sorry to say. Um, 
You might not have read them all, but your responsibilities continue to sit there, being part of that governance group that potentially has signed them off. So, you know, I think there is a, an earth moment that says, yep, there is something really important within them, and we're going to find out today what they might look like in time to come, how we've got to where we are, and some of the stories behind. So think of that organisation as you go. We have on the uh, slideshow behind us the, uh, the, the, the presenters who will be with us. As I say, a, a phenomenal team who are, are here for this, this presentation and this presentation alone. I won't run through everyone because they're in the, in the handbook. It would take another seven minutes to do that. We know we've got allocated that time so that there's questions at the end. I would start to like Liz. Welcome you to the stage and uh, to cover the presentation. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Um, thanks, Brent. It's lovely to have the opportunity to speak to you here today. And I'm going to start by challenging the title of the session because a focus on purely financials isn't telling the whole story of performance. I represent the International Integrated Reporting Council, which is a global coalition of companies, investors, regulators, standard setters, the accounting profession and NGOs. And we're encouraging communication about value creation as the next step in the evolution of corporate reporting. Our mission is to instill integrated reporting and thinking within mainstream business practice across the public and private sectors so that integrated reporting becomes the global norm. Uh, we were formed in 2010 post the global financial crisis when it became very clear that financial statements alone weren't telling the full picture of corporate performance and a greater focus was needed on non-financial value drivers. Factors such as social relationships, human and intellectual capital have become an increasing part of organisational value for both for-profit and not-for-profit organisations. Along with the shortcomings of the financial statements, with their backward-looking focus on historical financial information, there's an increasing regulatory reporting burden, and reporting is often fragmented. The story is becoming lost in the detail. The principles that guide integrated reporting present an opportunity to reduce this burden and improve transparency, governance and decision making. And we all know that trust and reputation can take years to build, but they can be wiped out in an instant. So not-for-profits are well placed to benefit from moving beyond compliance-based reporting to a report that emphasises trust and transparency. Now, the development of integrated reporting is based on some key insights that a broader view of value beyond purely financial is needed. Users want to read about value creation of an organisation over time. We know that what gets measured gets managed and that reporting can influence better outcomes. And we also know that better, more concise and transparent reporting can help to unlock long-term investment. Many charities are already voluntarily reporting additional information reported, related to their performance, and research has shown that charities that provide more information to donors and potential donors are more likely to increase market share of donations in the following year. The research also suggests that the market will reward charities that are perceived as being more transparent than other similar corporations or organisations. Our framework was launched in December of 2013 and it gives a broader perspective into, in, into strategy, 
governance, performance and prospects so that a more holistic picture can be drawn and the likelihood of future success be better assessed. And this, in turn, will improve the decision-making ability of long-term investors and funders. It's a principles-based framework that can be tailored to the circumstances of any reporting organisation. And being principles-based, the framework also provides sufficient flexibility for organisations to be able to account for the growing number of global megatrends, such as stewardship and corporate governance, inclusive capitalism, the sustainable development goals and climate change. The integrated reporting framework itself is underpinned by the concepts of value creation, and that is value creation for the organisation itself as well as others, and also a broad range of six capitals being financial, manufactured, human, intellectual, social and relationship, and natural capital. A number of guiding principles underpin the preparation of the integrated report, informing its content and how information is presented. And they include things such as strategic focus and future orientation, conciseness, stakeholder relationships and materiality. And materiality from an integrated reporting perspective is considered through the lens of value creation. So your integrated report should disclose, uh, should disclose matters that substantively affect the organisation's ability to create value over the short, medium and long term. And the final piece of the framework is content elements. And they're in the form of questions to be answered in a way that best tells the organisation's unique value creation story and makes the connections between the elements such as strategy, business model and performance apparent. The integrated report is really the product of an integrated thinking process. And integrated thinking is the organisation's consideration of the relationships between its operational and functional units and the capitals that it uses or affects leading to integrated decision-making and, more importantly, actions. Although take-up to this point of integrated reporting has been greater amongst corporates, I think it's less of a challenge for not-for-profits um, to move to integrated reporting because you, you already are recognising and managing multiple sources of capital that often don't make an appearance in financial or annual reports. You're mission-driven a narrative or qualitative information can serve an important role in telling your story and how you've been pursuing your mission. Integrated reporting is an appropriate framework for combining both qualitative and quantitative information over a variety of timeframes, and it's also adaptable to new forms of social impact reporting. And finally, the strategic focus of integrated reporting over multiple timeframes is appealing. Not-for-profits face the situation of doing more with less. And this has contributed to not-for-profits operating in a much more strategic manner. There's also a very heavy dependence on a network of relationships with other not-for-profits, with businesses, with government and philanthropists whose contributions aren't necessarily captured by financial measures, and yet they're fundamental to their operation. Indeed, the role of intellectual capital 
is, which is defined as organisational knowledge-based intangibles, may be considered even more relevant to not-for-profits than for-profit organisations because not-for-profits have such a high reliance on relationships and partnerships. They have a high intangibility component of the value that is created and there is a high dependence on trust and reputation for their continued success. In this way, not-for-profits are already pursuing integrated thinking, and it's a logical next step for this form of thinking to govern the content of their reports. Thank you. Thanks so much, thank you. And absolutely, a, a number of organisations are already partway along that path, ready to go. And as Liz highlighted, you know, it will be easier for not-for-profits than pure commercial to be able to get into that full, that full realm of reporting. So thank you so much. Warren, XRB, the setter. Thank you. Thank you, Brent, and uh, good afternoon. Uh, in the time allotted, which, uh, you know, this is a very wide uh, topic and uh, we could spend the entire afternoon on it, so I'm going to concentrate on four uh, areas. One, what is the, what's changing in the public uh, perception in this area? Uh, what are your stakeholders uh, also requiring of you? What is the response uh, of uh, you, the charities, and uh, what does this mean for the future of uh, financial reporting? And it's really interesting to note that the public perception towards accountability is changing dramatically. There is a real interest from the public now as to how their donations, their subscriptions, their taxes rates and all other voluntary contributions are utilised. And the competition for the philanthropic dollar is real. And charities, and especially the small ones, need to be super careful not to disadvantage themselves in the market by ignoring the demands of proper accountability and transparency. I personally do not support the notion of exempting very small charities uh, from any form of standardised accountability reporting. You need to be careful what you wish for. And if there is insufficient financial literacy, and I acknowledge that that is a real issue in New Zealand, the uh, persuasiveness uh, or you know, the extent of financial literacy in New Zealand, but if there is insufficient uh, from within your membership of a charity uh, to even compete, complete the very basic cash form of reporting uh, required by tier four charities, then that certainly begs the question should you be allowed to take funds from the public? How can the public be satisfied their funds will be properly utilised and will this approach seriously jeopardise the ability of small charities to raise funds in the future? And to give you an example, I was staggered 14 days, between 14 and 15 days of the tragedy in Christchurch that we've witnessed recently, there was 10 million raised on the Give a Little page uh, run by uh, victim support. And within 10 or 15 days, the people that gave money to that Give a Little were asking what's happening to it. They were seeking accountability. 
Uh, and uh, you know, I thought that was really very interesting. It didn't take too long at all where the chief executive of victim support was having to get on TV and say what they were doing in dispersing of that funds. The second, what are your stakeholders? What do they want to know? Well, they want to know what impact, what uh, outcome have you achieved with uh, your operations and with their funds and support. So a set of financial statements alone is not going to meet this demand. And my view is that donors, funders, members of charities are already demanding more performance, impact, and outcome type information than a fully compliant set of financial statements. And much more of this information, as Liz said, will be forward-looking, as opposed to our historical perspective from financial statements. How should charities respond to this? They need to account for their activities using a much wider set of metrics. Demands are rapidly moving from purely financial reporting to more holistic reporting, a repetition of that word holistic. The service performance requirement, which has been in place for several years now for tier three and tier four charities, and in January 2021 will be required for tier one and tier two, is an excellent start. A huge demand we are seeing for reporting and accountability on social issues. Some examples are climate change, environmental impacts, you know, water quality, remuneration strategies, supply chain processes, human slavery we see regularly quoted in the media, and human rights issues such as inclusiveness. Also, this government's wellbeing framework and Treasury's living standards framework, which has been mentioned today a number of times, are giving a real impetus to this. And the demand for information to assess sustainability you as charities must convince your funders that you have a sustainable operation that will be able to deliver on the programs, and especially where they are giving funds for a multi-year program. How can they be assured that you're going to be around to deliver on those programs? That is part of accountability and transparency. So what does all of this mean for the future of financial reporting? Well, I think we can stop short of saying that it's totally broken, and financial reporting is clearly now only one aspect of external reporting designed to discharge the entity's accountability obligation. The filing obligations for the charities register requires a set of compliant financial statements, and I'm sure that that will remain but a set of compliant financial statements just on their own is no longer fit for the future for users of external reports. And a full set of accounting records, even simple cash records for tier four, will need to be maintained, but possibly only the key items will be demanded in external reports. And I want to conclude by saying many of New Zealand charities are doing an amazing job in responding to these modern demands. And one of those entities is represented on the panel this afternoon. But we need to have more of you join that trend. 
Thank you. Thank you so much, Warren. A absolutely, you know, there is a trend. There is more reporting that can be done. Um, is it a simple cop-out to, as some of the commentary around has been, or maybe we could get an exemption? It is public funds, it's important funds, it's funds that effectively we are holding in trust. Thank you so much, Warren. One of those winners, uh, no, sorry, we are going to uh, Jennifer. Jennifer, from the North, North, uh, Foundation North, my apologies. Yep, welcome. Um, as a as a funder, as a receiver, as a as a multi reader of. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, kia ora tato. It's a great it's a great privilege to be here, and um, I'm unashamedly a non-accountant who has spent a large proportion of the, my last 30 years in philanthropy working with the financial statements of thousands of New Zealand charities. I did once go to a Victoria University continuing education half-day course on accounting for non-accountants, so I got all my wisdom about accounting from that course. <laughs> but when I was thinking about this, I first, as I alluded to yesterday, I first went to work for Sir Roy McKenzie in the 1980s, and um, we made a grant to a, from the Roy McKenzie Foundation to a very well-known disability charity, and I went to a launch of this particular project to which we'd made a contribution and said to the um, CEO of the branch of this organisation that I was disappointed that there was no mention of our grant in his annual accounts, and he looked down at me and said, oh, it was too small to mention, and I said, well, that's a shame. It's probably going to be too small for us to bother to fund you again in the future. Um, <laughs> But to Foundation North, so we are one of 12 New Zealand trusts established from the sale of the trustee savings banks in the late 1980s. So the combined community trusts hold total assets of over $3 billion New Zealand dollars across New Zealand. Foundation North is the largest non-government funder in Auckland and Northland, and our endowment sits at just under $1.5 billion, with an annual grants budget of around $40 million. So obviously we have a really large resource devoted to looking at um, what applicants for our funds tell us about themselves. We've incorporated the financial reporting standards into our policies and have been working actively with others to educate our applicants who are expected to comply with the standards. But from our perspective, there are actually two sides to this. How do we, as the largest philanthropic funder in New Zealand, tell our story, and how do our grantees rep them, represent themselves back to us through the application and reporting back process. So we actually have a two-part annual report. Part one is what we call a storyboard, which is where we outline our funding approach and highlight, the nearly thousand, highlight about 20 of the nearly 1,000 projects that we, that we fund every year. And then part two is our financial statements, our summary statement of service performance, which aims to provide the public with a transparent, easily read overview of our performance, inputs, outputs, and the developing area of outcomes achieved. Now the interesting thing about this is we were early, early adopters of this mode of reporting, 
And um, I don't know if there's anyone here from KPMG, but they've been our auditors for a long time. And I'm old enough now to say that the auditors are now younger than my children and start to look like they should still be in high school. <laughs> and one of these very lovely young men came into my office. So we have a 31 March financial year end. And he came into my office, and we were doing, we're doing this for the first time, and he said, so what's the impact been of all of the grants that you made last year? And I said, well, it's the 1st of June. Most of them haven't been paid out yet, and most of them we won't be able to report on the impact of for at least five years. So there's actually a really interesting question for us as a philanthropic funder about how we measure the impact of what we do. But interestingly, we've aligned our own internal reporting on both our financial objectives and our grant-making objectives into the same, same format. So around 70% of the organisations that apply to us for funding are registered charities, and our expectation is that they will comply with the standards. What we know, and it's been alluded to quite a lot over the last two days, is that particularly for smaller organisations, this is a struggle. The tension for us is that many of the organisations that could most benefit from our funding are the least well-resourced to access it. So example, in Mount Roskill, near where I live, there are 176 languages spoken on a daily basis. So you have this hugely diverse urban conglomerate in Auckland with, a, with really significant minority communities who need, who need the resources to both access philanthropic funding and, of course, ultimately to be able to report on it. On the other hand, I have my trustees, our decision makers, and they want us to be able to clearly articulate to them what, does, what do our applicants own? Where is their income coming from? Are they solvent? What do they owe? Can they fund this themselves? Can they manage a large grant? What's the size of their reserves? What are their reserves for? Why are they holding reserves? Why have they got such big reserves that they're applying to us? So my grants team are required to, to distill, if you like, all that information into something that will help the trustees, who are the ultimate decision makers, make the decisions that they need to make. So as a funder, we really like the templates. We like the ability for charities to account in a transparent and consistent way, and we think that there could be a greater response from both the regulatory agencies, the not-for-profit sector, and the philanthropic sector to actually help the not-for-profit sector get, get up to speed in this way. There's particular concern in Auckland about Pacifica groups and their ability to both access funding and access the internal and intellectual resources that they need and the kind of cultural capital that you need if you're going to engage in this, in this funding space. So I just asked my staff for a couple of comments on it. And um, so here's just a couple of them. So one member of the funding team said, it seems like it's more work for charities, but the quality of what they provide helps us to write the reports on them. For Foundation North, some of the headings under which we report to trustees are different from the headings which, we, which the grantees are presenting to us in their financials. So maybe we need to amend our own internal reporting templates to, make, to be more congruent with the reporting. We still think that charities could be in 
encouraged to use SSPs in a much fuller way to talk about their activities. But and it was really obvious at that lovely awards ceremony last night that everybody who got up on the stage to receive an award had a story to tell. So the Bellyful organisation who provide dinners to families who, who are undergoing stress. Everyone's got a story to tell, and it seems to us that this, that this new way of reporting actually gives the not-for-profit sector probably for the first time the opportunity to do that. So the short answer, I think, from, from us as a funder is that we think that the standards were an admirable thing to bring, admirable thing to bring into New Zealand. They've really helped us to report more clearly both on our own work and on the work of our grantees, and we'd like to see a more collegial effort across the various sectors to make sure that we, that we help those who need help to actually comply with something that's really, really helpful for us all. So thank you. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Um, I think, you know, from both from a funder point of view and, and also the very unique position that you hold of with so many applications and so much financial knowledge and information coming into the, the organisation. Um, yeah, absolute gems of mindsets. Thank you. Thank you. One of those organisations that I'm sure over their, their short history have applied for funds to a variety of spots the Tier 2 award winner for 2019, Zealandia. Paul, welcome. Thank you. It's a great privilege to be here. Thank you very, very much. Seven minutes. Mm. Um, so, look, I, I don't have any slides, and I've only got one thing I want to say, and I'll spend seven minutes saying that through a case study. Uh, at least I try to. And I've entitled this The Cost of Only Compliance. Um, the latest standards came out in, what, 2015? And, of course, like all standards, it's entirely possible to only comply. It doesn't really matter what we're complying with, but we're all actually really pretty creative when it comes to compliance. So I'll slap in a few more figures. They won't be the financial ones, they'll be about something else. I might tell you a story, chuck in a couple of photographs. Cool. Um, but in my view, this comes at an extremely substantial cost. It's the cost of us not telling our story. It's the cost of us not actually communicating what we want to communicate and using the process of being compliant to do something very, very, very much bigger and more important to an organization-wide audience. So I'd like to give you a bit of a story, uh, a bit of a case study, a snapshot. In 2015, 2015-16, uh, Zealandia, uh, some of you may know this, uh, Zealandia was just about beginning to emerge from a period that had been um, somewhat uncomfortable, challenging, difficult. And during that period, uh, uh, triggered in, in late 2015, we started a process of developing a document that looked ahead 20 years. We have a 500-year strategy, hard to write a business plan for that. So we decided to try and make it a bit smaller. And so we wrote a document called Living with Nature. 
Living with Nature is our strategy statement and statement of vision out to 2035. And then at as that was being launched in 2016, the first requirement to report against the new standards uh, was hitting us. It, it was for that, that current annual report. And so we asked ourselves really the question, what do we want to say? And actually, this document here talks about transformation. It doesn't talk about how much money we've got in the bank this year. It doesn't actually even talk about how many people visited us this year. It talks about transformation. It talks actually about transformation across ecological, societal, and business areas. All three. And so we wanted to tell that story. And as you know, transformations don't happen in one year, at least not usually. Not in our world, anyway. And the current, the, the, the model that we had, the approach we had to annual reporting, to financial reporting, was not going to do it. And so we cast around and came up with, and, and Liz, I, uh, thank you for your presentation, uh, we came across integrated reporting. And we've embraced integrated reporting. We started three years ago, so we've, we're now three years in. And what this enabled us to do was to tell a story about value, how we are creating value, and by that, how we are transforming stuff. It also forced us to ask the question constantly, so what? It never ceases to amaze me that I will stand up and talk to people about how we have gone from 95,000 to 135,000 visitors a year last year, and nobody ever says, well, so what? So we're asking ourselves that question, and integrated reporting is a methodology that enables us to check ourselves, let alone invite you to check us. So we applied there it is. Um, it's really intimidating having that clock counting down. Um, <laughs> we, um, we applied four of the capitals, uh, social, environmental, human, and financial. And, and we started three years ago. We're now three years in. It is definitely a journey. Our uh, annual report three years ago, I mean, pretty picture. <laughs> yep, so what? Um, uh, it, it was a first try. What was great was that last year um, we were recognised to the Australasian Reporting Awards with a silver award, and that, that made us feel good. Oh, maybe somebody's sort of giving us a hint that we're not doing bad things. And then this year, and it was a real great pleasure to be at the dinner last night um, to receive the Tier 2 Award, uh, and I'm really, really, really grateful to everybody for that. But what actually has been happening? In this process, what we are doing is we're taking, we're wrecking the podium. Um, what we're doing is we're taking that document and every year we are asking ourselves, how are we contributing to that? What value are we adding to that? To our commitment for the next 20 years. And if you like, that thing, is simply an annual update on progress. That's all. Now, annual updates might have finances in them, but that tells me nothing.
apart from my... Well, it doesn't even actually necessarily tell me my financial health, actually. So what we've done is we've got an annual update, and what we're doing is we're using this as part of our toolkit for doing good business, for growing our business, growing our partnerships, growing what we need to achieve that. And so we're seeing the annual reporting process as being something entirely different. And my one point I want to make to you this afternoon is that there is an immense cost in only complying. Actually, the opportunity we've got through these reporting standards is to create something that becomes an integral part of our business armory and the way we do good business and the way we grow our business. And I think that is the key opportunity facing every single charity, no matter what size it is. Thank you. Well, thank you, Paul. How refreshing to hear someone voluntarily wanting to go further, wanting to take it, wanting to create value, as opposed to Ipsas 15's 3.1387 says, I need to do this. I have to, and can I argue the fact I don't want to? So, you know, wow. And I would, I would suggest everyone in the room go and have a look at the Zealandia um, site download the financials, have a look at the total pack of that integrated reporting. Three-year journey to date, 20 years to go, and it will morph and, and change as, as it goes. I would also highlight for any of the international tourists, if you're in town tomorrow or Sunday, go up to Zealandia, a short bus ride on, it used to be the number 12 bus, it used to run on time. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it could be any bus that heads towards Karori. Hop off as soon as you're through the tunnel, and it's a wonderful stroll through and a sensational spot. So, cool. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. And on we go. One of those wonderful sound bites that turns up, you know, almost like waves coming in on the ocean, is consolidation. You know, it's, it's been there almost since we were all this high, and we knew we should have, but we didn't. And then we started to, and we had to, and then it sort of said, oh, let's give it a shot, but... Charity services kindly said you can have an exemption for a year or two, but there's another wave coming. There's another wave coming as the consolidation standards changed as well. But one of those organisations that's, uh, that's got into it and, 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 and can prove that that many organisations can be consolidated. So we don't need to hear that, oh, I've got 63 of these or 122. You can do it. You really can. And it's a pleasure to have Mark along from Plunkett to be able to run through that or anything else to do financial from Plunkett. So good on you. Welcome, Mark. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed that last um, section. I'm looking forward to uh, checking out the Zealander accounts as well. It'll be, uh, be good. Um, well done. Um, yeah, so uh, kia ora koutou. Uh, I'm Marco Sullivan, financial controller for Plunkett. Um, I'm here to talk, you, talk to you today about, um, you know, it's really an iconic Kiwi brand that I'm sure most of you have um, dealt with um, personally. Um, for our um, overseas guests, um, Plunkett's the largest provider of free support services uh, for the health and well-being of children under five in New Zealand. Um, so I guess the major thing to talk about is um, the move 
from a federated model into um, a large single entity, um, now the Royal New Zealand Plunkett Trust. Um, so we're over uh, 100 years old, so we have obviously quite a, a long and lengthy history. Um, originally we uh, had a lot of branches and sub-branches, um, and over the last few years they uh, rolled up into 18 area boards, and we were managed at an area board level. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, the area boards voted to come together as a single organisation, um, and the vote passed with greater than 70% of the votes. Um, what that meant for us, though, was that we still had um, you know, 20 to 30% of people who didn't vote for it, um, and some of them you know, weren't too happy with uh, the overall decision. Um, and uh, yeah, we obviously have to, to deal with that, um, and it's, it's a big challenge, um, but it's one that you need to meet um, you know, head on. Um, walking towards the fire is a, uh, a term that I've heard used um, referring to it, uh, but you do need to be uh, resilient, um, because yeah, there's obviously some unhappy uh, people involved. Um, another thing that, uh, that this caused as well is it caused a little bit of a um, uh, destabilisation uh, in the volunteer base. Um, and you know, we're, we're recovering from that, but it's, uh, it's a slow path. But the vote was from the areas and, uh, and it was passed. Um, lots of reasons for it. Um, two of the main ones um, would be um, health and safety legislation. Um, you know, that's um, becoming more complex and onerous than uh, it has been in the past. Um, there's also the changing face of um, volunteerism. Um, that was a key as well. So uh, Plunkett already had um, a burning platform, really, um, mostly on account of those two factors. Um, we already had uh, four of our 18 area boards had um, closed down, um, essentially uh, voluntarily. Um, and the, some of the others weren't in great shape either. So um, that's some of the, the driving reason behind it. Um, so transition-wise, um, some of the keys to it um, was really getting on board um, people in this room. So you know, um, auditors, lawyers, um, making sure our, our board was 100% behind it um, and you know, leading the, the charge and the discussions. Um, there's a lot of work involved. Um, in transitioning to a single entity. Um, so uh, I know there's um, several other organisations out there who are um, either doing it or thinking about doing it. Um, don't underestimate the, uh, the work involved um, or the cost um, if you're going down that path. Um, what it does do though is it highlights a lot of uh, hidden risks and issues um, and you know, it does sort of put them in the spotlight. Um, you know, we've learnt uh, a lot along the way um, you know, we had to identify um, you know, every lease, every contract. Um, we had to uh, novate them, get them changed over to the uh, new entity. Um, we had to establish uh, the ownership status of you know, every building that we had, uh, which on the face of it might sound straightforward enough, and you, know, you might expect that actually we already had that. Um, but you know, the, I guess the organisation was grassroots in nature, like um, a lot of places are. Um, and the length of time, you know, over 100 years, some of these buildings have, have just been there for as long as we've known. Um, so, yeah, we had to figure out what the story was with them, who owned them, who, who didn't, how, how they came to be. 
So uh, yeah, definitely a lot, uh, a lot. It was complex and it was time consuming. There was a lot involved. Um, interestingly, the, the change also gave um, some people, like um, some councils, uh, a chance to reconsider some of the previous long-standing informal contracts that we had with them. Because, um, you know, essentially, again, historic things that in the background for them were just happening. Um, but suddenly we're going to them saying, hey, we've made a change. Uh, we need a, a contract change. We need a contract at all. Um, so, yeah, that was an, an opportunity for them to change things that uh, typically wasn't in our favour. Time. Oh, my God. I didn't think that would be ever flashing at me. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, there are other um, costs, uh, impacts as well. So that increased costs. Um, for example, your uh, casual R&M on buildings. Um, previously, they would have been done by you know, Lisa's dad, who's retired. Um, but now, you know, some of that needs to be contracted out. Um, and so not only is that an, a, an additional cost, um, but it also impacts the connection between the community and the organisation. Um, so yeah, that's a factor there as well. Uh, realistically, though, um, you know, health and safety-wise, um, we really don't have a choice. We, we can't have um, you know, somebody's 75-year-old um, grandfather um, on a roof of a building, you know, patching a, a piece of the, the roof. You know. um, so uh, grant funding has uh, also been impacted. Um, now with us being a, a single entity, um, you know, we're too big for some um, funders to deal with, um, or they don't feel that their grant will make a difference. Um, that's incorrect though, um, our community services uh, really do rely on those grants. Um, so there's also a, a community um, fear that uh, the money raised at communities will be you know, used on um, you know, uh, big Wellington salaries if you like. Um, so that's incorrect as well, so uh, typically our um, community services have been running at a, a deficit for several years. Um, so financial reporting and, and how does that link back? So well, typically um, grant funders require um, a geographic area because they fund it so they require the uh, financials for that. Um, so previously they've had uh, audited um, area reports. Um, now a lot of the time the best that we can do is um, management type reports which you know, works for us but um, not always for them. Um, I guess the other challenge is that our audited accounts um, show our entire business, um, so it mixes up our um, government contracts and our community services. Um, and it, that doesn't work great um, at the moment um, because both the ministry and the community, um, ironically, they've both got the same concern that they're subsidising each other. Um, and at last count, no, they're both in deficit, so they're not. Um, so uh, it's been mentioned several times. Um, that you know, financial reports really need to tell our story and, and not just um, consolidated numbers. Um, and yeah, I totally, totally agree with that. Um, ideally, from my point of view, you know, um, segmenting our community services from our um, contracts um, in a fully transfer priced um, type model in our audited, audited accounts to show our uh, real position um, to, of our activities to our funders um, would be really useful. Um, the upcoming service performance reporting, um, I think that'll be brilliant. Um, it's going to play a really important role in telling our story as well. Um, yeah, I think we're a couple of years away from that, but um, yeah, definitely be a big plus. Um, and yeah, looking forward to seeing that in the future. Thanks.
Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Uh, yeah, how, how you take an iconic New Zealand brand and, and, and put it into one. The trials, the tribulations, the risk now associated around and, and clearly one of the main drivers, as well as that, uh, that, that next step towards what is the full story for the full brand in and behind. So thank you so much. Next, we have Braden Smith. Braden's one of, uh, one of the, the uh, colleague partners at Grant Thornton. Um, very much involved with and signing off those opinions, as, 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 as I do, as, as well. And, you know, um, I think we'll hear and see some random statistics and different inroads into the sector that we might not have otherwise thought of, considered, but uh, bringing a wealth of knowledge and information. Braden, great to have you along. Thank you, Brent. All right, it's a little bit hard to talk about the, uh, the future of financial reporting if you don't give a wee nod to the past. So I'm just going to take you back in time a little bit, not 4,000 years like we've had a little bit earlier, but just four or five. Many of you will recognise this framework. This is what we used to have, just four frameworks, nice and simple, nice and straightforward. There was a bit of a, there was a war on the battlefield. It was a bloody war, actually, and uh, three-quarters of the population got wiped out, and we were left with just one. Uh, but if I, if I look at the new framework, you know, if the current state of affairs, so we're moving from the past into the current, if I tot them up now, I get around about... <laughs> not that. What have I done there? There we go. We get 13. So if I tot them up today, I'm up to about 13 different frameworks under which I can prepare financial statements. It's pretty hard for someone like me to remember all of those frameworks, but um, it's, it's a pretty good list. But we're not here to talk about the past or the present. We're talking about where are we heading now? What is the future? Uh, the future of the, financial, uh, the, the current financial reporting framework that we're using now is still very new. I think it's really important to remember that. Uh, but as for the question, will it change, I think the answer is undoubtedly. Uh, many people will then follow that up with, well, how do you think that will change? And then the answer to that is, well, who knows? Um, it's, it's actually quite difficult to predict, but what I think you can do is you can look at some of the uh, current uh, trends and things happening in the environment to look to where it may lead you in the future. Here's an analysis of 27,500 charities, okay? This is our charitable sector cut down into the four financial reporting tiers as it was in 2017. So what you'll see there is tier one and tier two, which are the two largest uh, sets of accounting um, reporting standards rather, for organisations with $30 million of expenses and above for tier one or $2 million to $30 million for tier two. Now they make up 4.46% of the population of the charitable sector. The tier four sector, which uh, is comprised of entities whose expenditure is less than 125,000, is made up of 71% of the population by number. Let's look at this in terms of assets. When we look at assets, tier one and tier two entities hold 71% or just over of all assets within the charitable sector. So that's 4.4% of the uh, sector holding over 70% of the assets with uh, our, our brethren in tier four making up 70% of the population holding a mere 3.95%. What about income? Okay, let's look at that. So income, we have 79% of the income generated by the charitable sector is generated by 4% of the population. 
with 3.5 per cent of the, of the income for the sector generated by the tier four entities. It's an interesting uh, set of dynamics. Very complex, how do you design a framework to deal with all of these things? Well, let's look first at the uh, larger charities, so tier one and tier two entities uh, that we're talking about here. Based on our discussions, so this is a personal view and based on discussions with people out in the sector, uh, as to the question is, does it work? Broadly, the answer we get is yes. Uh, there are still some areas where people will pull out particular things and say this doesn't really work too well and it's a little bit challenging. Revenue features a lot in that uh, discussion. Um, but as generally speaking, people are relatively comfortable with the standards as they are. There's some size and rebalancing issues potentially around when people drop into the various uh, frameworks, but all in all it works pretty well. Uh, where is large financial reporting heading? Well, the, the place to look when you're looking for um, changes to financial reporting standards for the not-for-profit sector is the for-profit sector. Now, we have had uh, four relatively large standards impact us in the uh, for-profit sector, and it is undoubtedly that variants of these standards are coming towards the not-for-profit sector. Uh, there's also other areas which are slightly more specific and uh, relevant to the not-for-profit sector around expenditure, which uh, standards are uh, no doubt in the process of development as well. Uh, also giving a wee nod to consolidation, which is still an area of challenge, particularly for the religious sector. Uh, they're not alone in that space. There will be more entities affected by that, and Plunkett is an excellent example of where that takes place as well. Uh, if we just turn to uh, the smaller end of the scale now, so the tier three and four entities, and again, as to the answer to this question, which is really just based on uh, a relatively straw poll of our client base and the people that we talk to in the market, but is, as to the question of does it work well, broadly the answer we get is no. Okay, now there are a number of reasons for this, and I'll just uh, bring a few up. Right, okay, so we have uh, tier three entities, they continue to be challenged by a couple of areas of the accounting. Again, revenue does feature uh, in that discussion, uh, but usually the answer is uh, we have a real problem with the lack of resources in order to be able to uh, comply with financial reporting requirements. Um, compliance rates are actually quite low. If you go on to charity services and pull down sets of financial statements today, you will still find old gap and differential reporting sets of financial statements being prepared, usually by chartered accountants, I might add, um, uh, today. So that's, uh, that's something that still needs work. Uh, tier four entities don't have a balance sheet now, not in the traditional sense. Uh, you line 10 people up, five will say I love that, five will say I hate it. So again, a real, a, a real difficult one to sort of manage as well. Uh, size criteria probably needs some rebalancing, uh, letting more organisations into the uh, lowest tier, I believe. Uh, but there's some interesting structural uh, imbalances with uh, current allocations as they work, and that's really driven by the tier selection criteria as it works currently. So again, another whistle-stop look at some statistics. So these are for 2010 to 2015. If we look at uh, average um, assets in the charitable sector, you can see that line is hovering somewhere around about the 250, 300,000 mark. But when you break that down to the median, it drops phenomenally to under $50,000. Now that'll tell you that there is a huge number of very small uh, of, of entities within the tier four sector that have significant asset bases such that they can distort the average and the median to that extent. It's absolutely phenomenal. 
Uh, same happens with equity. Okay? Again, the median position for um, tier four entities really struggles to get off zero, and that's because most of them spend everything that they get. Um, on income, same sort of deal. Again, we have some really distorting averages. We have a number of uh, entities that, that are generating good profits, but that distorts the average. The median, again, overall is very close to zero. We tended to see the numbers hovering somewhere between $800 and $2,000 as averages. So what are the challenges? Just very, very quickly now, because I need to wrap up. Um, for, for the smaller entities, some very large asset holding entities with, with minimal expenses, uh, some very, very small charities uh, that have very limited resources in respect to financial reporting, there's still obviously a need, as it's been pointed out already, to, to have that transparency and accountability. Uh, and we want to get it in a way that I, I like. I love the template setup, and we need it in four pages, not 40. And I appreciate 40 is an exaggeration. <laughs> but thank you very much for your time, anyway, everybody. Thank you, Braden. A number of number of whistle-stop items and things on on, on there. I, lo I love it when Braden comes in on a Monday morning. Um, yes, he's always had a great weekend, but he also comes in with a really fascinating statistic of some sort. Is analysing everything behind the charities, you know, the the, uh, the registrar and, and things. If we were thinking, and clearly focused on Tier Four, if we were thinking the top hundred Tier Four organisations by asset. Any random guess of how, what, what the value of those assets would be? Just the small tier, just tier four, the top 100. Their assets knock through just north of 800 million. And yet we're saying maybe less regulation would be good. 800 million hanging out there that not too many people are looking too hard at. What a fascinating, I'm looking forward to next Monday. You know, he'll, he'll come in with, a, with another, another absolute humdinger. So I guess, you know, when we're thinking back to the charities, the, the review and things, maybe it's actually a two-tier approach we need. Maybe it is um, income expenditure, one of those two, flip a coin, and or equity or assets. You know, are we getting, is, is the right information turning up in the right spot? Don't know, might turn up in your submi submission. So thanks so much, Braden. Excellent. And on we go. We couldn't have either A, the conference, or B, talk about financial reporting and the future of financial reporting without thinking of our good Australian colleagues. And it's wonderful to have Mel around. Welcome. And uh, yeah, let's dive into it. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Kia ora. Uh, I just want to take an opportunity to thank uh, CLANS, Chartered Accountants Australia and New Zealand, the organising committee. And I also want to thank uh, Charity Services and DIA in general. So we had a really productive day together on Wednesday. It's not very often that we have these opportunities as regulators to meet in person. So I just want to say thank you to everyone who helped uh, facilitate that day. Now, Australia. So I just want to set some context. We had a little bit of an intro to this this morning and I, I very much thank Matthew Turner for raising the Australian context. We're in a federation in Australia and it's very complicated and we have different levels of government and this just displays the fundraising regulation environment in 2015. Now, different states impose different requirements around reporting and obligations on charities. 
And then along came the ACNC and a new layer was created. So it's fair to say that it's very complex. Um, and if I think about charities and the requirements that they have in terms of acquitting grants, in terms of fundraising returns, uh, providing us with the financial information that we collect, it's very complex, it's very inconsistent, and there's no, uh, there's no sort of uniformity about it. So one of the things that we are tasked with as a commission is to try and reduce the unnecessary regulatory burden on registered charities, which is quite unique for a regulator. Now, this is the current framework in Australia. We have three tiers, so uh, a little bit different to yourselves. It's based on revenue. So we look at the other side of things, money coming in, and that determines the size of the charity and the proportionate reporting obligations that attach to the size. The vehicle we use to collect that information is called an annual information statement. It's a, a collection of both financial data elements as well as non-financial information. And we require financial statements from those entities which are in the medium and the large size. So entities that have revenue of up to $250,000 per annum are not required to furnish financial statements. They can, and if they do, we will publish them, but it's not mandatory. Now, we've been around enough time to collect four full cycles of financial reporting, uh, and we were subject to a legislative review, which was wrapped up and, and given to Parliament last year, which has already been discussed. So, at the moment, the requirement for producing financial statements is a bit of a self-assessment for entities in Australia. Entities have to decide whether there are users which rely on the information that is produced by charities. Now, if a charity decides that, yes, there are users that rely on the information, they have to apply all Australian accounting standards. But if they self-assess that there are not users that need that information to make decisions, then they can adopt some of the accounting standards. So this poses a problem for our peers who set Australian accounting standards because they need to move and adapt to some international changes which are happening, which is going to affect us, particularly in Australia. Now, when we were created, there was a whole suite of transitional reporting arrangements which were put into the legislation, but there are temporary uh, they have a temporary nature about them. So the sun will set on those. And the independent review, which concluded last year, found that there was merit for those to be extended because at the moment there's no consistency in terms of reporting, but entities which are registered with the ACNC, in most cases, if they produce financial statements that comply with their state or territory reporting requirements, we will accept those and deem those to be meeting our requirements. So a big job of ours is to keep working with the states and territories to try and streamline and try and harmonise, but that probably won't happen by the time the transitional arrangements expire. So that was one of the reasons why the independent review panel found that that should be extended 
And if we think about parts of the sector, particularly non-government schools, for example, universities, hospitals, those type of entities, they're very highly regulated. So they have other primary regulators that they provide information to. We are just another, uh, another regulator, if you like, in the long list of obligations that they need to meet. Now, it was very interesting last night for me personally to be at the reporting rewards and for a charity to thank the XRB. I thought that was incredible. I thought that it was wonderful, but I thought that was incredible because I think in Australia, we're navigating a very difficult environment where the Accounting Standards Board need to make changes to comply with international obligations. And we have a government which hasn't responded as yet to our independent review. And many of you would know we're now in caretaker, so we will go to the polls next month. And so we're wondering what's going to happen out of this review. What will the next parliament decide to change in relation to the recommendations that were proposed? So we sit and we wait. Now, personally, and I think this has been covered, it's been covered by everyone that's spoken so far, people want to see more information than just the numbers. Some people don't relate to numbers. Accountants do, generally, or hopefully they do, but there are a lot of people who do not understand the numbers and they want to read and they want to see what organisations are doing and what they're achieving. And I think charities in particular, it's about a purpose. And so I think there is definitely space in the Australian context to include some of that narrative going forward. Now, the only requirement in terms of the financial statements at the moment is the numbers. So I think that is a good start and I think that's a springboard, but I think we will see moving forward, I will think we'll see more appetite for the words and the pictures and the outcomes and the outputs that charitable entities are producing and achieving in Australia. We certainly put that forward in our submission to the independent review. Now, essentially, you have your service performance reporting in place for the smaller entities, and that's being rolled out to the larger. So I think, in summary, we might be close geographically, but we're on very, very, we're at very different points in terms of our reporting journey. But I certainly take a lot of interest in what's happening in New Zealand, and I think we have a hell of a lot to learn from you and the journey that you have embarked on. So we are certainly watching. My peers in the Accounting Standards Board in Australia are watching, and I think we will be the, the magpie that we've talked about, and I think we will try and cherry pick what's worked well in the New Zealand context, and see if we can apply that in the Australian context. But I don't have a crystal ball, so we'll wait and see what happens. Thank you. Perfect, thank you. So you've got your eyes set therefore very clearly on the fact that as Braden's slides also highlighted, we have 12 or 13 different uh, sets of regimes to be able to think about, report on and try to understand and measure. So yeah, there'll be, there'll be all sorts of lessons I'm sure. We have, I'm guessing, about 10 minutes for that deep, diligent, thoughtful, thought-considered question, questions that have been sitting there since possibly nine o'clock yesterday morning. 
You knew the panel was coming. You knew who was going to be there. You've thought about it. You've taken the legal part of it. You've listened to all sorts of sound bites. And there's a rush towards the, the microphone. Or a slow trot. <laughs> there may be a little bit of a canter. Does it mean that we're actually all happy with? No. Awesome. Absolutely. Integrated. Yep. Um, I, I might just talk a bit about global momentum and, and then what's happening. Um, so there is a lot of global momentum building around integrated reporting, and we're increasingly seeing um, integrated reporting and thinking adopted around the world through corporate governance codes as the impetus, where there might be um, reference or alignment to integrated reporting. So it's seen as a form of best practice reporting. Um, we're also seeing stock exchange um, adoption or encouragement. Integrated reporting is not something that we want to see regulated. We want people to do integrated reporting because it makes good business sense to do so. But what we do hear from the market is that they are looking for an en encouraging um, regulatory environment that, that creates the opportunity for integrated reporting to be easily adopted. Um, it is mainstream in South Africa and Japan. We're also seeing it um, adopted in emerging markets. There's quite a few African countries, for example, who are adopting integrated reporting because they see it as a way of making their markets more competitive um, on a global scale. There's over 1,700 organisations in 70 countries that explicitly refer to integrated reporting, but there are many, many more organisations who follow the principles of integrated reporting. And I actually think that's a really strong indication that we're heading on the right path with this when you have businesses and entities around the world who are heading in this direction because they realise just producing their financial statements, as we've heard from everyone today, just doesn't give you the whole picture of performance. Um, in New Zealand, you've got entities as diverse as your Treasury, New Zealand Post, Sanford, Z Energy, Meridian, um, The Warehouse, Port of Tauranga, Zealandia, who we've heard from today, um, Ryman's Healthcare are another one who are embracing integrated reporting. So as I said, the focus has been a lot more on the corporate take-up. But to me, um, this is perfectly tailored to the not-for-profits because you've had to be so accountable to your funders um, anyway. And as we heard about the, you know, the comments about the awful events in Christchurch, there's so much more activism in the market where people are demanding more transparency. So we, we get pushback where people say, oh, but you know, we'll give away our competitive advantage. Well, there's so much information out there with social media. You know, One comment can go out from a disgruntled employee and there goes your reputation overnight. So I challenge organisations and say it's really up to you to control the story about your organisation. And if you put it out with gaps in it, someone else is going to fill the gaps and they could be wrong. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. And, and you know, you, you comment that we don't think it should be um, regulated. Mm. Just think, thinking across, Paul, to, to Zealandia, was, which part of the organisation was the key driver towards it? Was it the governance table or was it the management team saying, we can change, we can do better, we can can take a, 
a, a greater, wider, holistic view. Any, any, any of those two sides was stronger than the other or the, the dominant player in, in, in coming up to, to, uh, to where you are? Uh, no, I don't think it was actually. I think that, that um, it was both, um, and both in equal measure. Um, we really, really needed to tell a story that simply was not being told. In fact, the contrary story was the predominant story that was being told around town. And as a consequence, um, uh, the imperative was shared between management and board. Um, uh, just coming to something that was said about, uh, about um, making a, an approach, a mandatory approach, I think, the, I think there's a great danger in that because actually the whole point was we were able to look around at an appropriate approach, the approach that fitted the story we needed to be telling, uh, added value, and still enabled us to not only comply, uh, but, it, but, but comply nevertheless. So I, I, I think the wonderful thing about this framework is it's not mandatory, but it is incredibly helpful. Brent, Brent it, it, it may be interesting for the audience to, uh, to know that uh, we at the External Reporting Board have recently put out a position statement on what we call extended external reporting, of which integrated reporting is just one of, uh, of those yeah. frameworks. Uh, and uh, we certainly in that position statement uh, also do not uh, support that being uh, mandatory. That, you know, it's a, it's, it's a voluntary, it's a tell your story. You've heard that phrase many, many times uh, today. So, so in, in New Zealand, we, we support also, uh, at this stage, non-mandatory. Brilliant. Thank you for that update, Warren. And, and I think, uh, you know, in, in regard to Paul, it is, it, it is a journey, and to be able to take both sides, if you like, of the equation together to, along that journey is, is the only way, to, the logical way, in fact, to go. Caroline. Welcome. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. I've got a question about the profession, and it's probably um, at, directed most specifically at Mel and also Warren. Um, I'm a chartered accountant, like many of us in the audience, and my question is, you know, what's the role of our professional body in firstly helping you to develop your standards, but secondly in helping you to help the regulator to, um, if you aren't the regulator, to monitor compliance because Warren talked about, um, or some, no, someone talked about the, the accounts are not actually that great, it was Braden wasn't it, that the, the accounts you're looking at are not that great. So how, does, how could our profession, sorry lawyers, how can our profession help you develop your standards and how can it monitor compliance of its own members effectively? Thank you, uh, Carolyn. Great question, as always, uh, from, from you. Uh, I think the uh, professional bodies, the accounting professional bodies, and uh, CAA and Z, one of the key sponsors of this conference, I think has a real challenge. And in my comments, I talked about the woeful sort of lack of financial literacy in New Zealand. It's a major problem. Uh, it's interesting that it so sits quite squarely in the mandate of the FMA. Uh, but I think that should sit uh, with uh, CAA and Z and CPA, the major accounting bodies here. And I think the answer for charities there is not exempting the small ones, but providing the training and, and the exposure 
to people that are involved with charities so that we increase that financial literacy uh, that is available to charities. Uh, you know, I, I was very encouraged this morning because I wasn't aware of it previously of, uh, you know, collaborate, I think was the term of the organisation that puts together volunteers. And I think many, many uh, semi-retired or retired professionals are very happy to help out in, in charities. But, we, you know, that's where that collaborate organisation's brilliant, that it connects the need with the, uh, with the supply. Uh, and, and just finally, uh, we have a very strong working relationship with the professional bodies in the standard setting. Uh, we see them very strongly as providing the education and assisting with us to make sure that the market is aware of those uh, standards. Um, so from a, I guess from an Australian context, we also have very good relationships with the professional associations. We need to. Um, their members are such an important part of the charitable sector in terms of providing expertise and doing the audits, preparing the accounts. So we definitely have, uh, we definitely have very, very good relationships and we share information and that needs to continue. But in terms of, I guess, obligations on members in doing the work that they do to support the charitable sector, I would encourage, and I, and I certainly say this when I, when I talk to members who work in or with charities, that there is an obligation on them to call things out when they need to be called out. They need to work with charities to help them if they identify governance issues or, or anything of concern. And there's obviously an appropriate escalation process, but quite often some of the, the really pointy end cases which end up being investigated by our compliance peers, quite often it, it becomes apparent at that point that there was a professional who was aware of something, who said something, but then didn't follow through, didn't take it further. So I definitely think it's incumbent on those, you know, on, on all of us as professionals in the sector, when we see something, we need to do something about it and we need to work with charities to try and help them improve their capacity and their capability um, but I definitely also think that the relationships um, between the profession, professional bodies, the professionals, and also between us as the regulator are also very important. So we've got to keep that dialogue open. Terrific. And, and so true. And it's wonderful to have 180, 190 people along here these two days doing some CPD. Uh, but actually, there is some core fundamentals that we need to be looking at and getting our friends and colleagues who aren't here to be thinking about and challenging as well. So, It is very close to 2.50. In fact, it's 2.49. So um, we will call that uh, a, 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 um, a wrap up. Thank you so much to the team. Thank you to all of the commentary. Thank you to all of the sound bites. Um, everyone I know will be taking four, five, six, if not eight or 10 sound bites from one of the best sessions of the day. So good on you, thank you. In one of the final sessions, there was a group discussion around some of the key themes that had emerged from the conference, and that's what's captured here. We're coming into the final straights. Uh, we've now got an opportunity to have a bit of a general discussion here. Uh, so I've invited Matthew up here to help. We've got um, questions that we've had put up over there, uh, and we're also going to be running a mic around if people have got questions that they want to uh, ask. 
uh, for sort of general discussion. Um, I recognise that this can be a challenging thing in that um, this is an opportunity for some people to jump on soapboxes. So if you do have a point to make, can I do ask for the sake of everyone that we keep it um, balanced and not too long? Uh, but otherwise, we will go with that. Sounds good. Shall I, shall I put a question out there? Put a question out there. So, uh, okay, so we had a number of questions posted up on the board. They cover a whole range of topics. Um, the full spectrum of what we've been discussing over the past day and a half. So we'll just pick, pick some at random and put them out. Well, I'll start with this one. So um, uh, we touched on the uh, scope of the review of the Charities Act uh, and, uh, of course, um, the definition of charitable purpose is not within scope for that review. Um, so uh, there's a question, and there was some discussion of this and, um, and what... Uh, 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 a revisited definition of charitable purpose might look like for New Zealand law. So someone has asked, well, what would that look like? Could we talk a bit more about if we ever did revisit the definition of charitable purpose uh, under New Zealand law, what, what would people want it to look like? So does anyone want to speak to that? Uh, what could change there? That, uh, do, do you want something like what we've got in Australia? We have a longer list of heads. I think Una's got his hand up. As usual, all I can tell you is what others don't. <laughs> so, when other countries have broadened their definition of what charitable purposes are, they've always gone from pencil, pencil which is what you actually have in your um, legislation at the moment. So they haven't lost that. But what they've done is that they've expanded the last box, the one that other purpose is beneficial to the community. And they've come in with the modern hooks things today that we generally allow charitable status for, um, but make it more clear. So you know what little hook to hang your coat on when you apply to charity services, for example, to be registered. Two ways of doing that. So here's my question back to you. When we did this in Ireland, we broadened out 12 new heads under other purposes beneficial to the community. The only heads that were accepted were the ones that revenue then gave charitable status to under their own strict rules. So they wouldn't include promotion of human rights, which puts us in a bad little box in Ireland, and they didn't include promotion of amateur sport. So those are the two we left out in Ireland. So think about if you were to extend your final box for your charity, what would be the thing that you'd like to see as the little hook that would work for you? And are there things that are not included at the moment you'd like in or that you'd hate to see going in? Because I think that's where your conversation goes around that issue. And I'd just like to put a plug in for the discussion document there because one of the questions is, should we extend the purposes? So, specific question people to actually put some thoughts on. Thank you. Uh, Fiona Martin from University of New South Wales. Just uh, building on from what um, Una said, in Australia one thing we did look at, because we also have a statutory definition with a number of uh, broader purposes and, more, and there are more purposes than under the appendix for you know, relief of poverty, relief of advancement of education, advancement of religion. But with the poverty issue, 
there was this worry that poverty and relief of poverty is now very much on, you know, interdependent with the welfare state and, and it's and stigmatised and a whole lot of different feelings came up into that particular area. So they did change the way that they talk, that we talk about relief of poverty. So that's, I mean, slightly different to what Una was saying, but maybe something that wants to be considered as well. Um, is there another? Yeah. And um, I suppose uh, if the architecture of the legal definition of charity were ever revisited here, it could not happen without at the same time thinking about that question of public benefit and how it intersects with the um, expressed heads of charity. Uh, and as we know in different jurisdictions, that intersection plays out quite differently uh, and uh, in all cases seems to play out controversially. <laughs> uh, so. Um, I suspect that's territory that you'd tread on with great care if you ever got to that point. Any other thoughts on that question? I think I'll, I'll sorry. Um, not that I have any particular um, perspective on this, but it was some interesting things that have come out of the roadshow, especially from a TL Māori space. Like, I think we heard at one session um, this, this thought from an iwi that um, we want to benefit our iwi. That's, that's essentially, that's our public benefit. Um, and who are you to tell us how we should do that? And why should we be fitting into a box of, um, you know, 17th century law, which I thought was a really interesting and probably challenging um, comment for our policy colleagues. Kia ora, uh, my name is Hamish Lindstrom. Um, my thought is if we're trying to cram charities into a loosely defined fourth head, um, that maybe instead of trying to rigidly encapsulate more uh, definitions in the Act, we should perhaps instead uh, try to put some rules or a test around what is uh, a public benefit for charities to meet um, when you're deciding is it a, a public benefit and a charitable purpose? I might, I might just make one brief response to that and maybe we'll move on to another question. Um, I, I want to go back to what Justice Joe Williams said earlier because I think, uh, as Una has said, um, one way of approaching this question of defining charity is to look at the various models that build upon the Pemsel case uh, and work with that existing taxonomy, if you want to put it that way. Um, that's one way to do it. That's the way that we see being chosen by jurisdictions up to this point in time. But I think what Justice Williams put out there today was why not just wipe the slate clean and start again? Uh, a very provocative and exciting thought. Um, 
and uh, you know we know New Zealand has a history of uh, taking bold policy and legal reforms and who knows maybe this is the moment for you to really think seriously about whether Justice Williams uh, approach is a, is a good one. Um, so I think that's that's something we should bear in mind in thinking about these questions of legal definition. There's, there's the option, there are the options UNA has put to us, which are the options of building on what we have, uh, but there are also more radical options on, on the table potentially. Okay, um, another different question here. Do charities need to be regulated? All the speakers have made assumptions that charities need to be regulated. No one went into the question and debated the need for regulation and a regulator. Are charities that broken in New Zealand that we need a regulator. So an interesting challenge of an assumption that's been out there. With the, um, with the tax system and for charities in any sort of way was that they had to be endorsed by the tax office. And then obviously the GST came in, so they have to pay GST. All right. So, out of, and I analysed all the submissions to that, um, <laughs> that report, because I'm a very sad and boring person, uh, there are about 300 and I worked out over 90%, even though it wasn't in the terms of reference, over 90%, including the Michael Vicenzo, who was then Deputy Commissioner of Taxation, all said it's not the role of the tax office to be de facto regulator, and that's what's happening because we're the ones that deal with the tax concession. You need to have an independent, um, you know, re call it regulator, manager, whatever you want to call it, but some independent body needs to look after charities. It's not working the way it is. It's not that the charity sector is broken, it's just that it's not appropriate for the tax office, who think everyone's a tax cheat, to be looking after the charity sector. And the charity sector were very vocal because in Australia, the way the ATO was operating was there were various little charity units all around Australia. They'd come, you know, one charity would be doing X and in Sydney it'd be given charitable status and it was doing X in Brisbane and the Brisbane tax office people would say, no, you're not a charity. So there was all that inconsistency and a feeling that, you know, you're forever being scrutinised and told you're a tax cheat. So, for a variety of reasons, and including the ATO, they didn't want it. They said, it's not our, it's not our expertise. We don't know much about charities. We need to have a body of public bureaucrats who can actually understand this hundreds and hundreds of years of charity law, all the nuances we've been talking about, and make really good decisions. This discussion really takes me back to 1993, I think. <laughs> the period 93, 95, I was part of a debate that went on in the then uh, most well-resourced national umbrella group, cross-sector, so all parts of the sector from religious groups through to um, 
surf lifesavers, you know. Um, do we need some kind of regulator in the sector? And I've got to say, the debate was so interesting that, um, you know, lifelong friends and colleagues fell, up, <laughs> fell apart over this. Um, <laughs> but we did come to a conclusion about 1995 that we did need a monitoring agency, and I use that term advisedly. We didn't want a regulator. And if you, you know, as people have pointed out, and Sue and I have been pointing out on the roadshow, a regulate, you know, the, de the definition of regulation, you know, is you're regulating the flow of something. You're controlling it. Monitoring is keeping an eye on it and acting when something's going wrong. And that's what we wanted. Now, that was about 1995, I think, from memory. But it took until uh, 2002, there was the National Working Group, which came up with the uh, um, quote that I read out yesterday afternoon in the last session. Maybe not many people were awake, I recognise that. But um, it was about the need, after a national consultation, there was a nationally acknowledged need for a agency, a monitoring agency, which would be at arm's length from government so that it would be seen by the sector as independent from government. It would sit halfway between government and the sector. And there'd be, in that sense, mutual ownership, that we would have as much invested as government would. And uh, that was widely supported across the sector. So there was sector wanted a monitoring agency it's not quite what we've got at the moment, but that's what we wanted. Interesting point. If I can just, Andrew, sorry, down there. Uh, if I can just add that I've spent most of my professional career as an auditor, so I'm a black hat thinker, um, auditing corporate organisations, government organisations, and not-for-profit and charitable organisations. Um, and from experience, we've seen the impact in terms of negative impacts possibly greater in the charitable space, especially around trust and confidence. So I can think of a specific example of a, a charity that was uh, involved in some very bad behaviour. It uh, wasn't one that we looked after, uh, but it had kids in its name. We acted for two other charities that had kids in their name, and we immediately saw, those charities immediately saw a significant decline in their public donations because of the soundbite mistake <laughs> from the one that had kids in their name that had been doing bad behaviour. So I think, I think the impact is much greater in our sector of bad behaviour and therefore while it may only be a very small percentage in any population that will be involved in bad behaviour, um, I've always taken the view that perhaps we need a, uh, a stronger monitoring group to ensure that um, that bad behaviour is called out early. Um, so thanks, Sari Baird from Oxfam in Australia. Um, when the debate came to Australia about whether we ought to have a regulator, um, the charity I was involved with then and the charity I'm involved with now um, both advocated strongly for the need for a central regulator um, in our sector. Um, when I think about it from a lawyer's perspective, the complexity of many states laws, um, different forms of incorporation um, and different uh, bodies that one went to if uh, you had a claim that you needed um, to make against your charity for failing you or that wasn't pursuing its purpose. 
Um, it was just an absolute maze, and, and I think, uh, Mel, your uh, slide today on fundraising is just a really one snapshot of the maze that anyone trying to uh, fulfil their governance or their managerial responsibilities face, particularly if they were a national charity. So in the, on the one hand, for me, as a, a lawyer who has great confidence in the rule of law and the, and the role of courts to um, support the community to achieve um, good outcomes if they suffer loss, I did see that the regulator had a, a function in terms of a, a, a place that could provide support to the people working in the sector, the volunteers, the beneficiaries, as well as to the community, but um, not just as a cop, but also as a facilitator of good practice. And I think that there is a, a benefit to that being provided in form, but in, I think, proportionate regulation and a proportionate approach is the thing that we've enjoyed most in Australia. Any other thoughts on that um, very big question that we started with yesterday and we're still with? All right, well, um, I thought myself that one of the more interesting conversations we've had was around the question of accumulation and intergenerational transfers within uh, charities uh, and we've got some questions on accumulation so um, maybe we put them out there. Um, so one question is well um, if we're thinking about re restricting what charities can do when it comes to accumulation what exactly is the mischief here? Uh, what, what is the, 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 the problem that uh, requires legal intervention to solve. So I think that that's a question to put out there. Uh, the other one is more specific. Um, uh, how to deal with um, non-cash reserves when dealing with questions of distribution and accumulation. Uh, and the questioner um, gives the instance of historic buildings uh, and how they are to be valued and understood in those processes. So um, I know Ian will have views on this, but can I throw that open um, to see if others uh, have any uh, observations on those two questions? I think there's a hand up here. Hi, I'm Marina from Place Thinkers. I was going to ask the same question around the non-cash values, especially we've got a large property portfolio and especially the result that would come if the leasing standards came in and we were to then have to put all those on the books, um, would they be included in the sort of accumulated assets and could this inadvertently lead to, you know, some of our charities have very high value property portfolios, but we don't have the revenue that goes alongside those. They're struggling just to maintain them, let alone if you were to have to distribute based on that, you could end up very quickly in a cash negative position as a result of the law. Is that something that's been considered? And add to that historic buildings, which you know a lot of the accountants in the room would argue are liabilities more than they are assets. <laughs> um, maybe I could say something that's, that's relevant to that, uh, looking at what other jurisdictions have done. So I guess in Australia, the minimum distribution requirements that we have don't apply to all charities. Um, it's only uh, some, a subset of charities get donation concessions. So not all charities in Australia get donation concessions, only some do. So it's, it's basically philanthropic foundations in Australia, certain types of public and private ancillary funds that are subject to minimum distribution. 
Commission rules, they might be less likely to be in a situation where they own historic buildings or um, other assets like that that are harder to realise. Um, there are also requirements that apply to those um, philanthropic foundations, those ancillary funds and duties that the um, trustees or, uh, of those funds are under, including that they must ensure the sufficient realisable assets to meet distribution requirements year on year. Um, and so that sort of stuff would be taken into account. You could look at Canada, I suppose, where the minimum distribution rules apply to all charities, not a restricted set of them. And there, the, um, it's three and a half percent of your property, less some liabilities, but then you start taking off some property, property that's directly used in pursuing the charity's purpose. So if you're using the historic building to pursue your purpose, you don't count that when working out the three and a half percent. So other jurisdictions have different dungeons to try and grapple with those sorts of issues. Bernard Lemus here. Um, just coming back to the first question that was raised um, about whether um, businesses should be regulated. Um, I, I didn't ask the question, but I've been thinking the same, um, the same question through. And I wondered whether there's anybody from DRA that can, ask, can maybe reply as to why that question was raised in their modernisation document, because I don't see a problem. Clearly, there are probably the odd rat bag that's floating around. There's always a bad apple somewhere, but the regulators have been dealing with them anyway. So it's just a question of why was the question answered? Why was the question asked? Uh, I suppose, the, I suppose g just a general comment and a re response to that um, was that the, I think if you look at the questions that we're asking in the chapter on business, we're not really um, looking to move the dial much on anything. Um, we're responding to, um, uh, you know, some evidence of concern out there about certain, um, about uh, risks potentially to charitable funds moving into uh, being lost through trading um, and um, and the kind of transparency of reporting standards and so on. Um, but uh, it's not not to preempt the outcome of the uh, consultation and, and, and subsequent work, but it's uh, I don't think it's an area that we're seeing, uh, you know, requires major change, if that answers the question. Further views on that, or views on accumulations? Peter? Uh, if it doesn't require major change, what are the minor changes that you're considering? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, it, it, is, it, it is a big issue, um, and, um, oh, Peter Van Houten left his question in Zoom, sorry. Um, <laughs> but, like, you know, the tax working group has brought it up, and because it was in the tax working group, some of the media have picked it up, and then suddenly, you know, it, it's from one or two comments those reports, it's suddenly become an issue everywhere. And prior to the tax working group issuing its interim reports, it wasn't an issue anywhere <laughs> other than sanitariums and the IRD. <laughs> and, and I'd pose, is sanitarium actually an issue? 
Everyone uses it as an example, um, as if it's something really bad. It's a business that is owned by a charity that sends all of its profits to that charity. It is interesting how it's a little bit like Greenpeace. We put Greenpeace up sometimes as a, as a name that people make all of these assumptions about rather than what the actual facts of the situation are. I mean, I suppose in terms of what, the, you know, the questions that we're asking are, are, are in the document. Um, I mean, I hope it doesn't over-exaggerate you know, a problem that, um, that doesn't exist, but there is, you know, there, are, there, there is some evidence of concern in there, let's put it that way. Income tax exemption and carrying on of businesses. I guess uh, Fiona might disagree with me as to the rationale for providing a tax exemption to charities in the first place, but I think um, often it's seen as a, a subsidy for charities to achieve more of what they, uh, the public benefit that they're producing. Um, and there's got to be a reason for that. I mean, they exist so they'd be producing that anyway. Why do we have to give them a tax concession to help them produce more? You know, what's the, the failing? And a couple of the presenters have touched on this. Generally, the view is charities can't raise capital as easily as um, for profits. And so the reason that we provide them with the tax, income tax concession, is that we need to make up for that difficulty in raising capital. So in fact, we want to give them an advantage. You know, we, we, we want them to keep some of the money in the charity running the business because that puts them on a level playing field for profits. Um, you know, you see, if they were spending all the money straight away, there'd be no, there'd be nothing on which the tax concession could operate because their expenses would equal their income. So there'd be there'd be nothing to tax. Um, so the whole rationale of the income tax exemption generally is sort of seen as making up for that difficulty in raising capital. So in, a, in some ways, we ought not to be worried about businesses keeping money in the business and not distributing it um, too quickly or, or um, spending it on sort of for carrying out charity purposes. Hi, Stuart here from Inland Revenue. Um, uh, what can I say? <laughs> so just, uh, firstly, I, I want to agree with Fiona. I mean, I think the same thinking as in New Zealand as with, with Australia and the ATO. We do support regulation. It's not Inland Revenue's job to regulate charities, so we do support an independent regulator or monitor of the sector. Um, as far as accumulation goes, um, you, you will have noticed the tax working group did look at accumulation. Um, it's worthwhile, so it did focus on private foundations. So it was quite concerned about accumulation for closely held charities where the settler or donor has control over the charity. Um, and I think it has quite a few examples where some of those foundations, they don't conduct charitable purposes themselves, they're just there to, to raise funds for other charities and they just simply don't distribute. Um, or don't distribute very much at all. And so that was really what got the attention of the tax working group in terms of accumulation. Um, in terms, and so they already have money, so that they can, you can force them to distribute because they're very liquid in terms of their, their investment. Um, in terms of businesses, um, I mean, that's a challenging one. I think the, the tax working group got a lot of submissions to say that businesses in the charitable sector should be paying tax. 
Um, and so they had to think about that as part of their report. And I think where they ended up going was um, thinking, was a bit really, I guess, what, what you said um, just before. They thought, well, the charities can raise money however they want. They can raise it um, uh, through businesses. Um, but the, the real mischief from a tax perspective is those charities that raise this money, but they don't ever distribute or use the money for charitable purposes. So they kept going back to, to that as, as the main issue. Um, they did uh, really conclude that they need to do more work. Need, a lot more thought needs to be given to this area. And so I guess by DIA asking the questions in the consultation document means there's going to be a lot of feedback on that. that was, it's going to be useful for all of us to better understand some of the pressures with, um, with accumulation. So, so yes, Inland Revenue will be reading um, all the submissions uh, that you make on this area because we, we are interested in it. percentage is very small and sometimes we make a change in a, an act or an accounting standard or something else uh, that has much more far-reaching and unintended consequences uh, than we anticipate just to fix perhaps a big issue but an issue in a very small part of the population. So I um, I think we should think about that before we say, yes, this is a good idea and we've got to fix these foundations. Um, I'm a, a trustee of a charity in England and Wales at the moment, which I'm not saying they have all the answers, but one of the things we have to think about is our reserves policy. So when we file our accounts, we have to have our reserves policy stated. And that's a really interesting conversation to have with your other trustees. Um, why are we keeping these reserves? How much do we need in the way of reserves? Uh, what, you know, what are they for? What are we going to do with the reserves that we aren't going to keep? In other words, how are we going to distribute excess reserves? Um, and I think you know, listening to Zealandia, listening to um, Maori organisations and so on, you know, that may be, uh, I'm putting it forward as maybe a, a more effective way to start thinking about this um, distribution or accumulation, the opposite, um, in, in the future. So with my auditor's hat on again, uh, you know, a favourite saying is sunlight is the best disinfectant. <coughs> and uh, it's interesting that it's not required practice in New Zealand to disclose around reserves, but it's fair to say it's becoming best practice for organisations that have reasonable reserves to put some context in their accounts explaining why they have them and what they're intending to use them for and often over what time frame, which helps a reader understand. Okay. Um, review of the Charities Act. How will the feedback presented at the DIA community presentations be incorporated into the, incorporated into the formal review process without a formal written submission? So obviously there's been a lot of feedback uh, provided at this great roadshow that's been going around the country. Um, and I know for a fact that a number of the people that I've sat next to will not be making submissions, um, but they have made comments during the meeting. Um, we've been uh, capturing all the feedback that we've heard at the uh, consultation meetings. So we've had 
two or three or four staff at all the meetings um, recording the conversations. Generally, there's, for those of you who haven't attended one, um, there's a DIA presentation, Sue and Dave present, and then we have table discussions and feedback. Exactly like this, really. Um, so that's all going into the... Um, that's all, all, all feedback that will be considered. Well, what we have been trying to reinforce, and this message goes to everyone in this room too, that uh, if you've got specific uh, feedback, um, specific comments, uh, a written submission is, gonna, is, is, is really what we'd like, and that can just be an email. doesn't have to be a, an enormous uh, tome, um, just however you like. Um, but we are, we are listening at those meetings, and it is all being recorded. Um, okay, well, we, we move to another question. So uh, there's been quite a lot of discussion uh, on governance, uh, and uh, at some points in that discussion, some of the speakers have, have touched on the question of uh, how to educate uh, governors of charities uh, on best practice and their legal duties and so forth. Um, and so uh, one of our questioners has um, invited us to resume that conversation about education. What are the most effective, best ways of educating charity governors about their responsibilities and their functions? Um, uh, does anyone want to sort of take that up? Yes? For many years I've seen that there's some really good coordinating bodies uh, around the country, in different parts of the country, like Community Waikato, uh, there's Wheelhouse in New Plymouth, there's um, the Community Services Council in Palmerston North, and these organisations do provide training in their environment. What I've also seen is that when a government agency decides to uh, provide free, and a lot of those organisations, by the way, in those regional centres do have to charge a little bit. They keep it as low as they can, just to cover their costs, venue hire and all the rest of it, maybe a bit of food and so on. Um, and then what happens when a government agency comes in and provides the training, and in our questionnaire, Susan Mike's questionnaire, a number of people suggested that uh, charity services should provide training. What I've seen when government agencies provide training in the community that it, is that it puts very good community training agencies out of business. So please, Sure, find the funding, but get it done by the people who are already established, charitable training providers in the communities. Um, the question I have that sort of follows on from that is, is there any way, I mean, I'm in management and my board could do with some more training, but they don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> they believe they've had all the training they need anecdotally. We've suggested they co-opt someone, perhaps with a few skills. No, we don't need that. Is there anything? We're a very, very large charity. We have 9,000 9, volunteers, 11,000 children, 450 centres. Is there no regulation that can come in that says for something of a certain size, there is a minimum standard? Because, yeah, we're a committee. Um, yeah. So I think Rosemary also had her hand up. Just from my own experience, um, when I was on the board of a, of a private um, independent Catholic high school, um, 
we had a lot of training anyway, but the government introduced a requirement that anybody who was a, no, a non-executive, like a volunteer director, had to do six hours a year of continuing professional development. Now, how they enforced that was that they said, well, if you independent school, if an independent school doesn't do it, you don't get any grant money. So that was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what sort of structure is it? Is it incorporated association or? Yeah, so I can only talk from the Australian experience, which I don't know your legislation here, but I know when I was on the board of the local kindergarten, um, uh, very busy with kids and things, um, I realised that we were liable as committee members. So um, the lawyer in me thought, well, I better actually look up the Act, um, <laughs> as you do when you're on a kinder board. And I went, actually, we, we are actually liable. And we had a situation, I mean, we're all volunteers apart from the kinder teacher. Um, we had a situation where some of the fees weren't being paid or were going missing and the treasurer was a bit, and I just thought, you know, this is, I mean, no one was going to sue us, of course, but, you know, that would be another, I mean, if, you, if you're a company, if you're a charitable company and you're subject to the Companies Act, then your duty of care and diligence will require you to keep up with things. So that's, that's another thing. But that might be a kind of, uh, probably a stick, not, not, not a carrot. Um, incentive, yes, incentive. Um, yeah, but um, in answer to the first question about how to do it, I can tell you perhaps how not to do it. And that is, um, which isn't the exact question, but um, in Australia again, and this is the, corporate sector, I know what ASIC does, so that's our um, company's regulator, is they send out a sheet. When you become a director, apparently they send out a sheet of all your duties. But talking to people, I'm not quite sure how many people receive it or whether they actually read it. So that, I think, is probably not a good way of doing it. Um, so, some ideas off the top of my head. Number one is training only works a little wee bit, you know, I think, what is it, 10-20% of learning. So it's got to be support alongside. So that comes in lots and lots of different ways and it's volunteers taking their skills from board to board. It's funders recognising the value of organisations. Dave mentioned some of them, the Wheelhouse Community Waikato, having really solid predictable, reliable funding so they can build their profile and presence so they become the local go-to so you can get hold of a human that you can trust. Um, for the regulator to be really clear about what it is that, that the messages are that they need to say and a minimum number of those in the clearest way, you know, like a scrolling tagline across your website or every time there's an email there's a message or just putting things in front of people again and again, but, but simplifying what it is that you've got to say um, and recognising that there's a role that the regulator can play in convincing other funders, convincing government policy, convincing lottery funding, all of that stuff to help the good work that's already going on in the sector to be supported so it can be more sustainable and roll out further.
Thanks. Um, my suggestion is for um, supporting your board to understand where they could benefit from some strengthening. Um, perhaps do, do you have a board survey every year? So um, at Oxfam, for example, um, we would do a, a, a board review uh, and then it would be independent review of the board every three years. Um, that's not any good practice, but also the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade grant funding requires us to demonstrate good governance and they audit the extent of interest and whether or not there are appropriate systems and, and controls. So um, what we've found, though, is that that is a good tool uh, where there is one or two people who start to report, actually, I didn't, you know, I came on, I felt a bit at sea in this context. Um, the other thing that I've seen done in boards where I've been on a board and we've um, heard that other charities might need some help, um, we've organised a, a collective day and it's amazing what peer pressure does when there's a charity board in the room with another charity who's just, you know, smashing it as far as governance principles are concerned and, and they suddenly realise we've got a bit of work to do to improve. Um, and just the final and third thing I'd suggest is that the philanthropic foundations do some great work in Australia around capacity building and small grants for organisations that have, you know, maybe they've had an embarrassment of riches and suddenly they've got more programs and people in place that they never had before and they have to scale up. And so I think, you know, there's an opportunity to tap into uh, foundations that, you know, want to secure the grants that they make by knowing the managed well. Um, Perhaps I'll just add a couple of other, the AICD not-for-profit principles, Justice Connect and the ACNC in Australia all have fantastic resources that are free and that, that's very important that they're free. Miles had his hand up too. Thank you, just a, a miscellany of um, issues if I may. Uh, firstly about um, uh, governance uh, research. It seems to be the field seems to have been dominated by two sorts of governance research. That is American economists who love to crunch numbers and statistics, who use proxies in boards and then look at the listed share price and make some outrageous conclusions. Um, yeah, doesn't apply to our sector at all. The second is those armchair um, theorists who sit in their armchair and think about um, their days of board governance and give us the pe their pearls of wisdom. Neither of those are very reliable. There is a, an emerging uh, uh, empirical research which, uh, because of privacy of boards, nobody knows what happened because nobody observes. The black box is being opened and people are observing what actually happens in board meetings. And, uh, and that's confronting, but it is happening in non-profit um, boards. Uh, I had a research student, a doctoral research student, who followed um, uh, half a dozen similar sized and interest organisations, and he went to every meeting and sat in the corner for 18 months, and also sat in on the chair CEO review. Now, even there, there's a bit of iffy about having somebody in the room, but they got over that. The observations that he made about what happens in the board meeting, he also interviewed the, the each directors individually, 
about what they thought happened in the meeting and what he observed happening in the meeting were two different things, <laughs> or three different things in some cases. <laughs> um, so there is some exciting uh, observational evidence about what is actually happening in board meetings. Um, and I think you should have a look at uh, those to inform um, your governance um, training. Just some key things that um, might interest you that I know have come from the empirical um, literature is when you test uh, how non-profit board members or how people in the sector take in information, basically, what is their learning style? Are they people, when their car won't start, who open the hood and tinker and kick it and cuss until they get it going? Or are they the sort of people who get the manual out of the glove box and read it from page one to 50, work out where they've got it and then fix it? I mean, what is, what is their learning styles? How do they take in information? Most adults do it in a number of ways and quite flexibly, but the overall dominant pathway for non-profit volunteers and people in the social services is oral and it's through storytelling. And I think a number of nods, people sort of, yeah, that makes sense. We're not book people. Um, sometimes we're action people, but we're really about telling stories. And that's important in your education. A story will stick. And it's through telling stories that people will take, particularly volunteers, will take in information um, uh, far more. Another bit of empirical information, what would boards like their board governance training to be in? Overwhelmingly, they'd love a mentor who would come to each meeting and talk to them. Like real human, again, talking, relationships, interaction, stories. Um, and if you can't do that, what's the next best, best thing for that? Just a warning, there are materials that come out of the US that often consultants get, which are, are um, uh, survey tests, scales. US is completely different to Australia and New Zealand. Don't touch them with a barge pole. <laughs> uh, we've got to develop our own um, uh, perception and, and board governance styles. And the final thing before I wrap up is that the Americans say there are some things too important to leave to government. And I think governance training is one of those things. And the Brits learnt that when they left it to the Charity Commission. Uh, they now own it. Um, it's most important that your peak body and your community bodies and your community building bodies own the space of delivering governance research. It is too critical and too important to leave to government uh, who can uh, subvert the process to their own ends. It must be, in my view, uh, owned by the community and by the sector. Of course, let government fund it without too many strings, but it's important that it remains in the sector and that we don't rely on the government and we don't rely on the regulator to deliver our governance training. And if I can... If I can add something to that, Miles, as well, I think we also need to be very cognizant of uh, who we're actually dealing with. Uh, and to give a, a live example, I think there's an age demographic issue. If I look around this room, we are largely of a reasonably homogenous age demographic. Um, I blew a tractor tire recently. I was in a messy situation. I didn't know what to do. My young son, who happened to be with me, Googled it. And he instantly found a YouTube 
on exactly my issue <laughs> from some chap in America on how to fix the dramatic problem we had. Um, so I think we've got to also be open in terms of the context and what's changing and what are the resources that are out there um, and actually point people to the right resources too or the, or the most available resources. Great. Well, I think we're we've oh, um, yeah, covered the time. Can I have a 20-second one? Just, I think we need to be careful about the terminology, and governance to me sounds scary, and I think for most people, if they're like, oh, let's do a governance session, they're going to be like, I don't want to go to that. But if you talk about <laughs> leadership, empowering, enabling, you know, like, I think we need to be careful about the words that we're using, and, um, and it is, it's a tool to empower people to achieve their vision and their mission, and that's the way that we should be talking about it. One of our best leaders in this country had a wonderful phrase for polarizing people, which was, how do we make the boat go faster? <laughs> Engaging a discussion around that. Great. Thank you, Matthew. Well, thank you. The conference closed with our keynote speaker, Una Breen, with a call to action on the best practice international approaches. Excellent. <laughs> Matthew's going to go and sit down. That's good. <laughs> good start. Yes. Okay, to um, close our session, and really with a way to try and wrap things up, um, it's, it's an absolute pleasure to introduce Una, well not to introduce Una, but to invite Una back to the stage, because she needs no introduction. Um, and especially as the person who gave us the magpie theme from last year's conference of looking around the world, being objective, picking the best to make what's the right thing to go forward. Um, so. Una, a, a call to action, international best practice approaches. No pressure. <laughs> Does the screen in front of me come on too? The screen in front of me is off, so I can't see my slides. Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> no, we don't have anything here, do we? We're in blank here. Oh, oh, there there Perfect. Thank you very much, Craig. Um, I am that thing standing between you and the weekend. Um, <laughs> We call this the graveyard shift in Ireland, so, so thank you for, for staying on. I should also add this challenging title. I did not set this myself. <laughs> I was gifted this when I was invited back this year. So regulatory waves, we're all influenced by each other. We have a wonderful saying in Irish, er a achela a warren nadimi, and that means we live in each other's shadow, or we are the shelter for each other, which I always think is a lovely civil society metaphor that we are interdependent. But it's also a nice way to think about how countries influence each other when it comes to charity regulation. So I thought I'd just set the context for where I want to go with you uh, today, because we all came to this project of charity law reform in the new millennium, everybody, it was like flavor of the month, everybody was introducing new charities legislation 
and new regulators when we entered the millennium. So you were first up there in 2005 with the then New Zealand Charity Commission. Scotland followed you in 2006 with Oscar. Northern Ireland came in with the Charity Commission in 2008. Australia joined the party in 2012. And Ireland half got there in 2009, introducing the regulation, but we have the baby regulator because they didn't come till 2014, so we just have a five-year-old in terms of starting point. So those regulatory siblings have grown up together over the past decade. And it's very interesting then when we look to see what is the context for review in each of those countries. Three of them have a statutory mandate. The statute tells you you must review your Charities Act within a certain length of time. And three of you say, good practice, maybe nothing in the statute, but we're waiting to see would there be something that might happen. New Zealand, Scotland, and Northern Ireland, which has done nothing, which is why I didn't put them up on the slide uh, here. They haven't yet come down at uh, this line. So where does that bring us? Let's start with those ones that have a statutory mandate, that have got to review uh, within a certain length of time. England and Wales, which obviously has had a regulator forever, reviewed, updated their charity legislation in 2006. And this was a really big breaker for them. The first time any statute in the UK had included a review clause. So the Charities Act in 2006 said, within a five-year period from the passage of the Act, you've got to review the Act. And, and they obeyed that. They appointed Lord Hodgson in November 2011, and he delivered his report in 2012. Australia also requires you to um, statutorily uh, review your uh, operation of your Charities Act. Again, that five-year period rings loud. Within five years from the operation of the Acts, uh, you must carry out the review. And right on time, the McClure Commission was appointed in 2017, and they reported last August. Ireland, we're getting there too. Our Charities Act says within five years of the establishment day, the day you create the regulator, you must review the workings of your act. We reached that day of reckoning in October 2019, so we're watching what you're doing here to see how that might inform our process in Ireland. What about those of you who don't have a statutory mandate for review? Scotland, New Zealand, where do you fit? Well, you started off really well. You had your charity regulator in 2010, and then you had this wonderful cabinet decision, pardon me, in 20, 2005, and you had your wonderful uh, cabinet decision in 2010 to hold this first principles review, the sort of no holds barred version of review of the Charities Act. Now we know that with the disestablishment of your commission and your uh, revision of your Charities Act and the introduction of the New Zealand Charity Services, that was all rescinded, put on hold. It was to be allowed to bed down was the term used at the time when the review was canceled. Um, six years on, so pretty much that five year period, you have embarked upon your review of the Charities Act and you're currently in your public consultation phase. Scotland, remember they created Oscar in 2006. They took a 
10-year period before they thought they were up and running long enough to start to reflect on their practices. They carried out something called the Targeted Regulation Review. Um, they also, uh, last year, carried out a modernization proposal paper. And I'll come back to that in a moment and, and delve into it a little bit further. They are now in their um, review period. They announced their review in January, and their review consultation period closed the 1st of April. So they're just a tiny step ahead of you in terms of that timeline. But you're basically on parallel trains, um, New Zealand and Scotland. Northern Ireland, nothing. It probably doesn't help that there's no assembly in Northern Ireland, anyone who's been following politics, so nothing much other than Brexit uh, is happening there at the moment. So the big question, what form does review normally take? What are we expecting out of this process? Well, the one thing you'll find with all of these countries is that we have a five-step phase, and we can recognize those steps when we stop and we look. There's normally terms of reference telling you what the subject matter of the review will be. And it'll either be because statute tells you what to ask or government decides what you're going to be consulted upon. Then we have that public consultation period, which you're currently in, how long it, how long it lasts, who gets consulted, where, Again, these are all burgeoning questions as to how successful your consultation period is. It ends with a report being produced uh, by those who have been commissioned to do so, and then we all sit on tender hooks. Sometimes for a long time, word of warning, waiting for the government response. How comprehensive will it be? How timely will it be? And most importantly, what will happen next? What's the law reform that comes from all of that concerted effort? And we're always looking for that policy window. Um, yesterday, Ian talked about uh, Kingdon's policy window. We're waiting for that Kingdonian moment when the window flies open and the problem and the solution fly through together. That's how policy happens. But as we know, lots of other Carpetbaggers hang around that window and this baggage sticks on and gets pushed through too. So we have to be careful when those policy windows open. So where does that leave us in terms of that train of progression? Well, I've put New Zealand sort of at the, the, the back end here because you're still doing the talking. You're still talking and in public consultation. Scotland has just come to the end of that. Australia's got their report, that much we know. England and Wales is the only one who's got all the way to the end of the line, if in so far as end of the line we mean there's been a government response and there's been some law reform. Arguably their journey is not over yet. So, what exactly is up for review when we enter into these processes? I've called this the what's, the how's, and the common themes. I want to start um, with England, because they're the first ones who went down this line. And I've told you that their act prescribed that there be um, a review carried out. And in fact, they're the only ones that set out what you must ask 
questions on. So they said, we want you to consult about accepted charities, um, those that are under different rules in England and Wales. We want you to look at the effect of the Act on public confidence. Has it actually improved public confidence in charities? How has the Act affected the level of charitable donations or the willingness of people to volunteer? They also said you must ask about the status of the regulator. Um, is it independent? Is it a government department regulator? And then my favorite bit, any other business. We always want to get that any other business bit in because that allows us the freedom to express our views. And this was re-emphasized by Lord Hodgson when he put out that call for public consultation. For the avoidance of doubt, he said, the review may also consider any other matters in relation to charity law as it sees fit, so basically whatever he thought would be good, and may also consider other matters subject to the agreement of the Cabinet Office. So it's always nice to have that freedom. How did they do? Well, over the period of the review in England, they got 168 submissions. Um, <coughs> they had 41 stakeholder meetings up and down the country. And the Charity Commission made a submission to the report. Uh, and I think that's important. Regulators, the people who live and breathe it, know the goods, the bads, the ins and the outs. Why would you self-censor and not contribute your views? And I think that goes right down to individual officials. You're a taxpayer. You're entitled to express your view on how you could make a charities act better. So I'm thinking of all the people in this room who know where the skeletons are buried, who know where the problems are, who know how to make things better. And I'm really hoping that you will all make submissions. The report in, English, in England was published in July 2012. It was a big report. There were over 100 recommendations made in total, and they covered four main themes. We'll come back to some of them later on. The types of things you would expect, um, regulatory balance, prioritization of regulatory choices, education of the public and trustees uh, through information and transparency, and the need to be responsible. Whose job is it? Where do the responsibilities lie? We waited a while for the government response in England and Wales. There was an interim cabinet response in 2012, so that's a good five, six months after the report is published. The formal, full, comprehensive government response didn't come until the following year, so 14 months after the report was issued. There was a promised further implementation report. And I have to say, this sent me on the most wildest goose chase. I have spoken to more of my English colleagues as I tried to track down this elusive, supposed to be 2014 implementation report. Uh, the news is it was never published. And my colleagues spent as much time as I did trying to trace down where had this come out? Who had been responsible for it? And the answer is no one. What about Australia? Well, Australia also has a statutory requirement to carry out a review, but unlike the English provision, it doesn't tell you what you must consult on. So the government had a carte blanche here when it decided to set the terms of review, and it focused on four main areas. It looked at the relevance of the acts uh, to, to 
current times, the effectiveness of the regulatory framework, whether the ACNC's powers were sufficient or appropriate, and whether any amendments were needed to deal with future or emerging problems or in order to achieve the objectives that were already set um, in the Act. Now again, quite a high submission rate here in Australia. 172 submissions were received. And apart from those public submissions made, 215 additional stakeholders were consulted. So you had sort of parallel or concentric circles going on. Again, the regulator here contributed their own submission to the process. And interestingly, in Australia, it was published online and it was published early. So it was out there what the regulator thought about um, the whole process. This report was published last August, so August 2018. A nice, ni neat and tidy 30 recommendations are to be found in the McClure Commission report, and they cover the four headings that I've just set out under the terms um, of reference. We're still waiting on a formal government response in Australia. It, it's likely to be delayed even longer because if you're watching the news yesterday, you'll have seen an election has been called. So it'll probably be the next government that will issue uh, the formal response on, on this particular review. There has been one sort of indication, and that came from a Senate Finance Committee report on fundraising, which was published just two months ago in 2019. And the government was recommended there urgently uh, to provide a public response to the recommendations made in the review panel's report. So um, Senate thinks it's important that there should be some response, but we are still awaiting the formal government response. In comparison to England, it's still early days, right? We're not even up to that 12-month anniversary yet, and we know it took 14 months for the English uh, to, to respond. There have been some murmurs or some um, rumours that the ACNC might be open to implementing some of the changes recommended in the review that wouldn't require legislative change, so that's something uh, that's worth keeping an eye on. So, What's actually covered? What are the main themes? What are we seeing? Are there any similarities when countries sit down to review their charity legislation? I've color-coded this for simplicity because there are a lot of words up here. If you see the red in each of the, the categories, these are where we're asking, are the powers of the regulator the right powers? And are the appeal processes that are in place working effectively or do they need to be improved? So you can see for each of our regulators, the power of the regulator, either looking for more powers or looking to adjust those powers is a really common theme with every single country. Um, improvement of complaints and appeals process is raised over here um, in England and Wales. It's also very much raised in your current consultation process. It's its own individual head. So again, that's quite common. The green issues, where you see green on the slide, they all relate to registration or deregistration issues. So how well is your register working? Does it have the right information that makes it a useful guide? Um, should you be able to automatically disqualify trustees, for example, the deregistration issue? 
in some countries we see there have been fundraising questions. So England and Wales dealt with fundraising. Australia, as we heard earlier today, and as I mentioned, there was a Senate report on fundraising, and that came up in the Australian report. And in your New Zealand consultation at the moment, there are some questions around the regulation of third party fundraising. So again, a similarity there. A couple of countries have talked about how to reduce red tape. Might there be ways of improving the procedures to cut down the work for the charities and for the regulators? Um, technical issues, broader questions come up in black. And my final purple category are the ones that just would not go together. These are the individual issues that each country has raised themselves. So in England and Wales, it was all about social investment. Should we encourage charities or create a, a mechanism for, for charities to engage in social investment? Um, with you here in New Zealand, it's the governance issue and the advocacy issue that, that are falling into my, my purple box. In Scotland, it's whether you should retain or have a connection with Scotland in order to be registered. At the moment, I could have an Irish charity, I could appear over in Scotland, and I could be registered by Oscar. And they're, they're reviewing whether that should be possible or not, whether I, my Irish charity should have that right to become a registered Scottish charity without having a deeper connection um, with Scotland. Um, Australia asked the big broad question that none of us have been able to answer yet. Should regulation cover non-profits as well as registered charities? Nobody else wanted to take that one on, so we'll leave that one with Australia. So what happens post-report? What do we expect after the government puts the report out there? And I thought I would take you very briefly through the England and Wales story, because they're the only one who's got that next piece that we can share. So up here in the far corner, we have the interim government response. This came out in 2012, so about five months after the report is issued. The Minister for Civil Society in England and Wales issued a letter. And the letter basically said, Cabinet by far and large, broadly agrees with the majority of the recommendations of the report. So sort of very high level. There are some big issues that we'll have to give further consideration to, and mentioned a couple like social investment type thing, but far and large, it's looking good. Some we don't like at all, trustee remuneration, but we'll come back to you on those. So watch this space. You had to watch that space for quite a long time. It took until September. September 2013 for that fuller formal government response to come out. And when it did, it was actually a response to two reports, not just the Hodgson report, but also another um, public accounts select committee report of post-legislative scrutiny, quite a mouthful, post-legislative scrutiny on the 2006 Act. Those two reports, Hodgson, which we're concerned with, and this other post-legislative scrutiny report, all made recommendations on how to improve the Charities Act. Unfortunately, they didn't always agree with each other. So you had conflicting views on what would be the right thing to do. So you have two responses from government, sometimes agreeing with one report, sometimes agreeing with the other report. 
as I've said, we missed the implementation report that we were promised. They said, we'll come back to you. Here's our general look. There's certain, certain things we need to consider further, but we'll come back to you in a year and update you. They never did. That report does not exist. What they did do, and this is where it gets interesting for you, is that they farmed out issues to the Law Reform Commission, the Law Commission in England and Wales. And the Law Commission sat down in 2014 and it consulted and issued a report on social investment, one of those things that they were very interested in in England and Wales. The following year, they undertook a report into what they called technical issues in charity law. Those are the bits the lawyers get really excited about on a good day. Um, they tend to be the quite difficult issues to solve. Um, things like um, oh, permanent endowment issues. So back to the whole um, accumulation uh, issue that Ian raised earlier. Trustee remuneration issues charity tribunal appeals, um, attempts to better align your charity legal forms so that you can work and uh, the law that applies works more equally uh, for both of you. So they had a consultation about those tricky issues in 2015. 2016 is the first time that we see an actual outcome from all of that consultation. Because what happens in 2016, four years after the report, the review is published, is that you get a new act in England, the Charities Protection and Social Investment Act of 2016. What it does is it gives the Charity Commission some new powers so they can issue warnings to charities, something they couldn't do before. And um, they have powers now to remove trustees in certain circumstances or to disqualify people uh, from being trustees. And then a whole section around um, fundraising, reserve powers in terms of regulating fundraising. And very excitingly, uh, something Stephen will be uh, excited by, the power to make social investments if you are a charity. So the facilitation of social investments by um, registered charities. 2016 is also the time that we see another change happening. We see the establishment of a fundraising regulator in England and Wales. Now you remember from my chart back before I said fundraising was one of those things they consulted about? It's not because of the review, however, that we end up with this fundraising regulator being established. It's an ancillary reason, but it's not the main reason. Think back to our Kingdonian window of what opens the policy window. You need a catalyst, you need a scandal, or in England's case, you need a couple of scandals around fundraising regulation. And we had that with the Olive Cook story. We had lots of um, very, very uh, high profile examples of bad practice when it comes to charities and fundraising practice. So much so that they had a cross party review of fundraising in 2015. And that really was the reason the policy window opened to get the regulator set up. So yes, the review helps, but it wasn't the push that achieved that. Our Law Commission is still hanging around in 2017. That consultation they held in 2015 about all the tricky issues, 
They've now got a report. They've now got a draft bill, so it's all ready to go. And they're sitting there waiting to hear back from government. There has been no formal response to that latest and very important uh, report by the Law Commission in England and Wales. Um, the reason for that begins with B. Uh, I don't need to go any further. Everybody knows that nothing is happening because of Brexit. Uh, and the last thing we have in England happening so far is the Charities Annual Return Regulations of 2017 issued by uh, the Charity uh, Commission uh, itself. So we are hanging on 2017, we're in 2019 now, we are seven years on from that actual report being published and we can't say we've reached the end of the review train yet in England and Wales. Is there another approach to review? Given that you're not the statutory version, I thought I would share with you what they've done in Scotland, which is the non-statutory approach to uh, review. Oscar decided 10 years into their life cycle that they would review how they manage risk and what questions they asked of charities that are registered with them. This was called their targeted regulation project. And what they discovered was they said, well, there are 10 things as a regulator that we're really concerned about. There are 10 priorities. And it's gonna change how we ask you questions in your annual return. We'll ask you less questions because these are the things we're really excited about. They have kept an ongoing review process of that targeted regulation and they've reduced the 10 things that they're really concerned about down to six things that they're really concerned about. So here's the list and here's my challenge as I unfurl the list to you. If you're a regulator, would these be on your list? These are in the order of priority. And if you're a charity, would you be happy to have this as the list that the regulator who regulates you abides by? So here we go. Deliberate mismanagement of charities. That's the number one offense that we want the regulator going after. Criminal activity, number two on the list. Charity trustees lack of knowledge. The bits that you don't know that cause the wheels to fall off the wagon. That's where the regulator should become involved to make sure that you know enough to keep the wheels on the wagon. Attempts to gain charitable status for private benefit. Big no-no. Lack of clarity of the charity brand. Charities that don't provide public benefit. Those are the six areas that Oscar says it's most concerned about when it comes to regulation of charities. Now in 2018, Oscar, not silently, but without a lot of fanfare, produced a modernization paper. Didn't get a lot of discussion when it came out. It was interesting, had a lot of ideas, and we didn't realize until the Scottish government published its consultation paper in January that we practically had it six months earlier had we realized because there's a really big correlation between the things we see in the modernization paper put forward by Oscar and what the Scottish government has now decided to consult upon. So there's a great parallel between the two of them. 
Where does the public get involved? Well, Oscar has taken on board public trust survey information. What's the level, empirical evidence of where people in Scotland sit on the issue of public trust? And they've said that there's empirical evidence of public support for transparency, accountability, and the value of being regulated by a charity regulator. So where are they in the process? Well, their consultation closed on April the 1st. They've received over 300 submissions. 260 of them are published online because you have the right when you make a, a submission in Scotland to say you don't want it made public. So you get to choose as the person putting in your submission whether you're happy to share it with the world or not. It may mean that there are people in the room who will be very happy to make their views public. They may prefer to tell the regulator and not tell anybody else. It's a good way of getting 40 extra people who might not otherwise have given their views if they knew they would absolutely be published. Interestingly, the Charity Commission for England and Wales made a submission to the Scottish one. So you can see what another regulator thinks about the changes, and they're broadly positive. So I don't know if the ACNC colleagues in the room, you have an extra month if you want to share your views uh, with your New Zealand colleagues, um, lessons learned or things not to do or what you think, you have a great opportunity. Where does that leave all of you? Well, you got a great present from your minister yesterday. You got an extension of an entire month to make your views heard. And we know that you've held 21 public meetings already and there's still some left this coming week. So you have an opportunity to turn up or if you're a professional and you're going back to any of those regions, you should be sending out the emails to all your clients who are affected by this and who might prefer to have the story told to them than to read the discussion document. Really wonderful opportunity to share that with those that you work with over the coming week. I come back to where I started when I first met you yesterday, because I think this is really, really important. Effective regulation assures the public that there is a mechanism in place by which government can compel compliance with a set of standards that we as a society agree should be observed by the entities that are subject to the regulation. That's really where we want to be. We want it to be the type of regulation that we as a society say works for us. And you have that moment of opportunity at the moment to participate in this process. Because if you don't put your voice in, it won't be heard. And you won't be part of the whole process of policy making, which is so fundamental to any democracy. And it's something we shouldn't take for granted or be complacent about, as we've seen in lots of jurisdictions recently. So what's next? Where do you go? There are a lot of jigsaw pieces here, and I just want to remind you of those. You already have a tax working group report 2019 that's been published, and we heard yesterday that there won't be a formal response to that report until after the charity piece is done. So there is one jigsaw piece that's got a slot in somewhere. 
you've got a trust bill. Um, we were told yesterday about how that's going to affect charitable trusts. It's at its second stage at the moment in your parliamentary proceedings. So that's going to fit into the story of whatever the future of New Zealand charity regulation will look like. You've got an incorporated societies bill that is pending before Parliament. Again, not as far advanced as the trust bill, but it's on its way, I understand. And that too will shape the future of charity regulation here. And then of course, you've got the big jigsaw piece, the Charities Act review of 2019. Ooh, that should have been a little bit bigger, bear with me. What have you said or what has the government said in terms of timelines? Now you're all experts because you know what's happened in other countries when it comes to timelines. So let's see, are you being realistic here in terms of timelines? Public submissions will be reviewed from May until late 2019. Well, we know public consultation will go on until the end of May now, so you won't be reviewing the consultation submissions in May. It'll have to start June or later. You're going to develop policy proposals for cabinet approval between May and late 2019. Well, again, it won't be May because you'll only be reading the submissions the start of June. So that's quite a tight timetable unless you've already got it in the drawer. Unless you said, here's the version we prepared earlier. We didn't have to wait for the submissions to come in. Voila, here we go. Develop draft legislation in late 2019 and pass through the House a bill to amend the Act in late 2019. That would be amazing. <laughs> Is it realistic? Well, who am I to say? I watch this space um, with great interest, but I'm informed by those who've gone before you that it takes longer than you think, particularly if you want to be respectful of the submissions that you receive and take them all on board and think how to deal with them, how to reflect them, and how to make your legislation better. There is probably a happy medium between the two months that you might allow yourself here and the 14 months to get a response from government in England and Wales, let alone legislation. They're still on the legislation track seven years later. So bear that in mind as we approach this whole process. But that's where I want to leave it and I hope that was helpful. chance for maybe one quick question for Una, if anyone has a burning question based on that. Or you all get off home early for good behaviour. Yeah. Well, can I just get you to thank Una again for that really useful <laughs> review. Wow, what a day. Um, you know, that was great, uh, getting that sort of picture of what's happened elsewhere and putting in context the challenge that we now have ahead of us in New Zealand and the very short time frame between here and Christmas um, from that last slide. So uh, I've also reminded to remind everyone of Una's call for democracy. We live in a democracy. Uh, we need to respect that and partake in that uh, if we want to keep it a strong democracy. So um, we do have the opportunity uh, to submit. Um, today, we've um, started with Justice Joe Williams. Um, 
I thought his history of the Waiata was, was fantastic. I was a little bit concerned, actually, as MC, in terms of um, was he going to give us a completely different presentation? <laughs> um, but it was quite beautiful, I thought, in terms of how his explanation of the Waiata took us a lovely circle round into cultural understanding and different ways of looking at things and how that's maybe an appropriate frame to look at um, where we are in New Zealand now. Uh, he gave us a, a cultural history lesson in terms of the history of charity, the historical and cultural context, which was quite appropriate for when we got things like the Statute of Elizabeth, um, but perhaps not so appropriate now. Uh, he asked us an interesting question in terms of what's needed to maintain the machinery of a functioning civil society. And a challenge. We have an opportunity to look at Maori concepts possibly as a more appropriate base for public benefit and charity going forward in New Zealand. Uh, we had a panel on the review of the Charities Act. Um, we had some interesting things there. Uh, one which, which sort of stuck with me is that lots of the issues that have been raised are not actually a function of the Act. Um, and I think you know, we need to keep that in context as well in terms of what the Act does and what are other issues in the sector which we all have a responsibility for dealing with but it may not be through legislation. Uh, and I think that's very important. Uh, Gwen Keel gave us a, a fascinating view and some quite strong opinions, I thought, from Waikato Tainui, um, which uh, enriched uh, the debate. Uh, and Matthew Turnover, um, thank you very much. I, I loved your line, recognise the importance of good governance, but not sure it can be achieved by legislative mandate. And I think that's a really important thing, and especially around the discussions that we've had on governance uh, subsequently this afternoon, and what's the best way to uh, engender good governance, to encourage good governance, to show good governance, to be good governance, because all of us in this room uh, just about have a re responsibility in governance, judging by the, the hands that went up earlier. Um, social enterprise, Stephen, you um, yet again explored how this new evolving area in New Zealand um, is evolving and really lovely and positive to see. Uh, it was lovely to see the enthusiasm of Akina in terms of how much can happen in just a year, um, but also some very real challenges from people involved there in terms of the structural challenges that we face. Uh, the history of financial reporting. Thank you, Carolyn. That was lovely. Uh, for the accountants in the room, I haven't met any accountant yet who didn't really appreciate that. Uh, we live so much in today that we forget about taking a longer-term view and the context and where some things came from. So thank you very much. It was great to learn about Egyptians. Uh, it was great to learn uh, about kings just really wanting the wealth of the church. Um, and Methodist missionaries coming to New Zealand to distribute knives and forks and the odd tent <laughs> um, and keeping, a, keeping account of that. And all the way up to um, our grand experiment in New Zealand now, which is how I characterised what we've done in the charity sector with legislating for service performance information or impact information or the ability for charities to tell their story, which is a another way of saying that same thing. Uh, we are still early in that grand experiment, but I'm really heartened by the, um, the charity award winners and their comments and the support that they've found through telling their story. Uh, the future of financial reporting, a great cross-section of views from a funder, a standard setter, a charity, an auditor, an award winner, and 
international, gosh, what would we, what would we describe the IIRC? Uh, and international integrated reporting promoters and cheerleaders. That's what they are, because they don't want it to be regulated or, or legislated. Um, and it was great to get all those different views. And now to, to wrap up with the challenge that we have ahead in terms of the timeline and looking at what others have done. So it's up to all of us to, to be the good example. Um, a few logistical things. We have been recording uh, as much of this as possible. Thanks very much to Stephen and his technology. Uh, much appreciated, Stephen. Um, so we're going to be putting out uh, these recordings. They will come to you uh, probably via a, a link in terms of we'll email out to everyone um, and put them on our, our website. Um, they'll also be very quickly up the podcast of um, Carolyn's session, which you all participated in. Um, uh, I understand there's going to be some video as well, uh, if we can get it up on the, the YouTube channel, um, which is great. Uh, and we will also be putting up the slides that you have seen, so there'll be links to all of the slides. Um, and I know I've spoken to a couple of other people like Erna and Carolyn in terms of there's some possibilities for maybe we can get access to some of the papers. There are a couple of copyright issues and things that we need to navigate through, but hopefully if we can um, work through that, um, there'll be links to, to various papers that have been mentioned as well. So it's not just what you've experienced. Hopefully there'll be a wealth of things for you to um, refer to later on and to hopefully share with some other people uh, that may also be interested in various aspects of this. Um, so I'd just like to, uh, to, I guess, end my session by uh, suggesting that we all travel safe, that we all uh, swim between the flags. <laughs> um, thank you, Miles. Um, and we've all got this wonderful opportunity for where those flags should be set going forward um, in our environment. Do we want to be a sumo? Do we want to be a jiu-jitsu approach? Um, I think you've, you've um, taken on where Una left off in terms of uh, analogies to leave us with there from last year's conference. Uh, from the organising committee's perspective, there's been no firm decision on whether we'll be running a, um, uh, another uh, uh, session of this nature next year. Uh, originally, when we looked at this after last year's session, we thought two years probably would be a good time frame in terms of doing this, but it was just too good an opportunity with the review of the Charities Act in play not to, um, to run this conference again. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll see how we go on that. Uh, and we very much would like anyone's feedback uh, in terms of what you've liked, what you haven't liked, um, so that we can help design the next one, whenever the next one is, to be even better. So um, please take action from this, because there's no point in coming along and learning new things if we don't take action to improve things further from it. Um, so can I now uh, invite Matthew Harding to um, close the conference um, and to also invite Joe in terms of the karakia. Thank you, Matthew. Okay, thanks very much, Craig. And thank you also for um, emceeing this event once again with such skill and flair. I think we should all put our hands together to try to appreciate it. Now, um, I'm not going to detain you very long here. I just want to uh, just say a couple of things by way of reflection at the end of these two days. And um, I've been thinking about how we might measure the success of this meeting. Uh, and um, I have at least uh, three um, thoughts on that front. One is, um, I think this is a gathering in which uh, we have, uh, through talking about all the various 
matters that we have discussed uh, brought to the surface uh, and brought into better clarity, if you like, um, the key challenges and themes uh, that we all face uh, in the uh, legal regulatory accounting landscape right now. Now, I was trying to rack my brains earlier today to think, now, what are those themes? And then Matthew Turner stood up and just told me what they were, so that was quite handy. <laughs> governance. Governance has been a big theme running through this whole conference. Uh, and uh, one insight that I've really gained uh, from the discussions is that it has many dimensions. Not all of them uh, have to do with law and regulation. Some of them have to do with culture uh, and, uh, and community. Uh, uh, the other theme, that, of course, that Matthew uh, put forward was um, the role of the state and the limits of the state in dealing with the sector came through in so many different ways, didn't it? It came through in that session on whether we need a regulator for charities. It came through when we were talking about accounting. Uh, and Carolyn told us some of the ways in which, going back thousands of years, the state has sought to control charities through accounting uh, requirements. Uh, it came through in the discussion on advocacy. Uh, it's a big issue. It's clearly very much on people's minds here. Uh, and I would encourage you all to continue the discussions on that theme going forward. The second observation I'd make about the success of this meeting is that it's an opportunity for us to build community uh, as a group of professional and other advisors uh, and scholars uh, and, uh, and members of the sector. Uh, and that's a really important goal um, because a strong uh, professional community uh, means uh, or contributes in a significant way to a strong sector. And so uh, I think it's been a great success again on that front. Uh, I didn't even think in terms of, well, there are accountants here and then there are lawyers here and we're having different conversations. That wasn't the way it felt at all. We were all having one conversation. Uh, and that's a notable thing. It's something we should all be quite pleased about. The last thing I'll say is that um, occasionally at gatherings like this, you, you get something very special. You get a real insight into how things might look in the future, into different ways of thinking about things, uh, into how we can make the law better, how we can make the sector better, how we can make the world better. And I have had moments like that over the last two days. And, and on that, I really have to note once again the extraordinary address from Justice Joe Williams. Uh, you're so lucky that you've got your legal system in the hands of men such as him. Uh, so I don't want to say any more except to wish you all the best with the review. From the uh, Charity Law Association of Australia and New Zealand perspective, uh, this has been a huge success and we're very proud to be involved with this conference. Um, and uh, I look forward to uh, the next one, whenever that might be. Uh, and thanks to the organising committee for the enormous work that they've put in. Thanks to the sponsors for the, the stalwart support of this event. And thanks to all of you for being here. Well, I do really hope you enjoyed listening to that extremely long podcast episode. If you did listen to the whole thing, then my hat is off to you. And hopefully some of you were able to dive in and listen to bits and pieces. If you enjoy this and what I'm trying to do with Seeds Podcast, then please help me to spread the word about it. The aim is to provide lots of good information for the ecosystem here in New Zealand and around the world by providing access to information that can help empower people who are doing good. Until next time. Thank you.